Chapter 1, Becalmed. Becalmed, nautical term for the calm before a storm. A policeman's lot is not a happy one. Ah, when constabulary duties to be done, to be done. A policeman's lot is not a happy one, hap. Watson. What? If you do not stop that infernal humming, I shall scream louder than any of those girls in that atrocious production's chorus line. Sherlock Holmes's voice appeared to be under an intense strained annoyance, but I could tell from his eyes that he was not really serious. About the possibility of his screaming, anyway. I laughed at his exasperated expression and obediently stopped my humming. He breathed a sigh of relief, linking his arm through mine comfortably as we strolled along the gaslit streets along with the rest of the theatre-goers on this lovely May evening. A warm breeze was blowing gently through the evening air, which was for once free from the smog and fog that normally characterized this city of ours, and the temperature was that of an almost too perfect balmy spring evening. At the time of which I speak, May of 1894, Sherlock Holmes had finally returned to life, shocking the world and myself with the startling knowledge that he was not dead as we had all thought, only a month previously. Since his return to life and the active investigative scene, I had sold my medical practice at his insistence and moved back into our old flat at Baker Street. After the initial shock and awkwardness of learning to again live with each other had worn off, we fell back into place with tolerable easiness and by this time were fully as comfortable with each other as we had been in the old days. Indeed, I mused as we strolled along the theatre district this lovely night, we were even more comfortable with each other. Something had happened during Holmes's absence to make him just slightly less an automaton as he had seemed to be often early in our association. I always knew the real Sherlock Holmes did exist somewhere underneath that cold, aloof facade, but his hidden self was rarely seen in those early days. Since his return, I had noticed, to my great pleasure, I might add, that Holmes had slightly dropped that cold mask to the extent of relaxing more around me, at least, to all outward appearances he was still the alert aloof investigator, but occasionally, like tonight for instance, Holmes allowed himself to liberate the tense appearance and soften that cold exterior somewhat when in my company. I was extraordinarily pleased, and touched deeply, by his gesture of this evening, for I knew how much he despised Gilbert and Sullivan, preferring the classics like Wagner and Shakespeare to the more popular entertainment of our day. I had mentioned once, a few weeks after my return to Baker Street, that I should like to see the newest operetta, the Pirates of Penzance, saying the fact merely as a passing conversation piece at the breakfast table one morning. And it was to my utter astonishment, and great delight, that Holmes had surprised me just this morning with stuffing two books tickets to the performance into the journal in which I had been writing up our last case, the scandalous affair of the ex-president Murillo and those dreadfully dangerous documents of his. I will never forget the look on his face when I whirled round in my chair, holding the envelope in my hand and staring at him with amazement. I had only rarely seen that look before, like that of a parent watching a child open up a Christmas gift, the pleasure of seeing the appreciation on the little one's face far outweighing the expense of the gift. He had laughed at my incredulous expression and then vanished without a word into his bedroom, leaving me staring after him. Yes, indeed, he had changed a good deal, I thought as we walked along making our way out of the entertainment district of London and turning our steps in the direction of Baker Street. Holmes was in the middle of some rather personal deduction about the young couple in front of us, who were obviously enjoying each other's presence a little more than most Victorian young people did in public at that time in history, and I could not help but laugh as I remembered how much I had indeed missed moments like this over the last three years.
Holmes's return had filled in that gap in my heart and mind that had left me more introspective and withdrawn than I had ever been in my life, and tonight I realized that I was, for the first time in a long time, absolutely and perfectly happy. After a few minutes, we fell into a comfortable silence as we walked, the gaslights flickering warmly around us and the balmy breeze setting the bunting on the houses we passed fluttering gently in the evening wind. Holmes I asked at last. Yes, my dear fellow? Thank you for going with me tonight. His thin lips curved upward in a smile. I know the thing is not really your style. He laughed aloud at that colossal understatement. No, perhaps not, he chuckled, but honestly, my dear fellow, I was more than glad to go, I have sorely missed these evening rambles of ours over the last three years, you know. We could have just gone for a walk instead of a comic operetta, Holmes, I said, watching him for his reaction and loving every minute of this discussion. But you wanted to see it, he protested, looking at me out of the corner of his eye, I was baiting him, and he knew it. He was merely playing along with me. And he was not going to give me the satisfaction of what I wanted to hear, not just yet anyway. Yes, but still. It gave me a chance to escape from Mrs. Hudson's infernal fussing, he interrupted me, one month back in the rooms, and the woman thinks she needs to replace the drapes. Honestly? I laughed. Also, it gave me a chance to puzzle over the Charleston murder case, that one that's been in the Times every day for the past week, he went on, glancing slyly at me, you remember, the one where the husband was accused of poisoning? A policeman's lot is not a happy one, I began mischievously humming that accursed tune again, eyeing my companion for the explosion I knew would follow. He moaned dismally, and I snickered at his immaturely pouting face. I am so going to regret this for the rest of the week, am I not he said in mock despair. Do you suppose we can go see the Mikado next, Holmes I asked innocently. I was forced to dodge a not so playful thin elbow as Holmes expressed his feelings very eloquently without words. Then we both laughed, as a group of young people were watching us from a doorway, pointing and laughing. HNPH, Holmes muttered, what are they staring at? Probably the local dead celebrity, I said with a grin. Maybe they have not heard that you are alive. He snorted derisively. Probably more likely they are wondering what those two old men are doing walking all the way from the theater district instead of ordering a cab, he replied. Old men? I like that I said indignantly. Holmes threw back his head and laughed aloud, the sound feeling me with a happiness of my own, I had forgotten how much fun we could have if Holmes would simply forget that he was supposed to be a cool, competent detective, a lone wolf in the field of criminal justice, and would simply let himself be human once in a while. Such moments had been rare before his so-called death, and I was more than thrilled at the fact that they were more frequent now. Oh, my dear Watson, he gasped at last, still chortling at my disgruntled expression, which was really put on, I was nowhere near irritated, I truly have missed this, if you can believe such a sentiment from a calculating machine such as I. I laughed and tightened my grip on his arm, returning the sly look he gave me. Hum. First you go with me to the Pirates of Penzance. And now you tell me that you are actually glad to be in my company? Are you feeling quite well, old chap? I put so much false medical concern into my voice that Holmes nearly lost his composure again with his snickering. I am sure the people we passed thought us to be entirely mad, but we did not care in the least, not on an evening like this one. I was actually sorry to see Baker Street up ahead of us as we strolled along Oxford. Holmes stopped to look in a shop window indicating a new microscope he had his eye on and then launching into a detailed discussion about its perks right there outside the closed shop window, forcing passers-by to detour around us. 
I was hard put not to smile at his mood swings, for they were every bit as variable as I had remembered. He was jabbing a bony finger at the glass of the window, pointing out some feature on the instrument, and one of our young street urchins came dashing past us on the sidewalk, nearly bowling me over right into Holmes. The lad hastily spun on his heel when he saw us and latched onto Holmes with a whirlwoop of triumph. M.R. Alms. We done eared ink papers you weren't dead, after all the boy shouted, loudly enough that several people stopped to stare at us. I had to smile behind a cough, for Holmes looked entirely comical with this lad hanging off his full dress suit, helplessly looking at me over the boy's head as if to ask what he was supposed to do. I indicated his pocketbook. Worked every time. Yes, well, Charlie, how are you and all the irregulars Holmes said, trying to pry the boy's grubby arms off his waistcoat. Oh aye, we're fine, Emma Holmes. Hello, dog to the boy said as Holmes disentangled himself finally. Hello, my boy, I said, smiling. Holmes fumbled in his pocket and handed the lad a half-crown, the only change either of us had on us, another reason we had walked instead of taking a cab. Blimey the boy's eyes got as large as saucers. Now scupper, lad. I shall see you again sometime soon, Holmes directed the boy, who nodded and bounced off down the street whooping with joy at his new-found wealth. I dissolved into a soft peal of laughter at Holmes's exasperation as he tried unsuccessfully to straighten his rumpled waistcoat and jacket. My friend sent me a scathing glare, and I hastily dropped a bland mask over my features as he was so fond of doing, looking innocently at him. He laughed again, giving up on the clothing, and we continued the last remaining blocks to Baker Street in a companionable silence, just enjoying the evening. We turned the corner onto Baker Street, and I out of old habit looked up at the sitting room, as I had done every time I found myself on this street in the last three years. But instead of seeing a white shade, I perceived a shadow on the blind, a tall male shadow. Looks like a client, I said to my comrade, who was also looking at the shadow. Such a stunning observation, Dr. Holmes said, you improve all the time. I glared at him, only half in jest. Well, go on. Dazzle me then, I retorted. I beg your pardon? Tell me what long spiel of deductions you can make from his shadow, I said. Well, it is a man, Holmes began. I rather believe I could have told you that obvious fact, I interjected as I fumbled for my key. Holmes snickered meaningfully. Yes, I rather believe that is your department, he replied, obviously enjoying seeing my face flush under his teasing. Really? Holmes I hid my red face by opening the door and stepping ahead of him into the hall. Behind me I heard his quiet laughter as he shut the door, hanging his toppet beside mine on the hall peg. He picked up a visiting card from the table. Midshipman William Larkland, Portsmouth, England, Holmes Reed. I whistled. That is rather a mouthful. Now, Watson, that is not a very kind action, to make fun of a fellow's odd name, Holmes said chidingly as we started upstairs. Yes, I can imagine you found yourself on the receiving end of that unkind action at some point in your life, Holmes, I said, my face deadpan but wanting very much to laugh. His jaw dropped as my sharp barbed teasing hit directly home, and he had barely controlled his laughter at my statement by the time we reached the sitting room door. I never get your limits, Watson, he muttered, his hand on the knob, and I grinned. Well, on to your third case since your return? After you, my dear fellow. Chapter 2, Know the Ropes. Chapter 2, Know the Ropes. Know the Ropes, nautical term for being acquainted with the method of a task. Watson. The sitting room was dim, the gas only half on, 
that Mrs. Hudson had lit a cosy fire and it made up the difference by shedding a comfortable glow throughout the room. I entered before Holmes rather uneasily, for I suddenly felt that something was missing and it took me a moment to realize what. When a client of Holmes's enters our flat on Baker Street, they are more than often filled with a nervous energy, they pace, fidget, sometimes mutter to themselves, and generally broadcast that feeling of unease into the rest of the room, much as the fire was casting its heat now. I sensed no such unease when I entered the room, indeed, it was just as peaceful and comfortable as ever, as though there were no client present. But across the room the man Larkland stood still near the window, his hands deep in his pockets, his eyes fixed on the shelf of books above my desk. He was tall and broad-shouldered, a few inches above my own height and no more than two below that of Holmes. At the sound of our entrance he looked round and then turned to face us, and I had to admit that he cut a rather impressive figure, but I sensed no menace from him, and again felt that absence of unease. He was singly the most reassuring person I had ever met, and he fit as quietly and easily into his surroundings as a stone on a country lane. Holmes brushed past me, his jovial mood forgotten in the face of yet another client and yet another case. I was somewhat sad that this period of calm intimacy had been interrupted so soon, but I could not begrudge Holmes his cases, and I myself was rather excited at the prospect. There was, and still is, no finer thing than to accompany Sherlock Holmes on one of his adventures. Adopting his brusque and business-like manner as he had of old, Holmes approached Larklin, his hand outstretched. M.R. Larklin, I am Sherlock Holmes. Larklin smiled and grasped the detective's hand firmly. M.R. Holmes, I have heard a great deal of you. His voice was almost as quiet as his manner, though it was gruff and low. Then you no doubt have heard of my associate Dr. Watson, Holmes said, stepping aside so that I could approach. The smile warmed further. I have indeed, Doctor, in fact I could argue that it is only because of you that I have heard of Mr. Holmes. I felt my face flush slightly at the compliment toward my writings and I shook his hand, which was rough and calloused, a workman's hand. Won't you sit down Holmes gestured to one of the chairs by the fire. Larklin sat murmuring his thanks and leaned forward in his chair, his hands clasped before him, and I took the moment to study him. He was, as I have said, tall and broad. It was difficult to tell beneath the black peacoat he wore but from the way he had moved and by the strength he had shown when shaking my hand it was obvious he was very fit and muscled. His hair was short and fair, a sandy shade that almost hid the few grey stakes present in his locks. The man wore a beard and moustache as well, trimmed and just hugging his jaw. His face was tanned and weathered as a seaman's always was, the bones of his face were fine with a long nose and high cheekbones and he would have been considered handsome by a good many ladies. His eyes were blue, clean and clear as the sky at sea. Holmes seated himself in the chair opposite our interesting guest and leaned back, crossing one long leg over the other and steepling his fingers together. Now, Mr. Larklin, perhaps you would care to tell us why you are here. I deal with a great many people but I must admit that I do not often deal with seamen, and never before with a midshipman. Larklin's eyebrows rose at that and he smiled wryly. You say that as if it is some grand thing. Mr. Holmes, but midshipman is not even a proper officer's rank. Nevertheless it is obvious that you are well acquainted with the craft, and had you the ambition or rather the luck you would have been promoted long ago. Humor me, Mr. Holmes, for I have long wanted to see your parlor tricks, how can you tell that? Now Holmes smiled, always flattered by a chance to show off his art. Your complexion and sea legs tell me that you have been at sea for a great deal of time, 
years not months, the roots of your hair betray the fact that it was at one time darker and was long ago bleached in the sun and has remained that way ever since. Celex I asked in puzzlement. Holmes glanced at me, irritated at the interruption, but explained. It is a different matter to walk on the deck of a ship rather than land, Watson. I had been aware of that fact, but I kept quiet. And, when one has spent a great deal of time aboard such vessels, one develops a permanent such manner of movement, particularly the seafaring man, he went on. The calluses on your hands indicate that you do a deal of manual labor, but also present are the prints to indicate that you frequently use a pen in writing and other delicate instruments typical of navigation and mathematics. You were examining Watson's medical journals when we came in and only a learned man would find those particular works to be of much interest. Your carriage is quiet but confident, you can and often do lead men but are not accustomed to it. You are a man of hidden talents, Mr. Larklin, and should have been promoted long ago Dart so I must assume that you either have no ambition in the matter or fell upon some misfortune that prevented it. The admiration was clear in Larklin's eyes and he looked at me. Your stories do not. Dr. Watson. You are correct in every particular, Mr. Holmes, now perhaps you would like some information in return. Holmes motioned with his hand for the seaman to continue, his eyes already closed. Larkham frowned at Holmes's odd manner but cleared his throat to begin. I sat on the sofa and drew a notebook quickly from my pocket. I have been at sea for most of my life, twenty-two years in fact, for I left home when I was sixteen and since then have been working my way from ship to ship and crew to crew. Several years ago I had a connection in a Dutch shipping company and became a crew member of the steamship, Beshemer, that is where I rose to the rank of midshipman. The Beshemer was a cargo ship, and our path took us from the Netherlands to Indonesia, where we sold and traded our goods for a new cargo. What line was this I asked? The Lansing Line, Larklin answered, they even have several factories that manufacture the ships. And some event occurred while you were on this Beshemer that you wished to consult me about Holmes prompted. Actually, Mr. Holmes, it is what happened after I left the ship that prompts me to seek your help. Holmes frowned and opened his eyes to look at our client but said nothing, merely waiting. I left her only a year and a half ago, and no sooner was I off the thing than she went down off the coast of one of the little Indonesian islands, all hands aboard with her. No one has seen her or heard word of her, so that was given as the only explanation as to her fate. Holmes sprang from his chair rather irritated, and paced to the fireplace to pack his pipe. I could read the disappointment in his face and the lightness in my heart promptly left it. The sailor's tale was sad, true, but it was not an unusual or even a mysterious occurrence for a ship to vanish at sea. Holmes said as much and Larkland looked at him more sharply than he had before. If you would give me the courtesy to allow me to finish, Mr. Holmes, then you would see there is more to my story than the simple sinking of a ship. He had our attention now. Holmes turned back to him, leaning on the fireplace, his bite between his lips. Pray continue, then. Larklin nodded his thanks and went on. For the past two months I have been taking a little rest from the sea, and have employed myself as a dock worker unloading cargo and shipments in Portsmouth. Yesterday I was assigned to unload a ship that had just returned from Indonesia. He broke off here and for the first time since we had entered the room he hesitated. Holmes impatiently glanced at me and I gave him a stern look that clearly indicated my feelings. With a slight sigh Holmes sat in his chair again and prompted quietly and patiently. How are the two incidents related, Mr. Larklin? Other than the fact that ships were present in both. That's just it, Mr. Holmes, the plurality isn't needed, 
When I was unloading the ship I was struck by a strange familiarity that I could not shake, and when most of the cargo was unloaded I lingered in the hold on a whim. On every ship I travel on, I leave behind me a small mark, a scratch in the hold. It is a custom of mine and does not mean anything to anyone else, but I have never failed to mark one of my ships. Holmes was leaning forward now in the attitude of an eager hound, his eyes alight. Larklin met his gaze without flinching at the intent glare and spoke. My mark was present in the hole Mr. Holmes, and that ship that I unloaded was none other than the Bechamel with a new coat of paint and a new name. Holmes leapt to his feet again, so abruptly this time that Larklin jerked back in surprise, watching the detective pace back and forth. You recognize the ship after you realized this? I, I know the cut of the jib of every ship I have ever sailed on, as well as the back of my own hand. A few layers of paint cannot change that. Were any of the former crew present, did you happen to notice any other irregularities? None. Have you informed anyone else of this? I informed the Lancing Line, and was politely told that it was none of my business, Mr. Holmes, he said this with a little bitterness. Which line does this new ship belong to? A rival line, and if you'd allow me. Larkin reached into his peacoat and drew out a grubby piece of paper scribbled on with a pencil. Holmes took it from him, and unfolded it. Those are the names and the rough facts of three ships that I have since found in the harbours of Portsmouth, all of which I have sailed on before, and all of which were supposed to have perished en route to Indonesia in the last six or seven years. Every one of them belongs to one of three shipping lines, rival to the Lansing. Holmes scanned the document and then passed it to me. I struggled to read the shipman's sprawling hand and was able to make out the names of three ships, the Deventbeck, the Hals, and the Scranton, each followed by a brief history and the name of the lion which now owned them. In every case the ship had gone down with all hands, vanishing without a word, and not even a scrap of debris had been found to attest to their fate. All three belonged to the Lansing line, and since the fools in administration seem not to care whether their ships and their men are intentionally harmed I have brought the matter to you. You have no personal interest in it. Larklin shook his head and sighed running a hand through his already must hair. That is a delicate matter, Mr. Holmes, I admit I cannot submit this case in the role of client as I am not a wealthy man and would have trouble paying out any fees you could ask for. But the doctor's stories indicate you enjoy a challenge, and if you solved this mystery I am certain that the Lancing Lion would reward you sufficiently. Holmes's thin lips twitched, I see you are indeed a fan of Watson's stories. Yes, the case is of interest to me, and is in itself reward enough. But that is not what I meant by the question, why should you bring this to my attention at all? Larkin raised his brows again, looking a little surprised at the question. Because I am an honest man, Mr. Holmes, he said simply, I cannot stand by and see crime done even if it does not affect me personally. This would be a cruel world if we were only worried about our own gain. And, I had not a few friends on the Beskimer. It would be an insult twice over if I did nothing to avenge their deaths. Holmes let out his odd barking laugh and his eyes sparked as he looked at Larkin with something akin to respect. That alone is reason enough for me to take the case, Mr. Larkin. The cause of an honest man is always worth aiding. I really must thank you for providing me with a pretty little problem. Larkin returned the smile and nodded, climbing to his feet. Thank you, Mr. Holmes. If you have no further need of me I have some business that I had better be getting back to. Do you have an address in Portsmouth where you can be reached? Your memory may yet to be of service to me. That's fine. I'm here in London for a few days, as matter of fact, and in down by the docks, Haddock by name. 
If you don't find me there then a question set to a seaman should reach me right enough. Holmes murmured his thanks and shook Larkland's hand a second time, this time more warmly than before. It has been a pleasure meeting you at last, Mr. Holmes, and you, Doctor, he shook my hand. Likewise, sir, I said, returning the gesture, and Holmes moved to show him to the door. William Larklin nodded to us both once more and then left the room, his feet pounding firmly on the seventeen steps. The moment the door was closed Holmes turned away from it, rubbing his hands eagerly together, his face alight. What a night Watson, such a mystery. And such a man. You are both of a dying breed, Doctor, the honest idealist. Quite sharp too, it is not often that a client possess those qualities which I actually find useful. He has a knack for observation, his talents told him what the chip was long before he found the mark. It is a shame that he is wasted on such menial labor, his employers abuse their own fortunes by not promoting him. Double quote. I smiled, watching as Holmes coaxed his pipe into life again and seated himself before the fire with a satisfied sigh. I liked him, I remarked, leaning out the open window to watch as his figure disappeared round the corner, hands stuffed deep into the pockets of his peacoat once again. Holmes turned his head and smiled. That is another point in his favor, Watson. I am rather inclined to hope that we see him again, for he could be quite useful in this case. I am amused when I look back on Holmes's words now, though not only were we to see William Larklin again but he would become invaluable, and little did we know then just how deep and treacherous a puzzle he had led us to. Chapter 3, All at Sea. Chapter 3, All at Sea. All at Sea, nautical term for a state of confusion and disorder. Watson. I slept well that night. The combination of such a wonderful evening at the operetta and then the coming home to a new case putting me in an admirably pleasant frame of mind, and I slept straight through the night, waking to a glorious burst of golden sunshine peeking in through the blinds of my window. It was promising to be a very lovely day, and I was in a particularly cheerful mood as I dressed, the songs from that operetta continuing to go through my mind as I readied myself for the day. I was still humming as I fairly bounced down the stairs to the sitting room, I could smell coffee and knew that Holmes must already be up. Of course he was, he had a new case, only the third since his return. Good morning, Holmes, I cried, opening the door to the sitting room with a bright smile, it is going to be a, oh dear heavens. My jaw dropped as I saw the tornado that had struck our sitting room overnight. Holmes was standing in the middle of the room by the table, surrounded by a white paper carpet that blanketed the floor in every direction. Why he felt the need to toss about every document and paper we owned in searching for the always elusive one he wanted was a mystery I for one would never be able to solve. Holmes, what in heaven's name I gasped, taking a long jump over a strewn pile of scrapbooks that blocked my path for three feet. He was staring fixedly at a long map of the eastern hemisphere that he had fixed to the wall with, I winced at the thought of what Mrs. Hudson would say, his pocket knife and several sharp tacks, completely ignoring me. I tripped over a stack of books, why had he thrown them on the floor instead of placing them on the desks and nearly made a crash landing on the couch, only to see that it too was covered with papers. I barely kept my balance and turned to look at what else he had destroyed during the night. Two other maps, one of the Indonesian islands and one obviously a nautical chart of wind and current patterns, were affixed, I did not wish to know how, to my desk and to the side of the file cabinet. Holmes was scrutinizing the one in front of him, carefully and meticulously tracing a path on it in pencil and then going back over it with a large red felt pen. What the devil are you doing, Holmes I asked at last, not believing the mess one man could have made in one night. Not now, 
Watson, he said impatiently, I'm engaged at the moment. So I see, I replied tiredly, shoving aside a stack of files 1882. What had he been doing going through 12-year-old case records? Even as I bent to pick up a leather portfolio that was dangerously close to the fireplace, Holmes suddenly stabbed the map rather viciously with a large colored stick pin and turned to a sheaf of papers that had somehow made their way to comparative safety on the sideboard. I heard a violent curse as he began to riffle through the stack at such a speed I was sure he would tear the pages, and when I voiced a mild protest as he flung the discarded ones over his shoulder instead of restacking them, I was met only with a growl. I dodged a flying envelope, catching it and a large manila folder before they went into the grate, and somehow managed to make Holmes's desk by the window before being sliced to ribbons by the documents sailing through the air. Holmes, what in heaven's name are you searching for? I asked, pouring myself a cup of coffee. There was a very loud crash behind me, and I closed my eyes, praying for patience. Then, and only then, did I turn round. Oh, Holmes, I moaned, seeing that he had torn down the map from my desk taking several dictionaries and journals with him to the floor. I poured milk into my coffee and watched as he again ignored me, sitting cross-legged on the floor with the map across his knees and two papers in his hand, copying notes from the documents onto the Indonesian map, his thin face furrowed with intense concentration. There was a knock on the door, and we both started rather guiltily and looked at each other. Um, Watson? I am already on it, Holmes, I said hastily, jumping over the closest pile of files trying to get to the door before our landlady opened it and saw what Holmes had done to the sitting room. Thank you my companion called after me as I tripped over those confounded scrapbooks, frantically groping for the doorknob. Even Sherlock Holmes was not over eager to push his luck with our good landlady. But the estimable woman opened the door just as I reached it, nearly hitting me in the face. Oh, doctor. I am sorry. It, it's quite all right, Mrs. Hudson, I gasped rubbing my head and hastily taking the breakfast tray from her hands. I endeavored to move so that I was blocking her from seeing the room's condition. Will you and Mr. Holmes be wanting anything else just now, doctor she asked, peering past me suspiciously. There was a crash of breaking china behind us in the room, and the good woman's eyes grew round as she sent me a pointed look. Do you really think I can stop it, Mrs. Hudson I asked meaningfully as Holmes erupted into a bout of colorful swearing amidst another smaller crash. She relinquished the tray to me with surprising alacrity. Just see that he doesn't destroy the new curtains, doctor, if you please, the woman warned me sternly, or tomorrow there will be no breakfast. Yes, Mrs. Hudson, I replied meekly, shutting the door hastily after she had regally swept back to the stairs. Ah! There you are Holmes cried with a dry laugh, pouncing like a cat on his largest magnifying lens which had either fallen or been thrown halfway across the room to land under his chemical table. I shook my head and then tackled the problem of where I was going to eat breakfast, for the table, my desk, the chemical table, the chairs, and the couch were all buried under a blizzard of paperwork. With my legs I shuffled a tiny path through the debris and went back to Holmes's desk, where the coffee pot stood, and after a bit of debate and realizing there was nowhere else to go, hopped up and sat upon it balancing the breakfast tray upon my knees. Eggs, Holmes I asked serenely, as if sitting on his desk were the most normal thing in the world, indeed, in Baker Street, I doubted if the word normal could ever describe our activities. Holmes was inspecting another map, tapping his pen thoughtfully against his lower lip. Then he began to rummage through yet another stack of papers from the floor. I lifted up my feet as he came close to smacking his head into my shoe. Toast, Holmes? 
he threw a leather-bound volume across the room, where it slammed into the wall with a thud. I cringed, hoping Mrs. Hudson could not hear. Coffee, Holmes? I cannot for the life of me figure it out, Watson, he muttered. The map, or breakfast? He started out of his reverie and glanced at me, perched on his desk, trying to balance a coffee cup in one hand and a slice of toast in the other. For a moment Holmes just stared at me, and then he began to laugh out loud. Watson, what are you doing? Eating breakfast, I stated the obvious, won't you have some? Why are you sitting on my desk he asked, laughing once again at my odd position. Probably because every other article of furniture in here has been destroyed in your search for whatever it was you were looking for, I replied, cautiously setting down the cup and reaching for the kippers. But I leaned too far forward and the tray started to slip. I tried to grab it with a startled yelp as it slid off my knees, and Holmes dove for the thing before it tipped completely off my legs, catching the edge of it and bringing it upright once more. For a moment we both looked at each other in silence, and then we burst into a joint fit of laughter at the absurdity of the situation. Holmes was still laughing a moment later as he shoved a load of papers off one half of the table and hopped up across from me. I grinned and handed him a cup of coffee and a plate. This is ridiculous, he muttered, stirring sugar into his coffee. What exactly were you trying to accomplish here, Holmes I asked, holding out the plate of toast. First, I was charting the disappearing ship's courses, for one thing, and marking where they were reported to have been lost with all hands. As Larkland said, all three of the ones he mentioned disappeared off the Indonesian islands, my companion replied, crunching down on his toast. And those are just the three that he knows of personally, I added, who knows how many more are being taken the same way and resold to shipping lines. The oddest part of the business is twofold, Holmes went on, sipping his coffee, because I cannot for the life of me see any motive for the actions. These three ships are from three different rivaling lines. If they were all from the same line, that would be highly suspicious of sabotage from rival or else simple piracy of rival ships. But three different lines, that does not make any sense, I agreed, passing him the kippers. Holmes speared one and tossed it onto his plate, then tapped a fork thoughtfully against his thin lips. You said it was twofold, Holmes? Yes, Watson. The other odd issue is that, although these three steamships were freighters, there have been no less than three dozen ships that supposedly disappeared in that same vicinity in the last five years, and many of those were passenger vessels. But ships go down on a fairly regular basis, I protested, balancing the tray while I poured myself more coffee. Yes, but not all from the same line, Holmes said, pointing his fork at me for emphasis. I stopped, staring at him over the rim of my cup. They are all from the Langsing line? Nearly all of them. Langsing is a cargo shipping line but they also own many passenger vessels that make voyages to India, Indonesia, and Australia, said he, absently finishing off his breakfast. Then that is rather odd, I agreed, were you up all night figuring all this out, Holmes? No, no, I was just up early, old chap, he said, hopping off the table and leaving the dishes upon it, but now we must be getting on. On where I asked, sliding off the desk, holding the tray aloft so as not to spill anything. I need to find Larklin again, my friend replied, shrugging out of his dressing gown on his way to his bedroom. He tripped over a stack of books, sending them sliding all over the floor, and growled something unintelligible before vanishing into his bedroom. Find him for what I called, trying to clear a path to the door. I need more information about the shipping lines, the boats, and also I need to find some other contacts from sailors that might recognize ships in port, Holmes bellowed back. 
Shall we be going to Portsmouth afterwards? I called, stacking up a large sheaf of papers and placing them on my desk. I have no idea, he replied, coming back into the sitting room, tripping over the same stack of books he had on his way out, kicking one of them impatiently away to crash into the leg of the couch. I stuffed my journal into my pocket and then grabbed my black medical case, I rarely left the flat without it, knowing Sherlock Holmes, and never if there were a chance that we would not be returning for several hours. Just as a precaution, I pulled my revolver from the desk and put it into the bag, for I was taking no chances on anything happening. Holmes snatched his cigarette case and matches from the mantel, shoved them and his lens into his pockets, and then bulldozed a path from the fireplace to the door, sending clutter scooting across the floor to every remote part of the room. I sighed, thinking of the mess I in all probability would be the one to clean up later upon our return, and followed him out the door. I tried to shut the sitting room door behind me, and when it stuck on one of Holmes's precious scrapbooks, I glanced ahead of me to see that he was already out of sight down the stairs, then I booted it away from the door and closed it forcefully, wishing sometimes that Holmes were as neat and precise in his filing as he was in his solving of cases. But the game was afoot, and I was eager to leave the mess behind and participate in it, I hurried down the stairs to catch up with my friend. Chapter 4, Made in Storms. Chapter 4, Made in Storms. Thou's made in storms are not forgotten in port. Watson. The overpowering scent of wetwood and oil assailed my nose as I alighted from the cab after Holmes. My friend had halted in his tracks and was feeling his lungs, his head back. Marvellous, is it not, Watson? I took a step and felt my shoe collide with a soft substance that gave off an unpleasant stench. Yes, quite. What was the name of the inn Larkland was staying at again? The Havoc. That's appropriate. Holmes gave me a wry smile. You look at everything with a writer's eyes Watson, which is why you will never fully possess the faculties required of a detective. I was not certain of how to take this remark but Holmes obviously thought nothing of it for he took hold of my arm and led me forward through the thin but bustling crowd of the London dockyards. On one side was the Thames, dotted with ships at anchor, and on the other was a row of closely packed and very tall, narrow buildings built of fading brick and wood with peeling paint. Everywhere one looked there was someone at task, loading crates, coiling rope, or simply making their way along as we were. It was, in a sense, refreshing, and I could see how Holmes could be attracted to such activity and liveliness. He seemed to know his way rather well and he led us a straight course to a rather lonely-looking little building that was obviously old but well-made. The haddock, I must admit Watson, that I have never actually been inside though I have heard good report of it. Good report from whom I asked as he took hold of the tarnished tower and handle and pushed the aged door inward. A different set of smells met us, mostly a rather musty odor that reminded one of old, wet books and stews, as well as beer. Cutting through that odor was the unmistakable smell of freshly baked or baking bread. The small front room bore several round tables, a slumping fireplace at one end, and the inevitable bar at the other. It appeared to be empty. No one here I guessed as I closed the door behind us. Nonsense, Watson, they wouldn't leave an oven lit if it were unoccupied. And a moment later Holmes was proved correct as a young woman, wearing a grey dress and an apron dusted with flour emerged from the back carrying a stack of plates. Good day, madam, Holmes said, removing his hat. I'm in search of one of your patrons. She set down the stack and smiled politely though it was evident that we were interrupting her work, brushing a wheat-coloured lock back from her face. I removed my hat as well. An oh would that be, sir? A Mr. Larklan, is he in his room? She shook her head, still smiling. I'm sorry sir, 
He left about four hours ago. Could you tell us where he went? I asked. I believe he's spent the last few days at one of the nearer cartographers, Ares's name. Holmes pounced upon this latest piece of information. And where is this establishment? I'm sorry, sir, I can't rightly say, but if you ask someone outside, they should be able to direct you. Thank you, Holmes said, recapping his hat and turning abruptly to leave again. After a few words of thanks of my own, I followed, having to trot to catch up with him again. The moment I had, he gave a short laugh that was so characteristic of him. Cartographers. What did I say, Watson, a man of hidden talents, clearly? That fellow over there looks as though he can give competent instructions. He could and he did, and we made our way to the small shop which stood not three streets away, only to discover that Larkland had already left. The exasperation on Holmes's face was in effect priceless and I struggled to retain my laughter while he addressed the proprietor of the shop. He's gone. Yes, sir. Well where has he gone? Why, down to the ring sir, he's been doing some work for me for a few days now. Still plans to in the future, but he's taken off for the day to get some sport in. Holmes' lips twitched in their own amusement and he left the shop with me at his heels and once the door burst behind us he burst into a weary laughter. Oh, Watson. I could swear that this man is purposefully leading us on a wild goose chase for nothing more than his own amusement. You know where this place is then? My friend smiled and clapped me on the shoulder I do Watson, very well in fact. Come on, old fellow, this next part should amuse you. Holmes led me quickly through the crowd, up a few streets and down two, until I caught the sight of a small crowd, gathered in an open space between the buildings. An audible noise rose from them. Holmes, what is this I asked suspiciously, though my friend was obviously eager. He shot me a smile and pulled me forward into the crowd, weaving his way through it until the reason for it came into view. When the shopkeeper had said ring and sport he had been speaking literally, for there in the center a small square was marked with ropes and two men circled each other inside it. Larklin among his other talents, was a boxer. Prize fighting, or fisticuffs as it was called, was a boxing match without gloves which was understandable because not every man could afford the equipment for the more sophisticated form of boxing. For this reason it often tended to be bloodier and more dangerous. Both Larklin and his opponent stood in the center of the ring, stripped to the waist, barefoot, and were bobbing and weaving skillfully while trying to land blows on the other. The crowd called advice and cheers and in some cases jeers. Come on, Jerry. That's half a sovereign I've got on you lad. Don't let I'm at ya. The fighters seemingly took no notice but continued to circle, both were grinning and it was evident that the match was a friendly one, fought more for skill than to actually take down the other man. For several moments we watched while they fought. I had both participated in and seen boxing before but I was more partial to such sports as fishing and horse racing and rugby, boxing was Holmes' forte. I had seen Holmes box many times and had fenced with him often in the past but only once had I been foolish enough to take him in a boxing match early on in our acquaintance. I glanced at him now, his hands gripped in fists, his eyes alight, as they flickered and darted, watching the fight, and I could not help but wonder how long it had been since he had been in a ring. An uproar drew my attention back to the ring and I looked in time to see a lark and deliver hook that at Jerry back against the ropes, someone called an end to the round and somewhat bruised the opponents walked to the edge of the ring, thumbs on each other's shoulders, speaking quietly. Come on, Watson, Holmes said, surging forward through the crowd. I hurried to keep up. We reached the ring just as Larkland was about to leave it, and spotting us, he stopped and leaned on the ropes, the surprise and pleasure at our appearance evident on his face. Emma. 
Holmes, Doctor, it is a surprise to see you here. Not as much a surprise for us I will admit, Holmes said. I failed to take note last night of the state of your ears, my friend. Oddly thinned and flattened as is common for boxers. You did remarkably well in that last fight. Larkland smiled and nodded his thanks. I, you do know a little of boxing don't you? I read from the daughter's stories you even tried your hand at it once or twice. I had mentioned Holmes' boxing skills in the study in Scarlet, but I had made it clear in that tale that Holmes was an excellent boxer. Larkland was deliberately baiting him, not that he needed any encouragement. I put a light hand on Holmes' shoulder as a sudden foreboding seized me. It has been a while. A few years in fact. Larkland nodded an indulgent smile on his face. I one gets soft after a while. Holmes raised his eyebrows in offense though his eyes shone with the same mischievous light as Larkland's. Not as soft as all that, I dare say. Holmes, I cautioned, for it had been three years. Well, shall we find out Larkland said, one round and then I could have time to help you with whatever it is you're needing. Double quote. Certainly, Mr. Larkland, Holmes said, beginning to remove his coat and jacket. Though I must warn you I have blackened many an eye. Holmes I protested again, though I could not suppress the amusement from my voice. Hold these for me, would you Watson he said pulling off his cravat, vest, and shirt as well, and handing the clothes to me. I sighed and took them, watching as he and Larkin entered the ring and strode to the center. Then someone caught the beginning of the round and they both shifted a bit on their feet as though sizing up the other. Then, as I thought he would, Larkin threw the first punch, a straight right towards Holmes's face. Holmes ducked the blow but failed to block the follow-up swing that Larkin threw just after. He let out a grunt as he was driven back a few feet. A murmur rippled through the crowd and Larkin grinned. Holmes only scowled in concentration and resumed his stance, bringing up his fists. Larkin waited for him to toe the line and quick as lightning jabbed at his jaw than his sides forcing Holmes to take the defensive, driving my friend back. He sent a forceful blow to the side of Holmes's head and again he was sent back into the ropes. I swallowed in apprehension, taking in the bruise on Holmes' left cheek, perhaps it had been too long. But once again I was to be proven wrong by my friend for he shook off the blow and came to his feet again, his footing as sure as ever, light as a cat. Larkland, still graining waited for him, more solid than Holmes and more powerful, he swung again and though his blow landed on Holmes's side it was lessened as Holmes's fist connected with his jaw in a forceful left hook. He reacted to the blow and aimed for Holmes's face but my friend dodged, weaved out of his path, and hit the same spot on his jaw twice more. Larkin brought his hand up to block that spot and left his right side open, and Holmes took advantage of it by striking him several times over with a straight left in the ribcage. Now it was Larkin who let out a grunt and staggered. He delivered another blow to my friend's face, halting the blows and skipping away to the left, eyeing the thinner man with more respect. Holmes did not smile as they circled but the amusement and enjoyment of the thing was clear on his face. They began to exchange blows steadily, circling dodging and weaving and gaining speed as they went. It is a marvelous thing to see such equally matched opponents move almost in rhythm, Holmes with his quickness, skill, and truly accurate blows, and Larkin with his force, who while he was not as quick was most definitely skilled. At last when both men were breathing heavily and sweat stood out on their foreheads, Holmes' eyes began to glint with a determined look which I recognized only too well. Larkin sent him back onto the ropes again with another smooth hit to the jaw, and advanced his left coming up with what he obviously thought would be the finishing blow. In a motion so smooth and quick one could hardly see the transitioned Holmes ducked under the blow, 
struck Larklin in the side and followed with an uppercut that sent him sprawling off his feet and onto his back. The small crowd exploded in shouting and crowded towards the ring, pressing me against the ropes. Holmes had walked over to Larklin and held out his hand to the burly man who sat fingering his jaw. The seaman smiled sheepishly and accepted the hand, climbing to his feet. He spoke to Holmes though I could not hear the words for the cacophony of the crowd, but the remark made Holmes laugh outright and they strode to the edge of the ring, climbing through the ropes. I handed Holmes his clothing and after accepting a towel from another bystander he began to pull them on, his face flushed with victory. Enjoy yourself I asked, trying not to smile and grimace at the same time, he was mottled with bruises and his lip was split. Immensely, he breathed, tying his cravat. Larklin is a skilled opponent. As are you, Mr. Holmes, Larklin said as he pulled on a rough woolen shirt and his peacoat. You beat me fairly, now what is it you gentlemen wish me to show you? We want you to show us the ships, Holmes said accepting his coat from an enthusiastic member of the crowd who held it out for him to slip his arms through. What for the midshipman asked tucking his hands into his pockets, exchanging a look with me. I shrugged I haven't the foggiest idea. I would like to interview some of the crew members, Holmes said. And have a look at the ships themselves, there is a chance that I may find some compound or another which will give us a clue. Larklin nodded and shrugged his shoulders to loosen them. Let's be off then. Double quote. The first ship was not far. And we were able to speak with a crew member though we could not gain passage to it as the guard on duty seemed absolutely incorruptible. The second and third we had more luck with and searched both thoroughly. Holmes was able to collect several samples from the holds, the engine rooms and the coal room. In the second Larkland led us to a corner in the hold and pointed out a small mark in the wall. That's it Mr. Holmes, Doctor. There on the wall was scratched the symbol of a small albatross with its wings upheld as though about to burst into flight. Hum, Holmes ran his thumb over it and smiled slightly they would not think to paint the inside of the ship. Well done Larklin, this should add some color to your account, Watson. I ignored the jibe about my writing and while Holmes was crawling about on the floor walked with Larklin as he pointed out the layout of the ship, and we found that it matched exactly the plans of the ship it had once been. The fourth, Larklin's own Beshima, was no longer in port, and though Holmes cursed how luck I had to admit that I was rather relieved, for the cost of information and bribery had lightened both of our pockets, I had eaten nothing all day, and it was past four o'clock. We strode back from the ducks in the late afternoon sun, Larklin with his hands deep in his pockets, his head lifted to the sky in meditation, Holmes going through the samples he had taken and muttering to himself. I moved into the street to call us a cab, and Larklin came to join me breaking out of his reverie. I can see why you follow him, doctor. I looked at him, somewhat puzzled by the statement. Pardon? Larklin smiled and jerked his head towards Holmes, M.R. Holmes. I can see why you are so devoted to him. You two have a strong friendship, Doctor. Holmes is a man that bears following and you, I think if he called for it you would give your life for him. I smiled at that, for it was true in every respect. Holmes had not been mistaken in Larkin's perceptiveness. That is true, but I think it's safe to say that he would do the same for me. Larkin nodded, staring up at the sky. Vows made in storms are not forgotten in port. What? When a man is at sea Doctor, he has to be honest, the sea makes him to be. The sea, the world is such a violent place that you are forced to make promises and hold loyalties so that you have something to anchor yourself to. Vows made in storms are always honest. He looked at me again. Your friendship is the same thing. 
You and Mr. Holmes have weathered many storms and your loyalties have become something more like a sacred trust. It is a fine thing. I stared at him with a new eye. Was there no limit to this man, that he was a poet as well? Thank you, was all I could think to say before Holmes strode up, breaking the stillness. You have been a great help, Mr. Larklin. I hope to see you again. Larklin shook his hand. A pleasure, Mr. Holmes, doctor. He smiled again, met my still startled gaze and strode off, whistling some seaman shanty. Holmes smiled after him, clapping me on the back and striding towards the street to fetch us a cab. Come along, Watson. I felt my own smile creep onto my face and followed, the seaman's words ingrained in my mind. Vows made in storms. Chapter 5, In the Offing. Chapter 5, In the Offing. In the Offing, nautical term meaning something is about to happen. Watson. Oh, better far to live and die. Under the brave black flag I fly. Then play a sanctimonious part. With a pirate head and a pirate here. Watson. I swear, if I have to hear one of those songs just one once more. I am sorry, I replied sheepishly, trying desperately to not smile in the face of Holmes's irritation, but the thing keeps going through my head. Yes, and now, thanks to you, it is going through mine. Ugh. I settled back in the cab silently, pretending to be hurt by his curt words, and a moment later I saw him peeking at me to see if I were really miffed. I stared out the window. Watson? What? Are you, annoyed with me? Not half as annoyed as you are with me, evidently, I said with a grin, finally looking back at him. When he realized I had been teasing him mercilessly, he scowled at me in only a half-jesting mood and sent me a withering glare, which I calmly returned, his mood's wings no longer frightened me like they used to. A minute later he started to drum his fingers unconsciously on the side of the cab, and I noticed with a deal of amusement that they were tapping out the tune I had been so unconsciously humming. Evidently my companion suddenly noticed the fact as well, for he sat bolt upright in the cab, glaring at me again as he ceased the tapping. This time I could not repress my grin, and we both laughed a little ruefully, glancing out and seeing we were nearly back to Baker Street. I hope Mrs. Hudson has dinner waiting on us, I remarked as we got out of the cab, although, if she chanced to see that sitting room, we may have to be fending for ourselves. Well, that's all right, we wouldn't have had a place to eat it anyhow. Holmes said breezily, opening the hall door. And I suppose I am the one that shall have to clean it all up while you pace around tonight, supposedly thinking about the case I asked as we climbed the stairs. Well, how is it, Holmes, that you always happen to be deep in thought just when cleaning and filing needs to be done I asked, half seriously. I am always thinking, Watson, he replied serenely. I gave a rather undignified snort as I opened the sitting room, indeed, the mess he had made looked ten times worse, now that I knew I was going to have to be cleaning it up tonight. I shoved the door open with force, because the stack of scrapbooks was still blocking the entrance. Holmes had entered his bedroom and was now tossing things about in his room. What are you doing, Holmes? Can you come in here, Watson? I heard him bellow. Sighing, I obeyed and found him changing out of his suit into the rough clothing of a dockhand worker. You're going out again, I cried in dismay. It is necessary. Watson, he said, throwing his tie onto the bed and rummaging for a woolen muffler instead. But, I need information, he replied, seating himself at his dressing table and beginning to apply a disguise. This was the first time I had watched him make such a transformation since his return last month, and I sat down in a chair to curiously watch the change in my friend. May I come? I asked hesitantly. No, he said shortly, 
applying a reddish cream to his face to give it a wind-blown appearance. He must have seen my countenance fall in his dresser mirror, for he amended his statement hastily. It is not that I do not want you along, Watson, it is just that. That I have no acting ability whatsoever, I finished ruefully. That is not true, Watson, he replied with a sudden vehemence, you simply lack the necessary background knowledge and all the jargon that goes with it to be a convincing sailor. Thespianism has nothing to do with it. That mollified me a little, and I did know that he was right. But this was the first time he had gone on part of an investigation without me since his return, and I still was a little hurt by the fact, even if I knew it was necessary. Holmes was very meticulously darkening his eyebrows and adding some extra bushiness to them with false black hair, and I saw his grey eyes flit up to my face in the mirror. My feelings must, as he had once said, be quite readable on my features, for his gaze softened, and he paused what he was doing to turn round and look at me, as I was sitting there backwards on the chair my arms resting on the back of it and my chin on my arm. I am sorry, Watson, but there is no alternative, he said gently, and to be brutally honest, I rather would like to have you with me. But it cannot be helped. I nodded, for I knew he was right. We had no time to waste in this case, and I knew we needed information as quickly as possible. This was the quickest method by which to gain it. As he saw the resignation in my eyes, Holmes nodded reassuringly and turned round to his dressing table once again. I looked on curiously as he somehow darkened the fine wrinkles round his eyes to make himself appear slightly older and added a reddish makeup to his cheeks, giving the appearance of being a regular pub frequenter. The transformation became complete when he wound a muffler around his neck, donned a filthy old pea jacket and a cloth cap, and adopted a lazy, sprawling swagger, very different from his normal rigid, proper posture. Well, Captain, all shipshape and Bristol fashion he asked in ridiculous accent pirouetting for my approval. I laughed with admiration. Quite, Holmes, I said, looking him up and down, I scarcely would know you. Scarcely? Whatever happened to good heavens, Holmes, that's amazing he asked, looking miffed. Oh, come on. You're mistaking me for that gullible chap in the Strand magazine, I replied, letting my eyes twinkle at him despite my disappointment in not being allowed to tag along with him. He threw back his head and laughed clapping me on the shoulder as he passed. I smirked and followed him into the sitting room, tripping over the books he had still left in a pile there. Oh, I see the real reason you will not let me go tonight, I said suddenly, staring round me at the litter, you want me to stay here and clean this mess up. Precisely, Holmes said absently, digging through his desk drawer, I, no, that is not it his distracted mind had finally registered what I had said. It was my turn to laugh at his flushed face. What are you looking for now? The list of ships Larkin gave us, I had it out this morning and tossed it somewhere, he muttered, gazing helplessly about him at the chaos he had created. Well, good luck in finding it sometime in the next fortnight, I snorted, picking up a stack of books and beginning to reshelf them on my desk. He snickered and began digging through a pile of papers on the couch, looking for all the world like a dog hunting for a buried bone. The mental image made me laugh again and in consequence I did not hear the door open and was not aware of our estimable landlady's approach. That is, until she shrieked loud enough to be heard on the Baker Street underground. I dropped my dictionary with a crash and Holmes yelped in fright, for he was in the direct line of fire from the doorway. I nearly laughed as he ducked behind the couch for protection, leaving me to try to calm the distraught woman. M.R.S. Hudson, I promise. M.R. Holmes. Never in all my life. M.R.S. Hudson, if you will just. Doctor, I shall not. 
MRS. Hudson I nearly shouted, I am remaining behind while Holmes goes out tonight and I promise you I shall have it all cleaned up before midnight. The illused woman glared at me with a menace I did not remember her possessing. See that you do, doctor, she stated, sending a chilling glow at Sherlock Holmes, who was busily trying to hide behind the sofa. I shall, Mrs. Hudson, I said soothingly, trying to forcefully guide the woman out the door, I shall start on it right away. HNPH, she gave a rather unladylike snort and flounced down the seventeen steps in rather a huff. I shut the door and breathed a sigh of relief. You so owe me tickets to the Mikado for that, Holmes, I said warningly. He moaned. I am not sure which would be worse, eviction from the flat or sitting through another operetta my friend said, looking up miserably at me from his still crouching position on the floor. I am very likely to not get dinner tonight because of you, I said, putting my hands on my hips and glaring at him as he began to once again root for that map. I am sure your charm with the fair sex will get you something before the night is over, Watson, he replied carelessly, flinging several files off to the side, you know that she does not remain angry for long, and, ha! Huh? He dove under the couch, his long legs sticking out in a very undignified position, and a moment later he emerged with the very damaged list. Stuffing it into the pocket of his peacoat, he retrieved his cloth cap and took a final look in the mirror before preparing to set off. You had better remember everything, Holmes, because you shall have to dictate notes to me when you come back, I warned, following him to the door. He smiled, clapping a hand on my shoulder. I shall, Watson. Don't wait up on me, for I could be late. I just looked at him incredulously, and he laughed again. All right, I shall try to not be very late, he replied with a grin starting to descend the stairs. And be careful, Holmes I called after him suddenly. I heard him laugh and say something about my worrying worse than Mrs. Hudson, and then a moment later the hall door shut behind him. The corners of my mouth turned upward in a small smile that stayed even as I picked my way through the sitting room, which now resembled a battlefield, and peeked out the window. Holmes had already adopted that swaggering gait that made me laugh to watch, as he started off down the street. I watched till he was out of sight, and then with a sigh I began to clean up the litter that was strewn everywhere in the room, starting with the books and journals. I picked up my books and reshelved them, stacked Holmes's scrapbooks back on the file cabinet shelves, and put the older journals into the proper drawers. I rolled up the maps that were lying on the floor and stuffed them behind the silver set on the sideboard for now, leaving the one Holmes had pinned to the wall, better the map to be seen than gaping holes in the wallpaper from his pocket knife. Then I started on the files, sorting the papers by year and each pile by month, tying them in neat bundles with twine and finally sorting them into the appropriate drawers. Halfway through, as Holmes had predicted, our good landlady did indeed relent and brought me up a very nice supper, which I was intensely grateful to take a break and consume. I left the pudding on the table with the coffee until I had done with the files, and as I neared the end, I saw with a deep shock that I had been at this for nearly five hours. It was almost ten o'clock. I left the pile of papers that seemed to be from Holmes's three-year absence in a neat stack on his desk, not knowing if he would want to file them with the rest of our things, and then I poured myself a cup of coffee, took my pudding dish and, Holmes did not know I owned it, but I did, a copy of a previous Strand magazine and collapsed in my armchair, severely exhausted by my tidying efforts. I made a mental note to myself to see about changing the lock on the file cabinet to eliminate further possible destruction scenes like this one in future and turned to the page where my own story was set forth in neat print. The illustrations in the periodical made me laugh, for Holmes is especially were rather not flattering to him, 
and I settled back comfortably with a smile for a cosy night by the fire, awaiting my friend's return from his own private little adventure. Chapter 6, Cut and Run. Chapter 6, Cut and Run. Cut and Run, nautical term meaning to leave without ceremony. Larklin. In answer to the request of Dr. Watson, I have written my part and memoirs of this little adventure so he can add them to his own account. I watched the two of them climb off into their cab, laughing and clapping each other on the back, and could not keep a smile from my face. The world seemed far less harsh with such a friendship in it, and I could not help feeling light after spending some time with them. I returned to Harry's with the expression still securely on my mug and he looked at me puzzled, but said nothing as I went back to work to make the most of the daylight us left. It was a little after nine when Harry finally got up from his desk and he snatched my attention from my work. He nodded to me, speaking little as always and pulled on his coat, heading for the door, leaving his keys for me to lock up. I had a good stretch for the chair was hard and along with the stiffness that had settled on me I was sore from the bouts of boxing I had done during the afternoon. Especially the round with Holmes, I thought, smiling again as I touched the wicked bruise on my jaw. The man was as thin as a pole to be sure, but he could pack a wallop, and was as quick as a riptide. I had learnt a definite lesson in humility. I secured and left the shop then turned to face the dark street, pulling my jacket tighter about me as a cold draught from the river blew up through the thick cotton. It was a hard night, not like the last. The air was alive as it would break into a gale. I made my way through the near-deserted streets to a small pub not a few blocks away. A rush of warm, odorous air met me, and I felt the chill creep away as I looked round at the familiar liveliness and noise of seamen finished with their day's work and enjoying their drink. I navigated my way to the aft of the room and sat myself at the table, avoiding the mess that the last fellow had left behind him. One of the girls, a pretty thing, a little younger than the others came to ask me my business. I smiled at her asked her for the evening meal and watched as her cheeks turned a scarlet shade, then she skipped off. I will take this moment in my narrative to set plain a point for the readers of Dr. Watson who may hold certain questions about my character. A man cannot help but see and appreciate a pretty girl but I have never been enough of a cat to act on such feelings, especially when the lass is young and knows nothing of the world. I was married once, and the memories of those times are enough for me for the time being. She returned a bit later with a steaming meal, which I dug eagerly into, for I had eaten nothing before or after the boxing bouts. When finished I ordered a pint and settled back in my seat to watch the merry-making of the room. And that is when I saw him, standing with his back to a wall, leaning heavily on the counter his eyes peering about him from underneath a pair of bushy black brows. He looked like every other seaman, with a weather-worn face and dressed in the worn, salt-stained clothes of our class. His expression was brooding and foreboding and he carried himself like a man bent with too many cares for the world. But there was something about him, some glint in his eyes or slyness in his manner that made me dislike him. He was either out to cause trouble or was in too much trouble to cause it. It seemed I was not the only one who thought so, for three. Hard-looking coves were watching him as well as I the fellow had not been there long, for his glass was nearly full, and as I watched he pulled a slow draught and deliberately sloshed some over the sides. I felt a cold fear down my back at that, he had not come to drink, he had business of some kind, and whatever it was his followers did not like it. Their own drinks were not even touched, they could only have been following him. I sighed and tried to scrub out the exhaustion by rubbing my face with my hand. I was tired and bruised and my supper had only just settled in my stomach. But my cursed curiosity had settled on the man and I would not rest easy until I found out what was up. I took another draught from my drink, then rose to my feet, 
clutching the glass, and made my way to the bar, as casual as I could, to lean against the wall not far from where the fellow was. Neither he nor the coves appeared to have noticed. A few moments passed without trouble and then the barkeep came back round again and the fellow coughed and subtly slid a coin toward him over the surface of the wood. The barkeep, with an expression as innocent as a newborn babe laid his cloth over the piece and leaned toward the source of his newfound wealth. What can I do ye for he said pleasantly, in a tone of voice that was too low to draw the crowd's attention but not too subtle as to appear sneaky. The seaman leaned in a little as well and growled in an accent that was faintly Irish. I've just got back into port, he said and I was teamy to gentlemen eh, seems he has a connection with the Lansing line, said he could set me up on one o' their ships. Don't suppose ye've seen anyone like that? I shifted a bit at that, as it was too much a coincidence to sit comfortable with me. What seal look like? Big, burly, has a beard a shade what would make a fire jealous. Name of Wilson. The knot in my stomach uncurled a touch, for I knew no one of that description. The barkeeper didn't either for he shook his head and picked up his cloth, leaving not a trace of the coin. Sorry, mate, no one like that air. But if I was you I'd count myself lucky. There's nothing good'll come from the work in for the lancing line. The seaman's eyes flashed and he gave the barkeeper sharper look. Why do ye say that? The barkeep cast a guilty glance over at the nearest group of patrons and lowered his voice a touch. Haven't you heard? There's some at O's got it out for the lancing, not three o' the ships leave port and one of em is cursed never to set in again. There's three gone down only these past two weeks. Three, in two weeks the seaman's voice was hard with skepticism. I don't believe it. The barkeep frowned, bothered that his knowledge wasn't appreciated. Believe what you like, but there's a good number of men gone missing with those ships, and there's some what say the Friesland will be next. The bushy, black eyebrows flew up toward the bloke's cap. Friesland. I, mate, the Friesland, the largest ship the line as yet, not one o' their cargo ships this one's a passenger. She's headed out to India in a few days. And you mark my word she'll never come back. And what makes you think it'll be the Friesland? Where'd you hear that, eh? Why, you see those three gentlemen there, the barkeep, whom I now believed to be one worst idiots I had ever encountered, and with a flapping gub to boot, pointed right at the group. There was two o' them in air only yesterday, and they was talking about it right as rain. Don't blame em really. The seaman had gone stiff and turned his head a fraction of an inch to look at the group. If he had it known he was being followed he knew now and he was a fool if he stuck around here any longer. And I would be a bigger fool if I let him slip away. Whoever this bloke was, he knew about the mystery and would be of great use to Holmes and the doctor. Even as I thought this the fellow put another coin down on the counter and began to make his way toward the door. The group at the table made no sign that they noticed, but that did not mean they weren't watching. I would have to get to him first. I let him get halfway to the door before I set down my glass and a few coins of my own, then I followed. The night had grown lighter for the moon was out at last and nearly full, casting the dockyards of London in a silver light that seemed eerie in this situation. I stayed by the entrance as the man disappeared round a house, and then I went the same path myself. For several blocks I was able to keep him in sight, and he led me quite a ways away from the pub through the winding streets. I lost sight of him at last as he disappeared into a dark alley and I paused, it was not the smartest thing for a man to do, but on the other hand I could not let such a prize slip through my hands. I pulled my jacket closer round me and made my way forward. Halfway through something caught me at the legs and I went pitching forward. 
A pair of steely hands gripped me by the collar and tried to turn me over. I struggled, sending a blow towards the bloke but I could see fairly little. The hands closed over my throat and I gripped a pair of thin sinewy wrists. Who are you? I gasped out, perhaps I could make him spill, if it came down to a fight I was confident I could beat him. At my word the man froze and with a curse he released his grip, shook his hands free and took off back the way we had come. I scrambled to get to my feet and follow. He had already disappeared and I cursed myself liberally, for there was no way to trace him. I could only backtrack and hope that I spotted some sign. I was halfway back to the pub when I was halted by a sound, a groan. There to my left was a man curled up at the base of a set of stone steps. I turned him on his back and with a thrill I recognized it as one of the three men from the pub, they were after him as well and the tricky little devil must have taken this one out, for there was a bad bruise on the fellow's head. Cussing the hard, cobblestone street that left no chance of footprints I took off down the side alley where the unconscious man lay. I continued on this course for a few minutes when I was at last I was met with another sound. Grunts and scuffling, the sound of a struggle. I stopped before a small yard that stood in back of an old storehouse, three figures struggled on the inside. My quarry was holding his own, keeping back his opponents with his fists, dodging and weaving and... The same thrill of recognition I had had when seeing the Beshama struck me now and I am not ashamed to say that my jaw dropped and stayed like that long enough for a horsefly to make its way in and out again. I had seen this man and his fighting style before, I had fought him only this morning. And I stood frozen to the spot in shock. The doctor's stories had described Holmes's skill in play acting, and it seemed that, like with the boxing, I had underestimated him. His attackers were getting frustrated and were already bruised with the detective's blows, even as I watched his fist sent one of them sprawling. The fellow landed on his back, his teeth set in rage and embarrassment, he reached into his belt, and I saw a flash of light as the moon reflected off a metallic surface. My shock and horror at the sight of the object galled me into action. I sprinted forward even as Holmes sent the second man back and turned to meet the rush of the first. Holmes caught his fist, and I saw his eyes widen as he saw too late the blade going for his belly. The detective twisted, and the blade cut into his side. His thin body recoiled and he let out a harsh shout of pain. His attacker shoved him down towards the ground and landed atop him. And then I reached them. And broke the man's face. I'd have met men in the east who can break wood and blocks of ice and stone with their fists. My own came close to bringing the same fate to the man's skull. He shrieked in pain and fell back clutching at the broken bones of his cheek. I turned as his partner came at me next and met his wild attack with several well-placed blows that disabled him, then I brought a left hook to his jaw that dropped him like a stone. I straightened, breathing heavily, ready to give the same treatment to the man who had stabbed Holmes, but the bloke had fled knife and all. Perhaps I could find him, for in my mind I wanted nothing more than to hunt him down, he could not have got in far. A muffled groan brought me back to myself and I turned to see Mr. Holmes on his back, trying to push himself up with his left hand, his right clutching at his stomach. The fall had knocked the hat off his head, his black locks were disheveled and his now pale face was a mask of pain. I hurriedly knelt beside him. And he gave me a rather pinched smile. Mr. Larklin. Sorry to call upon you so soon. With this remark the rage against his attackers faded and I felt another sort of anger. You bloody fool. What do you mean drawing this sort of attention to yourself? Have you no consideration for the doctor? My voice was harsh with strain, but I was glad to find that my hands held steady. 
Holmes took a shallow gasp and made to answer me but just then his eyes were rolled up into his head and he would have fallen back had I not caught him. He was shaking from reaction to the wound and he was already pale. I pulled his unresisting hand from his stomach and gently pulled back his coat, the wound looked bad, but I had no knowledge of such things. His shirt was already soaked, he was losing blood too quickly. I pulled the scarf from around his neck and pressed it against the wound then wrapped the coat around him. He needed help. Holmes, where is the nearest hospital I asked patting his face lightly, I don't know London. You must have help. The detective shivered slightly and his eyes refocused. Baker Street, his voice was a rasp. No, Mr. Holmes. You need medical help, I will get you there but you must direct me. Holmes shook his head, no, Watson, I need Watson, Baker Street. You stubborn son of a camel. I muttered this to myself, but I understood. He needed to go home to be safe, like a wounded animal, and who'd better to care for him than his greatest friend? All right Holmes, Baker Street it is. Come with me, I pulled his right arm around my shoulder and raised him slowly to his feet. He came, but when he was halfway up he let out a sharp cry of agony and tried to curl in on himself. I bent and caught hold of his legs, sweeping his thin form up into my arms, but even this caused him hurt. He choked and clenched his jaw, biting back a scream. I carried him from the courtyard and up the streets of the dockyards toward the main roads, we would find a cab. Holmes came back to himself and shifted in my grip. I tightened my hold. Stay still, Holmes you can't walk, it will damage the wound. And Dr. Watson would have my head. The detective chuckled weakly before relapsing once more into a moan. My rapid pace was jarring him painfully, but I didn't dare to slow, the bleeding was too heavy. At last we reached the city itself and I began in the direction of Baker Street, praying for the sight of a cab. Holmes had gone limp in my hold, he clutched at the wound with both hands, and his breath came hard and fast through his nose. He was clenching his jaw again, biting back the screams. His brow furrowed as he fought the pain with his iron will. At last the sound of trotting hooves reached my ears and I looked up to see a cab on its way toward us. It was occupied by the figure inside of it. I would take care of that. I set Holmes gently on the ground then as the horse drew near I stepped out beside it waving my arms. Whoa there. The beast whinnied and skived violently, its driver struggled to get it under control. I pulled open the door and an indignant, finely dressed gentleman glared at me. What do you think you are doing he spluttered, his bushy side burns bristling. I have a wounded man, he needs help, I'm commandeering your cab. I refuse. I wasn't asking. I took hold of his fur-lined coat and hauled him out into the street and hurried back to Holmes and lifted him, my stomach squirming at the amount of blood on the man's shirt and the half-sob that escaped his lips. His hands clenched convulsively at my jacket and I carried him to the cab, lying him on the seat and climbing in after him. 221 B Baker Street, man, and hurry I shouted to the cabbie who after a startled look turned his horse. I bent over Holmes, pressing on the wound myself causing him to cry out again and try to squirm out from under my hands. I pushed him back down and wrapped the coat more snugly around him as he spoke, Larklin, Watson will, Watson. I'll get you to him, Holmes, I promised, rest easy. He moaned and turned his head, losing consciousness at last. Pirate the former occupant screamed at us. I stuck my head out of the front of the cab and called back. Close enough. Then the cab pulled away towards Baker Street and Dr. Watson. Chapter 7 Middle Watch. Chapter 7, Middle Watch. Middle Watch, 
nautical term for the period of watch on a ship that goes from midnight to four in the morning? Watson. I was abruptly awakened by the violent ringing of the doorbell, staring sleepily round me, I realized I had dozed off in front of the fire, exhausted with my cleaning efforts. The bell rang again, a very rude, long pull, and I glanced at the clock in annoyance. After eleven, I had only been asleep for around an hour. The bell rang frantically yet again, and I finally got up in great irritation, assuming that Mrs. Hudson had gone to bed. Grumbling under my breath, I stomped rather in a temper down the seventeen steps and went to the front door, ready to give whoever was ringing it at this ungodly hour the dressing down of a lifetime, and flung it open with rather too much force. And then my heart seemed to stop beating for a moment, dropping directly into my shoes as an icy cold wave of fear gripped it with a deathly hold. Larklin. What? What the devil happened I managed to gasp out, absolutely terrified, grabbing the unconscious form of Sherlock Holmes as Larkland's grip on his limp body started to slip. Oof. Attacked, doctor, the man gasped, releasing his hold as I picked up my friend's thin form easily in the fashion I used to carry wounded men off the Afghan battlefield, three men, on the docks, knives, left side, fainted in the cab. Holmes was breathing, shallowly, I could tell that at least as I raced as fast as my burden would allow up to Holmes's bedroom, kicking the door open as I went. Get up here, man, I may need your help I called frantically over my shoulder, my fright at not knowing how badly Holmes was hurt coloring my words with unaccustomed harshness. Where's your bag, doctor he bellowed on his way up. On my desk in the sitting room I called back, breathing hard under Holmes's dead weight. I laid Holmes gently on his bed and turned the gas up and at once felt a sickening sense of nausea as I saw the amount of blood on his jacket and shirt. My hands were shaking so badly that I could barely unbutton and remove his blood-soaked clothing, and Larklin came in halfway through, brusquely pushing me aside, and did it for me. He then dropped my bag on the bed beside me and vanished into our sitting room, returning in just a moment with a glass of brandy in his hand, which he wordlessly handed to me. I had no time to wonder at his actions but swallowed it down willing myself to get a grip on my nurse and help my friend. I pulled the shirt away gently from where it had been pressed against the wound, by Holmes himself apparently, judging from the amount of blood on his hands, and recoiled at the sight of the nasty gash on his left side. I swallowed hard and forced myself to treat Holmes as merely another patient, not as the most important person in the world to me, and in consequence I categorized the wound as being a deep grazing blow, thankfully it had not touched any bones or vital organs. Providence had been watching out for both of us. But he had lost a serious amount of blood, and his pulse was very weak. I forced calm into my voice as I began to sterilize their wound and speak to our client. What happened, Larklin, from the beginning I asked, cleaning the gash with disinfectant. Holmes remained completely unconscious, for which I was grateful. I was in a pub there by Thriver, Doctor, when he came in asking a bunch of questions about ships and so on. Bleed in good disguise of his, that one is, I didn't recognize him at all, the man said, helpfully pouring water into a basin for me as I began to stitch the wound. And I thought he was rather a suspicious piece of work, asking that many questions, so I followed him after he left, the midshipman continued. He got tangled with the wrong men asking the wrong questions at the wrong time, and got into one rare fight. Nasty bunch of sailors, that. How many, did you say I asked, concentrating on the stitches? Three. Doctor. If they had entered those knives, I rather believe he would have taken all three of them out, too, the man said, watching my work. 
Larkland went on to tell me what Holmes had found out about some steamship in the Lansing line, information he had gotten while in the pub, but I was really not listening to him in the least. I finished stitching the wound and bathed the whole thing once more in antiseptic, I was very worried about the sailor's knife involved, for it was in all probability extremely dirty. At the stinging touch of the disinfectant, Holmes moaned and began to stir uneasily. Easy, old chap, I murmured, patting his shoulder reassuringly as he tried to move, his eyelids fluttering. Watson his voice was merely a faint whisper. Yes, my dear fellow, I said, my voice shaking badly, whether from fright or relief, I was not sure which, you mustn't talk now. Holmes's grey eyes finally flickered open, and after a vacant moment they settled on my pale, worried features, and I saw a small smile cross his face. Sorry, Watson, he whispered weakly, trying to focus. S-H-H-H, Holmes, you have to rest now, I said soothingly, there is nothing to be sorry about. Yes, his weak voice was only a whisper once more, sorry, told you, I would, be careful. I stared at him incredulously, tears stinging at the back of my eyes, after being knifed, he was mainly concerned about causing me to worry. I should never fully understand that man. Watson, I he stopped with a gasp as a sudden pain shot through his body, and I gripped his hand in both of mine as it clenched convulsively. Holmes, you have lost a good deal of blood, and you must rest now, I said, wishing my voice would stop its confounded trembling. His eyes opened halfway and he looked over at Larkland, who nodded encouragingly, and then he closed them once more, his hand going limp in mine a minute later as he either fell asleep or lost consciousness again. I took a long, shaky breath and looked at the seaman. How bad is it, doctor? He has lost a large amount of blood, will be rather weak for a day or two, I replied, beginning to clean the stains off Holmes's hands, and I am very fearful of an infection. If none sets in, he should be fine in a short time. Hi, that is good news, the man said with relief, handing me a roll of bandages and assisting me in wrapping them round Holmes's thin frame to protect the stitches. Thank you for aiding him, Larklan, I said quietly when we had finished pulling up the coverlet over Holmes's motionless form, I hate to think, to think what would have happened had you not been there to help. My voice shook with lingering fear on that last statement, and the man nodded at me. I think you might need another drink, doctor, for it looks as if you will behave in a long night. I sighed. Indeed. Please, help yourself to one as well. The seaman nodded, disappearing into the sitting room as I finished cleaning Holmes's hands. He returned a moment later with two glasses, one of which he handed to me. I, I surely do wish I had seen the trouble sooner, doctor, and been able to catch the fellows, he said, looking down at Holmes's still form with knitted brows. If you had not stopped to help him, Larklan, he might have bled to death right there, I returned, downing my drink in one gulp, I shall be forever in your debt for that. The sailor's blue eyes met mine with that same steady, honest gaze he had given me earlier in the evening. As I said, Doctor, remember the storms, it is then that the greatest promises are made, and the greatest friends are found, the man said, his words bringing a smile to my face, for I recognized the hidden writer's potential. You are a wise man, Larklan. Hum. That's as may be, our client replied wryly, setting his glass down and thanking me. He picked up his hat from the table and shook my hand after donning it. Thank you again, I replied quietly as Larkin tipped the hat to me and went off down the stairs. I washed my hands in a clean basin of water and put away my medical supplies, taking out my thermometer and placing it Holmes's mouth. He had no fever as of yet, but that meant nothing. I should have to observe him carefully. 
I put my bag down beside the bed and pulled up a chair, then going out to the sitting room to retrieve a couple books and a pillow from the couch, preparing to keep a long vigil over my friend. I stared moodily at the pages of my journal for over an hour, idly doodling in the margins of the book, unable to focus my thoughts enough to write anything. I was still scared petrified, the cold shock of fear still holding me in its grip. I had only just gotten Holmes back from the dead a month ago, and now the thought that if the injury had been three inches further left it would have taken him from me yet again terrified me beyond description. I knew I should not be able to stand a second loss such as my first in 1891 I physically and emotionally would have broken. Three inches. That is all it would have taken to lose him. Three inches. I dropped the pencil, my fingers trembling too badly to hold onto it properly, and lowered my head into my shaking hands. Three inches, that was all. Was it possible that life could hang from so slender a thread? But for the grace of God, Holmes could have met his death tonight on the London docks, snuffed out without a second's hesitation by drunken sailors. My thoughts were interrupted by a sound from the bed, and I quickly lifted my head, and was immediately alarmed to see that Holmes's face was flushed, and he was moving about uneasily and shivering. My anxiety deepened as I laid my hand on his perspiring forehead, yes, as I had feared, he was running a fever, and it was only two hours after the injury. I hastily got the thermometer back out and took his temperature once more 100.3. This was not good. He was restless but not conscious, obviously in great discomfort. I put another blanket over him and then fetched a pitcher of water and a clean cloth. Dipping it in the water, I wrung it out and gently laid it on his forehead, and I was glad to see him quiet somewhat and stop the agitated movement. I watched anxiously through the next hour my alarm growing increasingly greater as the fever climbed. After an hour, the wound on his side was red and inflamed, and when I cleaned it once again with antiseptic, he awoke with a choked cry of pain. Holmes, lie still I said unsteadily as he tried feebly to push my hand away. His grey eyes were looking at me vacantly, bright with the fever, and the look reminded me with a shiver of that evening when I thought him to be a victim of Culverton Smith's dread disease. I shook off the chilling fear and sat on the edge of the bed by him. Watson? Where am I? What, what happened he asked weakly, obviously disoriented. You were attacked on the docks, Holmes, and your wound has become infected, I said gently, now you are ill, and you must lie quietly. He looked at me in confusion, his face flushed, his breathing shallow. I laid my hand again on his head, and drew it back on the instant in fearful shock, he was burning up with fever, the radiating heat so intense it frightened me. I took his temperature again 102.6. It was rising swiftly, far too swiftly, and it was now only 2.30 a.m. Holmes's eyes had closed, but he opened them again with a cry of pain as I started to disinfect the inflamed injury again and he tried feebly to move away. The fact that I was causing him such pain drove a dagger into my own heart, but I set my jaw and continued, motivated by the flush on his normally pale face and the way his eyes were unfocused and dark. There was a sheen of sweat on his gaunt features as he squeezed his eyes tightly shut to deal with the stinging pain of the antiseptic. By the time I had finished, he was shivering even under the blankets, even though it was rather hot in the room, and I piled another afghan on top of him, watching his face worriedly. His breathing was becoming alarmingly shallow now, his perspiring face pinched and drawn as he curled up on his ninja side in a miserable ball. I re-wet the cloth and put it back on his head, and his eyelids fluttered open for a moment. I heard a murmur, thank you, Watson, before they closed once more, and again I was dumbfounded by the man's unusual consideration for me, even when he was desperately ill. 
I put the thermometer once again in his mouth, timed it, and removed it, looking at the level of mercury in the glass. 103.4. This was fast becoming critical. I glanced at the time to 45 a.m. I set the instrument down with a trembling hand and began to fill the water basin with fresh, cold water, getting several towels from the hall closet. As the first one, chilled with the water, made contact with Holmes's skin, he gasped aloud and his eyes flew open. Too, too cold, Watson, he gasped, his eyes glazed with the fever, shivering violently. I know, Holmes, I said soothingly, continuing to apply the cold compresses to his neck and chest. And no, he protested feebly, trying weakly to push my hand away. Holmes, you have a fever, I said, my voice shaking as I felt the heat emanating from him, and we have to bring it down. The quiet whimper he made as I got too near his injury nearly made me lose my composure completely, but I gritted my teeth and continued applying the cold compresses. I once again took his temperature, and swallowed hard when I read it. 3.35 a.m. 104.8. A few tenths of a degree further, and it would be very, very dangerous. I had to bring that fever down, and I had to do it now. I began to work desperately, trying everything I knew to try, my alarm growing by leaps and bounds every minute that passed. Within a quarter of an hour, Holmes was rambling, delirious, his eyes fixed upon me with no recognition whatsoever. 4.20 a.m. 105.5. I listened as I worked desperately over the helpless form of my dearest friend, as his overactive fevered mind conjured up every conceivable villain from his past, some I recognized and many more that I did not. I tried to quiet him as he once more fought to kill Grimesby Royal at Swampada, blocking his swinging arms as he attempted to strike the snake he evidently saw in front of him. I held him down as he battled Professor Moriarty at the Riken Park Falls yet again, tears filling my eyes at his delirious ramblings. I heard my own name mentioned time after time, but his fevered eyes never realized I was there. Some names he muttered I did not recognize, and all I could do was to work without ceasing to bring his fever down, alternating the cold compresses with warm ones, trying to get him to sweat the thing out. 5.30 a.m. 105.8. I broke into a cold sweat myself, it was climbing still. Slower than before, but it was still climbing. I have not, throughout my life, been as much of a praying man as I should, but I swear on all I hold here that I was praying that dark night, like I never had before. Holmes muttered something unintelligible, and then his eyes opened, looking through me blankly, unseeing. Lie still, Holmes, I said shakily as he tried to move away from my touch, flinching as I checked the wound. It looked like perhaps the redness had subsided somewhat. I prayed so. Holmes said something I could not understand, he was incoherent. 6.10 a.m. 106. I watched, petrified, as I pressed another cold compress onto his head, his breathing become even shallower, coming in short gasps now as the fever ravaged his body. Holmes, I said, talking aloud while I worked desperately over him, do not give up on me now. I did not get you back from the dead only to lose you so soon, don't you dare give up. You have to fight this. My voice was shaking and my own words were as disjointed and rambling as his, but I cared nothing for that. I continued to restrain him as his fevered imaginings grew violent again and I continued to apply the compresses, all the while pleading with him to fight. I checked his temperature again, but it was the same. Thank God it had not risen at least. I continued to frantically apply those compresses without resting, desperately trying to lower that fever. But after fifteen more minutes and it had not gone down, I was beside myself with worry. 
Holmes was now barely conscious, drifting in and out of delirium, not even able to drink the water I attempted to get him to try. He shivered uncontrollably and tried to pull the blankets up, and I had to keep him from doing so, his weak pleading protests ringing in my ears heart-wrenchingly. His breathing became even more shallow, if that were possible, until it looked as if he were barely drawing air at all, and I was frantic with panic, there was no more I could do. I could only continue to do what I had been doing, continue to work and pray. I glanced at the clock again, I had been working over him for over seven hours straight. And it had done absolutely no good. I sank down exhaustedly into the chair beside Holmes's bed, watching helplessly as his chest rose and fell with every shallow breath he managed to take, occasionally moving a little sluggishly or moaning in his sleep. I was shaking all over, from fear or exhaustion, more likely both and I put my head down in my hands once more, trying to get a grip on myself, praying and praying desperately for a miracle to happen and for the fever to recede. I could do nothing else, it was out of my hands now. How long I stayed in that position I am not sure, something like a half hour, because I knew nothing more until suddenly I felt a tentative hand on my knee and a hoarse voice whispering my name, and I jerked my head up with a strangled gasp. Holmes was awake, looking at me with concern written upon his sick, haggard face, but it was no longer that dangerously flushed color but rather his normal pallor. My breath caught in my throat as I hastily sat on the bed and laid a hand on his forehead, hardly daring to hope. But it was so, although he felt a little warm still, it was no longer that high dangerous fever. It had finally broken, the crisis was over. 6.50 a.m. He would be fine. How, how do you feel, Holmes I asked shakily as his eyes fastened upon mine now free of that dark vacancy that had haunted his delirium. Rather poorly, he whispered weakly, trying to manage a smile at me. You've had a bad night, old chap, I said, trying to still my trembling voice, frightened me half to death, you know. A thousand apologies, my dear Watson, he said, Phoebe trying to pat my arm reassuringly, what, what time is it? I glanced at the clock. Ten of seven, Holmes. His weary eyes made their scrutinizing way over my face, and his brows, still bushy from his disguise, knitted together in a long black line. You've been up all night, he whispered. Even ill, you are still capable of deduction, my dear Holmes, I said, trying to chuckle through the catch in my throat. Go to bed, Watson, he said, making a pathetic attempt to glare at me. I shall when I am satisfied you are out of danger, and not before, I replied softly, getting up and checking the gash in his side it was most definitely looking better. I turned the gas down to dark in the room and shut the blinds completely. Holmes, I need you to drink this, I said, pouring a glass of water from the carafe on the table. He opened his eyes and obediently tried to sit up, not quite managing it before I slipped an arm round his back and aided him. I noted how little fuss he made about it, an indication of how exhausted he really was. I had put only a very slight pain reliever in the water, knowing that he was bound to be so tired from fighting the fever that his body would probably shut down without any artificial aid. He finished the water and I settled him back on the bed, pulling the blankets up round him and taking his temperature once more. 99.2. Thank God, I whispered fervently, collapsing at last into my chair, literally spent with weariness and worry. Holmes's breathing had begun to even out slowly, and as I uttered the devout prayer of gratefulness, his eyes opened halfway and he looked at me. I could hear you, you know, he whispered sleepily, only half conscious. What's that, old fellow? Toward the end, I could hear you, telling me, not, to give up, Holmes murmured, 
his eyelids drooping as the medication and his exhaustion began to take its effect. A moment later he was asleep, but his word lingered in my mind for a long time afterwards. Chapter 8, Shows His True Colors. Chapter 8, Shows His True Colors. Shows His True Colors, nautical term referring to the flag insignia that a ship displayed so that both enemies and friends could recognize it. Watson. I sat beside Holmes's bed for what seemed like an eternity, but what was in reality only close to two hours, just watching his calm, even breathing, reassuring myself that the fever had subsided and he was no longer in such deadly danger. I checked his temperature once more around nine o'clock, and could have cried for relief when I found it had returned to normal. My friend's pulse was slow but steady, he would indeed be all right after a couple days rest to restore his blood loss. As I began to put my instruments away, noting absently how badly my hands were shaking either from reaction or fatigue, I heard the pealing of the front doorbell. Since I could smell Mrs. Hudson's breakfast cooking, thereby indicating she was up and about, I made no move to leave the room and was startled a moment later to hear loud angry voices in the hall. I threw another glance at Holmes's sleeping form and then softly closed the door of his bedroom, entering the hall and looking down the stairs. I should have laughed at Mrs. Hudson's ferocious refusal to let the two men up who were standing in the entryway, had I not recognized Larklin and, that must be one of the men who had attacked Holmes last night, judging from the way that the midshipman was holding him tightly by the scruff of the neck. My face flushed hot with barely controlled rage, and I took the steps down to the hall three at a time. I shall deal with this, Mrs. Hudson, I said angrily, and would you all please remember I have a patient upstairs. Larklin, what is this rowboat? I had landed with a thump in the hall in front of the taller man and was glaring up at him. This is the man that stabbed Mr. Holmes last night, doctor, the man growled, shaking the cowering little blackguard as a terrier shakes a rat, I found I'm just over an hour ago down in the docks, recognized my handiwork here on his face from last night's scrap. I could not help but wince as Larklin indicated what looked like a broken cheekbone and a very nasty mottled mass of purple-green bruises, the seaman must be as strong as an ox, and I for one would never wish to be on his bad side. But it was less than what the villain deserved, for what he did last night. I set my jaw, thinking of how I had almost lost the only person I had left in the world that I could say I truly cared for, and how close this man had come to robbing me of him. Take him up to the sitting room, Larklin, I ordered my voice deadly calm, I have a few questions I wish to put to him. The man made a sniveling, whimpering noise at my words. Larklin was staring at me strangely, but he smirked and then began to haul the man up the stairs by his collar. I took a deep breath, closing my eyes for a moment, and then followed. I peeked into Holmes's bedroom, seeing that he still was resting as comfortably as he had been for the last two hours, and then I entered the sitting room through the bedroom entrance. Larklin had flung the man down on the couch and was standing in front of him. He glanced up as I entered. How is he, doctor? I, I nearly lost him last night, I responded hesitantly, his fever peaked at 106 degrees, and it looked very bad there for about an hour. There had to have been a deal of poison or bacteria, or something on that knife for it to spike so high so quickly. A sudden flush of anger spread over Larklin's face that turned it into a mirror image of my own. Is he? He will live, I know that now, I said, my voice suddenly hardening as I looked at the man responsible. No thanks to you, sir. What is your name? The man glared at me out of the one eye he could use properly, and Larkin grabbed him and yanked him up out of his seat by his collar. The fellow's face changed from defiance to fear as the seaman's huge hands closed upon him. Hawking, the man gasped, 
looking terrifiedly at me. Larklan, I said in the same cold tone of voice I had used downstairs, let go of the man. What? I said let go of him. Our client stared at me, but then he released his hold, and the sailor stood trembling before me. Now, Hawking, I continued, a deadly calm filling my voice with a suppressed menace that startled even me, you will tell me why you and your two friends took it into your heads to attack a lone man in the dockyards last night. Not on your life, Gov the man said insolently, now that he knew I was not going to let Larkin touch him. The seaman's honest face flushed with anger, but I held up a restraining hand. I would not be impertinent if I were you, I said, stepping up to the man and facing him toe-to-toe, -to -toe. I would like nothing better than to teach you the proper way to answer a question. The man glared at me out of his good eye, giving a snort of disgust. Hawking. I am waiting. With a foul oath the man suddenly brought his fist up in a sweeping roundhouse toward my face. I promptly ducked under the blow, blocked a second and third, and then landed one of my own on the already broken part of his face that sent a fellow sprawling on the floor with a shriek of pain. As he fell I could imagine his scream being close to the cries of agony Holmes had made last night when Larklin caught up with him after he had been stabbed, and my vision suddenly clouded with a blind red fury. I reached down, grabbed the man, and yanked him up by his cravat, grasping him with a hatred I had rarely felt before in my life. He gasped, clutching my tight wrists, still moaning from the pain of the new injury, and I could hear in his whimpers the same sounds I had heard all night as I tried to save Holmes. So help me, Hawking, I should kill you right here and now, I hissed through my clenched jaw, very seriously considering choking off the fellow's flow of air. It will be so easy, so very easy. Might be a bit hard to explain that to the police, Doctor, Larkin drawled from behind me. The sound of the man's calm voice suddenly penetrated my emotionally driven rage, and I realized I had been completely out of control. Breathing heavily, I threw the cowering man roughly onto the couch and stalked over to our client, who was standing leaning casually against the fireplace watching the scene. Can you tell me about this man again, Larkin? I said, my voice rather unsteady, I was not listening to you last night. No, Mr. Hawking, you will kindly stay where you are. I have a gun in this drawer and I would be only too thrilled for you to give me an opportunity to use it. The man had started to glance surreptitiously at the sitting room door, and I pulled my revolver out of my desk and held it on him as Larklin and I talked. Evidently the villain sincerely believed I would shoot him if he moved, for he sat as if frozen while Larklin explained to me about the events in the pub last night. I had the very devil to pay trying to locate the blighters last night and into this morning, Doctor, Larkland went on, finally come across this arn at one though the local druggists he was in there buying a painkiller for that face. Soon as I found him I tacked straight round and set my course for Baker Street, knowing he would be of use to you. A bit of my anger dissipated at the knowledge that while I had been fighting all night to save Holmes's life, our client had also been sleepless, pursuing the men responsible. Any sign of the other two? No, Doctor, I am sorry. Thank you, Larklin. You have indeed gone far and above duty being helpful to us, I said quietly, much more in control now. I turned and looked at a man still cringing on the couch. Now, Mr. Hawking, I said, my teeth set, you will tell me why you and those partners of yours attacked that man in the ducks last night. The fellow was holding his broken face, whimpering and looking up at me. Calmly, coolly this time. I hauled him to his feet and put my face close to his. Was it because of the lancing lion I fired a rapid question toward him? His face blanched white behind the bruises, and I knew I had it home. All right, 
who told you to scare off anyone asking questions about the Lancing Lion I demanded, my patience now non-existent. The man cowered away from my gaze but shook his head vigorously. You know, don't you, and you're afraid of them I said, shaking the man a little. His round dark eyes in his white face were testimony to the veracity of my words. I released the man, shoving him back to the couch, and turned to Larklin. The man looked at me. You shan't get any more out of him, doctor, he said slowly, I've seen that loco fear before, he's more scared of whoever's behind this than he is of us. Which is quite a lot, apparently. I sighed. Right then, Larklin. I shall send for the police. Can you watch, Hawking? My sentence ended in a sharp exclamation as the man bolted for the door at the mention of the police. I jumped over the couch after him, chasing the fellow down the stairs. Behind me I heard a hoarse shout from Larkin but I paid no heed, racing down the steps after the man. Hawking. Stop or I'll shoot I yelled as I chased him, just as he got the front door open. I would not chance a shot in a crowded street, as well he knew, however, and I shoved the gun into my pocket and followed him out into the bustle of the mid-morning Baker Street. I dodged and weaved around passers-by, trying to keep the man's fleeing form in sight, but I got stuck behind the woman with a cart of fruit and it slowed me down for several seconds. When I finally got round the woman, I reached the street corner and stared about me, breathing heavily, trying to find the sailor in the crowd. He had vanished. Dr. Watson a small lad cried, rushing up to me with a cheerful wave. Alfie I said excitedly to the little irregular, I need you to do a job for me. Sure, Gov. What is D? I was just now chasing a man, I need you to try and find him. He can't have got far yet unless he picked up a cab. About my height, dark hair and eyes, navy blue pea jacket. His whole left side of his face is covered in purple bruises. Find him, lad, and I'll give you a sovereign. The boy's eyes grew round as saucers. What did he do, doctor? Kill somebody the lad gasped in amazement at the amount I was offering him. He very nearly killed Mr. Holmes, Alfie. Now hurry, off with you. Report back to Baker Street, and try to get the rest of the lads on it as well I said, and the boy nodded and scampered off down the street, weaving in and out of the crowd like a little mouse. I watched him for a moment, hoping that the irregulars would be able to locate the man I had lost. And due to my own carelessness, I had been so blinded by hate and anger that I had not kept all my faculties alertly about me. I could see why Holmes did not encourage emotional displays of any kind, it certainly did, as he said, cloud the thinking processes. I made me way back to Baker Street with a despondent heart, my eyes downcast. As I entered the door and shut it behind me, Mrs. Hudson started into some barrage about undesirable characters fighting in my own house which I dutifully tried to listen to but failed rather completely. Larklin heard my steps on the stairs, evidently, for he hollered down to me. Did you get him, doctor? No, I called back, he was too fast in the crowd outside. This staircase had never seemed this long, and I realized afresh how completely exhausted I really was. I wearily pushed open the door of the sitting room, but our client was not in there. Larklin? In here, doctor, the man called urgently, and the voice was coming from Holmes's bedroom. My breath caught in my throat, Holmes. Had he taken a turn for the worse? I jumped over to the doorway, dashing into the dimly lit room, and stopped short, limp with relief. Good morning, Watson, Holmes said softly, looking up at me from where Larkland was settling him back, propped up against the headboard. Holmes, I gasped breathlessly, leaning on the doorframe in my relief. How, how are you feeling? Rather like I wish I had taken you along last night, he replied weakly, 
leaning back tiredly against the pillows. Larkin came over, took my elbow, and pushed me into the chair beside Holmes's bed. Then before I registered what he was doing, he had left the room and shut the door behind him. Holmes and I looked at each other a little awkwardly, and I cleared my throat. Did I wake you up just now I asked hesitantly. I do not know who did, he said, it seemed that there was quite a bit of excitement going on here in the last eight hours. I nodded, not trusting my voice to very many words just yet. Holmes turned those keen grey eyes in my direction. You still haven't slept yet, have you? Stunning deduction, my dear Holmes. You scintillate this morning, I replied, my shaky voice belying the humour in my words. Holmes snorted, and his thin lips twitched in a smile. Then his eyes and his voice softened slightly. How long was I ill, Watson? I thought back, it all seemed like such a horrid nightmare. A good seven hours, Holmes, I said, wishing my voice would hold steady, your fever didn't break until nearly seven this morning. It was very high, wasn't it he asked, his forehead wrinkling as if trying to remember what had happened all night. Very, I whispered, and, and it rose so fast there was nothing I could do. I don't know what was on that knife but I've never seen anyone get such a dangerously high fever so quickly. How high? 106 before it finally broke, I sighed softly, the horrible night's event replaying over and over in my mind. Holmes was silent, his eyes downcast. I am sorry, Watson, he said after a moment, his thin fingers nervously picking at the coverlet. For what? For, for scaring you so, he replied, finally looking up at me. I really had no intention of getting into that fight. I should hope you don't make a habit of antagonizing gangs of knife-wielding sailors. I exclaimed. He gave a dry laugh at my sarcasm but then his manner reverted to something more serious. But still, Watson, I am sorry. Larkland said something to me last night just after I was stabbed that made me think very deeply about how foolish I was, and I promise you, I promise you that I shall endeavor to not let it happen again. I was curious as to what that was that our client could have said to my friend, but I refrained as always from pressing Holmes for personal details. I shall hold you to that promise, the next time you want to go gadding about alone, I warned him, straightening out the tangled blanket he had been picking at. He grinned, a little tiredly, but it was still his old self. I took a long breath and met his grin with a small answering one of my own. How comfortable tight or tight was interrupted by Larkin poking his head in the room and asking if we wanted breakfast. I laughed aloud, I had completely forgotten the man. He grinned at our expressions and disappeared into the sitting room, returning in a moment with a tray. I have to say, Mr. Larkin, that we probably should be splitting whatever fee we will get for this case with you, for you seem to be doing your share of the work, Holmes said as the man handed me the tray. Larkin's blue eyes danced merrily got to give that blessed landlady of yours a break, gentlemen. She's a real woman, that one. I have to say, I am rather surprised she asn't tossed the both of you out on your ears by now. I snickered as I poured a coffee, for the same thought had crossed my mind more than once over the years. Larklin, won't you stay for breakfast? Holmes asked, glancing at me. No, no, gentlemen, I must be shoving off. Oh, come along, Larklin, I said, handing him a cup of coffee. You need to tell Holmes what you discovered about the Friesland last night, anyhow. Holmes sat straight up in the bed, forgetting about his injury, and I nearly dropped the coffee pot when I heard his choked cry of pain as it made its presence felt harshly. Lie still, you bleeding idiot Larkin barked sharply before I could remonstrate with my friend. My thoughts exactly, I agreed, glaring meaningfully at Holmes. 
He made an immature face at me and turned his attention back to Larklin. The man went on to detail over our excellent breakfast what little he knew about the Friesland and what he had found out about her in the course of the last night during his search for the men who had attacked Holmes. It was not much information, but combined with what they were now discussing that they had learnt in the pub, it seemed a fairly solid lead. Holmes was firing questions at the man with a rapidity that amazed me, considering how weak he had to be feeling, and I myself was barely keeping my eyes open, coffee or no coffee. I had not slept at all last night other than that one hour before Larklam had shone up with Holmes, and I was physically and emotionally drained completely. I did not realize they had stopped talking until I became aware that there had been a minute or two of silence, and I hastily jerked my head up and opened my eyes to see both men looking at me, Larklam with amusement and Holmes with funness. I glared at both of them, daring them to make fun of me. Go to bed, Watson, Holmes said gently. Wait me in three hours, Holmes. I mumbled sleepily, stifling a yawn, I shall have to recheck that dressing for infection by no later than twelve. And Larklan, you were up all night as well, make sure you get some sleep before you go back to your work. My muddled brain having performed the necessary medical instructions, it now proceeded to shut down rapidly. I was nearly out on my feet by this time, so I did not hear the seaman's response nor did I really care at that moment about anything other than getting to my bed upstairs which suddenly seemed very far away. Oh, Watson I heard Holmes's voice behind me, and I turned, rubbing my eyes clear. Yes, Holmes? Thank you, my dear fellow, he said simply, flashing me a warm smile. I managed a tired grin in return, relieved in the extreme that he appeared to be fine after such a dreadful night, and stumbled up the stairs to my room, not even bothering to turn down the covers before falling on the bed in an exhausted deep sleep content in the knowledge that all was right again. For the immediate present, at any rate. Chapter 9, Join the Binnacle List. Chapter 9, Join the Binnacle List. Binnacle List, a ship's sick list given to the officer on watch, bearing the names of the sailors too ill to report for duty. Holmes. Watson stumbled out of the room and off toward the stairs, obviously exhausted by his efforts throughout the long sleepless night. Larkland watched him go and then turned to back to face me. A good man your doctor. I nodded, listening to my poor Watson's slow footsteps on the stairs, sometimes I wonder just what I have done to deserve such a friend. Copper-bottomed, Larkland said with a small smile. What? The doctor, he's what we would call copper-bottomed, something to be relied upon, genuine. In earlier days of the Navy the hulls of the ships were coated with copper plates. I laughed and took another sip of coffee, grateful for its warmth and stimulant. The fever and loss of blood must have taken a great toll indeed, for I could not recall ever being so tired, or so weak. Larklin noted my weariness, his perceptive eyes catching mine. How do ye feel he asked. I would feel a good deal worse if you had not stepped in, I am sorry for the confusion of last night, I did not know who had been following when I tripped you up. I, ah, uh, I would like to thank you. You saved my life, and Watson quite a bit of grief. Only after you caused it, the seaman accused. You have promised to look into this affair for me, Holmes, and I intend to keep you alive until you have. I took another drink a trifle nervously, for I was not used to small talk with anyone other than Watson. And the seaman did have a propensity for speaking openly and honestly, and I was neither of those things. I turned the conversation on to a more comfortable topic. Have you actually sailed on the Friesland? No, Larklin muttered, but I have heard of her, a new thing she is, a beauty all fresh paint and shiny stovepipes. The Lansing paid a pretty penny for her, 
you can be sure. He countered with a question of his own. I know you are not in the habit of sharing your insights while on a case, Holmes, but do you have any idea who's behind it yet? I shook my head and settled against the pillow. It had only been two days and yet it felt like an age ago that I had sat through that cursed operetta with Watson. I have not enough data, I hoped that the samples might give me a bit more, but I have not had time to analyze them yet. I might have deduced something from the man you brought in this morning had he not slipped away. Larkin chuckled softly. Bolted more like, didn't want to risk staying here a moment longer with the doctor, curse him, if he had kept his temper. Watson I asked, sitting up further and wincing as the movement pulled at the stitches in my side. The seaman cast me a concerned glance but was good enough not to mention it. I, your doctor. I would hate to get in between him and you, if you were in bad straits. He frightened the cove half to death. And he's got a fierce fist. Copper-bottomed, Mr. Holmes, that's what he is. I nodded and lapsed into silence, gripping the mug and wishing I had my pipe. It was proving to be an elusive case, and far more dangerous than I had first supposed. It would be better for all three of us if I could bring it to a quick end. But I had no data. The possibility of a rival line was abolished by the number of shipping lines involved, nor could it be a separate party preying solely on ships, for only the Lansing had been attacked so far and it was obvious that the Lansing was not in financial straits either if it could afford to keep up a ship like the Friesland. The Friesland. The barkeep's comments of the night before came back to me, and I went over them again and again in my head. Why the Friesland? Why would that particular ship be marked for trouble next? I focused on Larklin again, he had proven remarkably observant in the past, perhaps he had noticed something. But when I asked, he sighed and shook his head ruefully. I'm sorry, Mr. Holmes, I can't recall anything. Not off the top of my head anyway, but... He paused and reached into his belt, drawing out a cheap-looking bowie knife. He handed it to me. Got that off the cove what stabbed Lee, careful, it's sharper than it looks. I pricked myself on it earlier. I took a thing and examined it. It was old and stained and on the blade was an amount of rust and dried blood. Apparently the owner did not feel a need to care for his equipment. It was little wonder that my wound had developed an infection, not that I was familiar with such things as fevers. There was a chance I might gain some data from the blade. I was fairly confident I could break down and identify the substances on. An unwanted yawn broke my musings and I covered my mouth with my hand too late. Larklin smiled took the knife from me, and laid it on the dresser. I think you should follow the doctor's advice, Mr. Holmes, and try to rest. For once I was in no mind to argue and I allowed myself to settle back onto the pillows. I could barely focus, my mind as muddled as though I had been given a sedative. What of yourself I asked, for Larklin had gotten no more rest than either Watson or I, and his eyes were shadowed. Seamen like myself get used to little sleep, he said and someone will have to wake Dr. Watson when it is time to change your bandages. Double quote. He was getting to his feet as he spoke, but his shoulders were slumped and it made me feel somewhat guilty, knowing that it was on my behalf, and the fault of my own clumsiness that he had gone the night without sleep. Your work at the cartography shop, I muttered, as sleep invaded my mind. Larklin smiled again as he went to the door. Oh, Harry's a good un, he doesn't mind me skiving off as I'm not a regular worker. I smiled in response. The sofa in the sitting room is comfortable enough, Mr. Larklin. The sailor nodded and slipped through the entrance. Then I'll just keep out here for a bit, Mr. Holmes. Call me if you are needful of anything. My eyes were closed before the door clicked shut. Larklin. 
My eyes were heavy and my head pounding by the time I finally allowed myself to fall onto the couch in the sitting room. I was unusually tired, my limbs ached. The efforts last night must have cost me more than I realized. But a few hours rest would set me to rights. I glanced at the clock on the mantel, it was half past eight, two and a half hours until the doctor would need to check the wound. I would rest until then, and keep one ear open. My leaden head hit the cushions and I closed my eyes at last, glad that there was a moment of peace at least. The room had not changed when I opened my eyes again, but I had. A glance at the clock told me I had been sleeping less than an hour, but I did not feel rested, if anything, I was more tired. And hot, I was terribly hot. A glass of brandy would be wonderful, and might help me sleep, and stop the ache in my head that had seemingly doubled as I slept. I levered myself forward off the couch and was alarmed by my own sluggish movements. I found myself holding onto the edge of the couch as I made my way to the sideboard. I took hold of the decanter and my hand shook so badly that it slipped from my hand and tipped onto the cupboard, flooding it with brandy. Something was wrong. I clutched my head and swayed where I stood. The room seemed very hot and small, I had to get help. My thoughts became fuzzy as I turned towards the door towards the stairs. The doctor, whatever was wrong, he would help. But my legs suddenly buckled and I fell forward onto the carpet. The world spun around me, I could feel the smooth wood beneath my cheek, or was that above it? I levered myself to my knees and tried to crawl forward, the door was there, just beyond my reach. The doorknob glinted before me, I touched it with my fingertips, felt its cool metallic surface, then I fell again and this time I did not strike the floor, I sank into a black unending sea. Holmes. I woke, still tired, but feeling somewhat stronger than I had before. The soreness of the wound on my side was still present, but it was not as sharp as before. Sunlight streamed in through the window, and from its angle I realized it must be nearly twelve. Watson and Larklin must have been far more tired than either of them had supposed for Watson had missed his appointment of changing the dressings on the wound at eleven. Not that I minded, I had little doubt that the infection was well under control. I had been lying in bed for very nearly twelve hours, and the lethargy was getting to my limbs. I was seized by the sudden desire to stretch them and see just how much of my strength I had lost. I tossed back the covers and slowly sat up, hissing between my teeth as the movement tightened the stitches. Watson did do them rather tightly. The bandaging held well enough, firm and sure as always when fashioned by my dear Boswell. And I was able to swing my legs over the side and get to my feet. I swayed and clutched at the bedstead as an attack of dizziness hit me and my vision blurred. After a moment it passed and with one hand on my side and the other braced against the wall I was able to make my way to the door, snatching my most comfortable dressing gown on the way. I paused after swinging it open. Larklin was not asleep on the sofa as I had thought he would be, he must have had some business to do after all, it was unusual, not at all in character for him. Another attack of dizziness came and as I clutched at the nearby bookshelf I began to rethink my decision of rising so soon, for once Watson was right, perhaps if I sat down for a moment. I pushed forward towards my chair by the mantel, and Froze's familiar figure came into my view. There, by the door, lay Larklin, face down, unmoving. Adrenaline rushed and pumped through my veins, lending me strength, and I hurried forward. Had he been attacked? Not likely with the door closed and him lying so near to it. I knelt beside him. Larklin. I put a hand on his shoulder to turn him over, and pulled it away with a gasp. There was an incredible heat emanating from beneath the cloth of his shirt. He was burning, and the material was wet with sweat. 
I took a firmer hold and turned him over. Larklin. There was no response, his eyes were shut, his face flushed, he was shaking slightly, shivering, his fair hair standing out from the red skin. He was in the bouts of a fever. Watson. I stumbled to my feet, moving despite another attack of dizziness, and stepped round the fallen form of the sailor to yank open the door. Watson. My voice boomed in the stairwell and for a moment I feared that he could not hear me, there was little chance I would be able to make it up those stairs, not with the sense of vertigo already upon me. Watson. There was a scuffling from the upstairs room, and rapid footsteps as my Boswell pounded out of his bedchamber. His voice sounded sharp with alarm. Holmes? Are you all right? He appeared at the head of the stairs, pale and visibly shaken, and I would have cursed myself for worrying him further had not the situation been so dire. He had been asleep, his hair ruffled and stolen clothing which he must not have bothered to change from. Holmes. What is it, what's happened? He looked at me, standing upright and relatively unharmed, and the worry changed to a weary scowl. What in heaven's name are you doing out of bed? I shook my head in irritation, eliciting more dizziness which I ignored. Never mind, Watson, get down here, I need you. The urgency and fear must have been clear in my voice for his scowl became concerned once again, and he began to descend the steps. I went back into the room and leaned against the dining table, trying to curb my vertigo. Watson entered, and froze as I had done. His already pale face drained of color. My God he breathed, a prayer rather than a curse. He knelt beside Larklin, felt his head, recoiled. And as always in the face of the sick or the wounded, his medical training and staunch personality took immediate control. Holmes, a cushion from the couch, quickly. He took a pillow and slid it beneath Larklin's head, feeling the man's pulse and breathing. Then he was on his feet, striding rapidly into my bedroom then back with his medical kit in hand, pulling it open, drawing out the thermometer, checking Larklin's temperature. He went very still when he read it, and cast me a fearful glance. The same I asked, and he nodded, running a hand through his must hair uneasily. 104.5. Holmes, when did he leave your room? Shortly after you, he showed no signs that anything was wrong. Watson swallowed at the knowledge that Larkham had been lying ill for two or three hours without aid. I could see the guilt settle into his expression and I shared in it. Then Watson shook it off and stripped off Larklin's shirt and coat before levering the sail up into his arms. Struggling under the weight and awkwardness of the hold, he carried him to the couch, made sure his head was supported, then went once again to my bedroom, emerging with the basin. He refilled it with fresh cool water and gathered another set of cloths from the linen cupboard. He set these on the table beside Larklin and then turned to me. Holmes, are you strong enough, can you help? I smiled in what I hoped was a reassuring manner. Watson did not want a repeat of last night. Of course, old fellow. Watson returned the smile shakily then drew up a chair, took hold of my arm and helped me to sit in it, handing me one of the icy cold compresses. We must bring it down, he said, and his voice quavered though his hands were steady as he applied his own compress to Larkin's chest, soaking the red skin. The seaman moaned, and his shivering increased. He acts as though he is freezing, I said, hesitating. I had never aided a sick man before. Holmes, trust me, I'm a doctor. Now do as I say and cool him down, Watson spoke rather sharply, his fear making him stern. I sighed and pressed the cloth against Larkin's forehead, and the icy water cascaded over his face. He moaned again and gave a violent shudder, his eyelids flickered and opened halfway. The gaze beneath was glazed and dull. 
He tried to push Watson's hand away but Watson caught his wrist and pushed it back. Try to talk to him, Holmes, Watson said, as he took the rack from me, resoaked it and handed it back. Me I asked, why? You have a masterful voice, it's hard to ignore. See if you can get him to respond. I was still a little puzzled until I suddenly remembered last night. I had been about to give up the struggle for clinging to a thin thread of existence, too tired to fight anymore, when I had heard a strong voice, one I trusted with my very life, pleading frantically with me to not give up, to keep fighting. And I had done so. I cleared the sudden lump out of my throat and continued to soak the sick man's head with the cool water. Larkin continued to shiver and it struck me just how vulnerable and ill he was. For the short time I had known him he had proved himself to be a strong and resourceful individual, more than capable, and now. Larkin. I spoke softly and clearly, putting a hand on his shoulder as much in support of myself as of him. Larkin, can you hear me? Larkin shook and cringed away from the cloths but showed no sign that my words were having any effect. I looked to Watson but he did not meet my gaze, his eyes solidly on his task. He only nodded slightly. Larkin. Come on, old man, can you hear me? His eyes flickered unseeing, and he muttered something under his breath. Good, I exclaimed in slight relief. Good, Larklin, say something, old chap, we need you yet. He groaned and shivered, moving his head restlessly on the cushions. No. Watson gave me an encouraging look, Larklin had ceased his struggles against the cool cloths, his blonde brows furrowing. Come on, Larklin, we're here, old man. The seaman took a breath, much slower and deeper than his previous ones. No, the word escaped his throat in a half-sob and he had clenched his eyes shut. I took his hand in my own. Hold on, Larklin. Stay with us. It's all right. No, he shook his head, took another breath. No, it's not, she, she didn't want. Didn't what the words had gripped Watson's attention and he watched as I spoke. Didn't what, Larklin? Want me to go? I shouldn, I shouldn, his jaw and his hand clenched. If I hadn't then it would never happened, I would have. He was delirious, reliving some trauma from his past, I met Watson's look and the answer there was clear. Whatever it was, it was none of our business. Not if Larkin had not seen fit to share it before. What how this man that neither of us had known existed, had somehow become a respected friend in so very short a time. It's all right, Larkin, I said gripping his hand. The sick man turned his head towards me slightly but said nothing more, only moaned. Watson leant over and took his temperature again. After a moment he looked at the reading and then at me, his face betraying a lurking terror that I suddenly realized he must have felt last night at the possibility of losing me. 105, he whispered through clenched teeth. Holmes, keep talking. One more degree and it could be fatal. I have to concentrate on this treatment, you keep speaking to him. What about I asked? Feeling more helpless than I ever had, was this what Watson had been feeling like all night long? I had been worse off than Larkin was yet. What I had put my dear friend through. It doesn't matter what, Holmes, Watson said desperately, just be forceful, don't let him give up, keep telling him to fight it, order him to stay with us, demand it. You have to get through to him, to be a lifeline to his wandering mind. Like you did to me, I whispered, remembering the dreadful night once again. Like I did to you. He returned in a choked voice, swallowing down hard on the emotions I could perceive playing across his face. Then he bent again to his task, face grim. And I continued to talk to Larklin, praying silently that we had not discovered him too late. Chapter 10, Don't Give Up a Ship. Chapter 10, Don't Give Up a Ship. 
Larklin. The rope burned my hands and the sun scorched my face. Rivulets of sweat ran down my bare back and my feet padded in puddles on the deck as I pulled at the rope. High above me the white sail rose like the wing of a bird to block out the sky and the blazing sun. My muscles ached with the effort, but it was a good ache. Like the satisfied exhaustion one feels at the end of a task. I bent to tie off my line but was interrupted when a sudden gust of wind caught the sailcloth and the rope was nearly tugged from my hands, my arms were pulled violently above my head, my slight frame did not have near enough weight to hold it down. I was overbalancing. A hand caught hold of my shoulder and pulled me back steadying me. Hold on there, lad, steady will. I turned to grin at a man with a rough face browned and weathered like driftwood from years at sea, then the sun blazed in my eyes and I lost sight of him. It was scorching me, too hot, far too hot. Larklin. A voice echoed in my ears and a strong, thin hand gripped my own. Can you hear me Larklin? I groaned and tried to turn away, it was too bright, too hot. A second hand felt my forehead, adding to the head and I objected, trying to wiggle away from it. It's rising. I'll get more water. It was dark now, the sky a massive roiling, black clouds, as alive as the sea beneath them. Rain lashed at my face and ran under the collar of my coat. The deck swayed beneath my feet and I had trouble keeping my footing on the slippery wood. I gripped the cold steel railing and pulled myself forward. There up ahead was the light of the bridge, I took another step against the howling wind, it ripped the hat from my head. Communications were out, the engines flooded, I had to get there, they had to be told. Without warning a wave rose up on the side of the ship and washed over me, driving me down into the steel siding. I struck my head and flinched at the resounding ache. The raincoat was useless now, the clothes had been soaked beneath. I was freezing, shivering in the frigid air. I tried to struggle to my feet but the ship pitched again and another wave hit, forcing me back down. I gasped for breath, and tried to wrap my arms around myself for warmth, but they were pinned by the weight of the water. I began to shiver violently, wave after wave of icy water washed over me and the rain continued to lash. No, I railed against it, struggling weakly. Larklin, Larklin, lie still, old man, it's all right. Cold, I moaned, shivering, my teeth chattering. Another wave of water washed over my chest as if there were no coat or tamarack there to protect the skin. I tried to brush it away, but my wrists were restrained, not by water but by hands. Hold on, Larklin, this was a new voice, softer than the first, more kind. I'll get you through this, just hold on more water, it cascaded over me, I shuddered and sobbed, stop. The kind voice took a shaky breath and the first sounded close to my head. I'm sorry Larklin, we can't stop. You'll feel better, lie still. Good man, are you all right, Watson? Fine, keep talking, Holmes. The cold and the insistent voice continued, holding me there for a long time. Then it was dark and still again, I was seated beside a bed, too weary to get up and stir the dying coals of the fire. I could not leave, not again. If I had not left the first time. She, my wife, had not wanted me to, had wanted me with her. But the job was a good one, and would give us money enough to get started. Would be enough to let me retire from the sea to a small shop in Portsmouth, where there was a small white cottage at the head of the cliffs. A sturdy place where the wind whipped in fresh from the sea and the ships passed beneath. A place where the brilliant green of the headland met the soft blue and greys of the water, where the sun seemed to be reborn every morning with brilliant dawns. The more she spoke of it the more her eyes lit up and her face shone. I would get it for her, I needed to get it for her. So I left. 
I put a shaking hand into my pocket and drew forth a battered piece of paper, a telegram. I crumpled it into a small ball and threw it at the flames where it hissed and spit, for it had been soaked in salty water when I had received it on the ship. I lowered my head into shaking hands and took a shuddering breath, praying, pleading. On the bed beside me she lay. So small and thin, an empty shell of the beautiful spirited lass she had been, all dark hair and rosy cheeks, laughing as she danced as light as a fawn on her feet. Her face was sallow and pinched now and her eyes were glazed. She was still delicate, only now she seemed as though she would break, and the slightest movement hurt her. She did not have the strength to speak my name. I was too late. I laid my head on the coverlet beside her, listening to the soft, shallow breathing, holding her small hand gently in mine. I listened and waited and breathed with her, as though to keep her from what I knew would come. But it did come, and sometime in the dark, desolate hours of the night she stopped. I cradled my wife in my arms, rocking her back and forth, burying my face in her hair, as I cried bitterly. Holmes. Oh, dear Lord, please no. Larklan, you can't do this Watson's frantic voice rang in my head as he reached over me to shake the seaman firmly. Larklan's body convulsed with silent sobs and then went limp. You've got to fight this, Larklan. Listen to me. You have to help me. I shivered at the absolute desperation in my friend's voice, and realized anew what anguish he had to have gone through last night. I drenched the compress in a fresh basin of water and put it on the ailing man's chest and neck as Watson took his temperature again. His sharp intake of breath told me the results before his trembling words did. 105.5, Holmes. We don't have much time, he whispered, rubbing a hand across his weary features and slumping down for a moment against the couch, his eyes closed. I had never felt so helpless in all my life as I did then. Before I could offer any words of encouragement Larklan began to thrash around ever, almost knocking me off my chair in his mad flailing. In an instant Watson had reanimated and grabbed the flying arms, holding them close to the poor fellow's sides, struggling to keep him under control. Larklan was strong as an ox, and I quickly moved to help Watson. Is this normal for a fever I gasped as I fought to still Larkin's left arm and avoid the blows he was unconsciously dealing. With a surge of effort Larkin broke free of my hold and before I could grab his flailing arm it struck Watson on the side of the face. My friend gritted his teeth, set his jaw, and ducked as he gripped the arm once again. Yes he panted, wrestling the arm down, you did it yourself more than once last night, look out. I dodged the flying arm instinctively, but my mind was on what Watson had said. I had done this as well. How horrible it must have been for him. Watson maintained his hold on the sailor, talking continuously in a calm, soothing voice, though it held a distinct tremor. And after a moment the man quieted with a soft moan, looking at us with eyes that obviously were not seeing us. I as well was breathing hard with the struggle, and I was not much better, I was so confoundedly weak from that accursed fever myself that I was little more than useless. Watson took the man's temperature for perhaps the dozenth time as I put another towel on the sufferer's forehead. As he withdrew the instrument, his already white face turned ashen in desperation. 105.8, he quavered, snatching the towel from me. More water, now, Holmes. Hurry. I grabbed the pitcher and weaved unsteadily as I made my way toward the door, colliding into the sideboard as the dizziness hit. Are you all right he called worriedly, not able to leave our patient. I responded in the affirmative and made my way to the bathroom, filled the pitcher, and returned a moment later. Watson was desperately working on the man, trying to get him to respond, but Larkin was only muttering incoherently in his delirium. 
For another half hour we tried to bring the fever down, but Watson's expression was one of heartbroken failure as he yet again, read the thermometer. I felt a knot form in my stomach. 106.1, my friend moaned in despair, we, we're losing him, Holmes. He can't live long with a fever that high and still climbing. We can't lose him, I gasped, I didn't die. Why should he? Larklan, Watson stated firmly, ignoring me and bending over the belly-moving form of the seaman, listen to me. I said listen to me, sailor. You are not going to do this. Do you hear me? Don't you dare give up the ship, Larklan. I was somewhat surprised at Watson's choice of words, even a writer such as he did not was not prone to the use of nautical terms. To my astonishment the waxen color of the man's face tinged a delicate shade of pink, Watson's word choice must have struck some chord in the man's delirious brain. It wasn't obscure, it was brilliant. Keep on the water, Holmes. Larklan. Listen to me. Keep fighting. I pressed another towel onto the man's chest as Watson kept up the steady barrage of forceful talking, marveling at my dear friend's inner strength. Indeed, I knew that were it not for that voice guiding me back from that dark path of my own mind, I might not have made it through the last night. Larklan, don't do this Watson gasped as Larklan's breathing began to falter and grow shallow, you can't give up now. Don't give up the ship, Larklan, we need you. I felt more and more helpless as the man seemed to only drift further and further away from any semblance of consciousness, and I could see Watson begin to shake as the despair of the situation struck him, his hands tremoring. A wild idea came to me, and I leaned closer to the sailor's face to snap out a command, hoping my voice would be more effective than Watson's, all the while giving the seaman a good shake. Midshipman. This is your captain, at attention. Haul up there Mr. Larklan, we cannot spare the time for you to be lubberly I ordered stiffly, in as forceful a voice as I could manage. To my shock, the man's breathing quickened, he started to move feebly, and I heard gasp of excitement from Watson. Keep talking. Holmes, he's responding to you. Keep at it, we only have mere minutes now before this becomes deadly, he said, trenching the towels again and applying them to the man's fevered form. I obeyed and began to fire commands at the poor man, using every nautical and sailing term I knew of, trying to break through that barrier of illness. For probably five minutes I railed on without stopping, as Watson continued to drench him again and again in the cold water. My heart leapt into my throat as Larklan suddenly went limp under Watson's hands. No. Watson's pained cry sent a pang through my own heart as he fumbled for a pulse, then I saw his eyes widen in disbelief, and he put his hand on the seaman's forehead, holding it there for a few seconds. He slid down to the floor in a limp heap, resting his head on the side of the couch. It broke, Holmes, I heard his faint whisper, nearly inaudible in his intense relief. Larklan. Once again it was peaceful, a great difference to the turmoil that had surrounded me only a moment before. I was on a ship, not the large steamers I was used to, but a light sailing ship from my earlier experiences as a lad. Cool, salt-laden air breezed past me and I took a great breath of it, looking off into the calm waters, up at the sky that, in the absence of a sun or a moon, had become a dazzling map of stars. I did not know why I was here or even the name of the small craft but I felt very much a part of it. It promised a new voyage to lands unseen and places undiscovered. And the boyish enthusiasm that had first taken me to sea rose again in my chest. I felt content, safe, certain that all was right, assured that wherever this little ship was headed I knew how to steer her. The creaking of the wood and the slight sound of the waves lapping at the hull of the ship lulled me into a state of restfulness. 
I closed my eyes, leaning back against the solid wood of the mast. Then a voice broke in on my thoughts, forceful and commanding. A voice that a captain would use to command his seamen. It was familiar somehow, and I had the strangest inclination to follow it. I turned to find its source, and found myself trapped behind a pair of leaden eyelids. Holmes. My breath caught in my throat, so great was the wave of relief that washed over me at Watson's pronouncement, and I put my own hand on the man's forehead to assure myself of the fact. Watson was right, he was no longer burning to the touch. I could see that Watson was shaking from the close call, and I gingerly got down beside him, wincing as the stitches in my side pulled again, glancing at the clock, it was six in the evening. Are you all right? I asked softly. He nodded, not meeting my gaze. I was about to say something more when Larklin moved above us. In an instant Watson was back on his feet, bending over the patient. Larklin. Larklin, can you hear me? Doctor, the seaman's voice was hoarse and softer than usual. It cracked with the effort and strain of what he had just gone through. Yes, old chapter. You need to stay quiet now. I, the man's hand twitched weakly as he struggled to open his eyes, and Watson took it gently patting the man's shoulder in a reassuring fashion. Larklin's eyes finally flickered open, resting first on Watson with a small smile, and then they slowly travelled up to my worried face and fastened upon me for a long moment. I'd surely, hate, to be, a sailor, under a captain, like you, Holmes, he murmured weakly, trying to manage a lopsided grin at me. I could have shouted with relief at the knowledge that he had indeed heard me, but I contented myself with patting his shoulder and speaking quietly. You heard the daughter, Larklin. You must rest now, I said gently. Never, had much stock, in doctors, the man's voice was trailing off now. Watson chuckled, very unsteadily, and got up to pour a glass of water, mixing a powder into it. He slipped a gentle arm under the seaman's head and helped him down the contents handing it to me when empty. Then Watson settled him back on the couch, made sure the pillows were secure under his head, and then went into my room to grab two blankets spreading them over still form and tucking them in tightly. But, think, I'll make, an exception, in your case, Larklin finished his previous sentiment, his blue eyes regaining a very faint twinkle behind the exhaustion. You're a brave man, Larklin, my friend said quietly as the seaman's eyelids began to droop with sleep, and you've put up a good fight. Time to rest now. Remember, doctor, the seaman's voice trailed off, and he brought himself back with an effort opening his eyes once more to gaze at my friend's face as Watson bent over him. Remember what he asked softly? Thou's, thou's made, in storms, doctor, the man murmured, finally succumbing to the pull of the medicine Watson had administered. I was puzzled by Larkin's remark and was about to ask Watson about it as he straightened up at last, when I suddenly had to spring forward and catch him as his legs wobbled and he nearly fell heavily into my arms. Watson. I, I'm fine, Holmes, he gasped rubbing his eyes, just, just a little limp, that's all. I pushed him gently down into my armchair, realizing afresh what a horrible strain he had to have been under, pulling first me and then Larkham from the very brink of the grave, and in such a devastatingly, violent manner. And he had gone through it all alone in my bedroom last night, with no one to help him as we had helped each other with Larkham just now. He was still shaking either from the reaction or fatigue, probably both, and I went to my bedroom feeling none too steady myself actually, and grabbed a blanket for him, returning and wrapping it around his trembling form as he sat there in front of the fire that had died while we worked. I crouched in front of him, wincing as my painful side protested, 
putting a strong hand on his arm. He glanced up at me, and I could see the lurking fear darkening his hazel eyes, the horrors of the last day had not yet begun to dissipate from him. Well done, old chap, I said simply, at a loss for proper sentiments. I felt his tense muscles relax under my grip, and he smiled a very tired thank you. I need to redress that wound, Holmes, he said wearily, rubbing his eyes. It is perfectly fine, Watson, you did an excellent job the first time, I replied firmly, you need to rest now as well, you've had a perfectly dreadful time of it. I shall not argue with either of those last two statements, he whispered, leaning back in the armchair and huddling down into it wearily. I was feeling the strain myself for the two rapid exertions of the afternoon, and I took a few moments as I stood stiffly, to try and regain my equilibrium as my head spun a little. I grasped the mantle until the dizziness passed, and then I looked back down at Watson. He was curled up in my armchair, already fast asleep, wrapped snugly up in the blanket I had put around him. I allowed my lips to curve upward in a fond smile and I checked both my friend and Larkin to see that they were resting comfortably. Larkin shifted a little under my touch but did not waken, Watson was completely dead to the world, apparently. Then I staggered off to my room for a badly needed rest myself. That is, if my mind would slow down from its racing as it was now. Perhaps my time would be better spent thinking about the case instead of sleeping. Besides, one of the men in the sitting room might need me upon waking. Yes, I would spend the next couple of hours in some deep thought. Chapter 11, Calm After the Storm. Chapter 11, Calm After the Storm. Holmes. I sighed and began to refill my pipe. It had been over an hour, the sun had well and truly sunk behind the landscape of the now quiet London, but I had little to show for it. I had the facts, to be sure, but not enough to construct a solid case. Ghost ships that vanished with all hands aboard only to reappear a short time later, it was a clever hiding place, right there in plain sight. Had it not been for the sharp eye of a certain seaman then the thing might have gone unnoticed for some time. But who was hiding it? There was not enough motive, the ships had never been sunk, barely refurbished. But their resale would not be enough to justify the deaths of whole crews, and in some cases, passengers. It was possible that the Lancing Lion was shipping some commodity previously unknown, and for that reason the ships were being pirated, no, for if it was smuggling then who would know to seize the ships? No, there was a deeper motive, and I could not fathom it. I lit the pipe with a sigh. Larkland's vocabulary was having an adverse effect on my own. Another day in his company and my speech would be riddled with nautical terms, though it would be worth it, considering the character of the man, and the strength. He had pulled through that fever quite remarkably. To think that I had been in the throes of the very same illness, and that Watson had faced it alone. I shuddered and took a long draught from my pipe. The motive, money alone could not be the motive, but why else would you attack a ship? And why only the lancing line, which was by no means the wealthiest or on top of the competition, which ruled out the possibility of sullying their reputation, which had already happened? No, not money or competition, then what, personal revenge? Convenience? Or thought pricked in my mind. If the ships were being pirated and disguised, then why had the Lancing not brought back several of its own ships? I smiled as the thought fell smoothly into place. That was the reason that the Lancing had been so eager to keep Larklan out of it. They were trying to protect their reputation, they already knew about the ships. In fact, since they had not purchased the ships it was probable that they themselves had resold them to try and regain some of the profits they had lost along with the ship. And they had to have lost them, there was no other explanation. Not all the ships were being resold 
for only a few had been recovered after the attacks, and they were indeed being attacked, for the deaths of the sailors could not be accidental, not when the incident had been repeated so many times. But what kind of attack? One that left the ship undamaged, and drifting for the Lansing to find. I lapsed into thought, going through numerous scenarios in my head and discarding them one by one. I had very nearly fallen asleep when I heard the clock from the sitting room chime the hour. Ten. It was late. I laid my pipe aside and rose to my feet. I would take a quick turn around the sitting room, just to stretch my limbs and make certain that all was well. It was, quiet and still, broken only by the breathing of the two sleeping men. I paused over Larklan, took his pulse and felt his brow. My worries were boundless, his heartbeats were strong and even, in fact he looked virtually unaffected by the fever, he could easily be sleep. I froze as another thought struck me, and the confused pieces of the puzzle fell neatly into place. It could not be coincidence that Larklan and I had both acquired the same erratic and bizarre fever. It had to have come from the knife and the man wielding the knife had gone after me because I had been questioning about the lancing line. An exotic fever, one that incapacitated a man almost instantly, and was transmitted totally undetected, would be just the way to take over a ship without damage. Much in the way it had taken Larklan without an outward visible mark. A slight murmur drew my attention and I turned to see Watson, his brow furrowed, moving restlessly on the armchair. And I realized just how uncomfortable sleeping on an armchair would be. Watson, I gripped his shoulder and shook it gently. Watson. He sighed and turned his head. I shook harder, he was far too heavy a sleeper. Watson, wake up, old fellow. His eyes flickered open, blinked at the darkness, and then he looked up at me. Holmes, he mumbled, quite bleary with sleep and fatigue. What is it? I laughed softly. I think that you should head to bed, Watson. Bed he glanced round, realized where he was, and surged to his feet, stumbling slightly. I put out a hand to steady him as he spoke. Larklan, is he? He is fine, my dear Watson, I reassured him as he rubbed his eyes wearily, one hand gripping the chair to steady himself. Good, he sighed rather shakily, he really had gone through an enormous strain. Bed, Watson, I said, and he glared at me only half awake. I doubted he would even remember this conversation in the morning. I shall rest, I swear. But you will be no good to Larklan or myself if you collapse of exhaustion, and we need you more than ever, old chapter. You have done enough, go to bed. He glared at me for a moment, and then with a sigh of resignation and a heavy nod he turned and stumbled off towards his room. Good night, old fellow, I called after him, checking on Larklan one last time. I heard a soft good night, Holmes and then his weary footsteps upon the stair. I retired to my room with a smile. Copper-bottomed indeed. Watson. I had woken up that morning with the worst headache I had had in many a month, and in consequence I was rather in an ill temper. The strain of the last two days and the off-schedule I had been on brought with it a bad stress headache, and I stuffed a packet of light pain reliever in my pocket before going down to the sitting room, intending to mix it into my coffee. My consequent sluggishness would be put down by Holmes and our client to being tired as we all must be at this point. My friend and Larklan were already up, and I was very glad to see that both of their faces had returned to their natural complexion, and they both looked a sight better than when I had last seen them. And Larklan appeared to have no lasting damage from the effects of his fever, he had even been able to be up and about a bit, as evidenced by the fact that he had his shirt on now. Both men were drinking a pot of coffee Mrs. Hudson must have prepared, and as I sat wearily down in my chair Holmes poured a cup of coffee, I did milk and a lump of sugar as he knew I took it, stirred it, and handed it to me. 
I am sorry for giving you so much bother yesterday, Doctor, Larkland said, glancing apologetically at me. There's no need to apologize, old man. Not your fault, I replied, stifling a yawn. As Holmes turned a teasing gaze upon me, I felt my face flush. Really, Watson, how can you still be sleepy after fourteen hours of slumber? Holmes teased gently. You try pulling two men out of the grave in the same twenty-four hours period and see how alert you feel afterwards, I declared, downing the rest of my coffee in one gulp, especially when they are as stubborn as the two of you apparently are. Holmes laughed again, and I glared at him a little testily. Our small battle of wills was interrupted by the voice of the sailor. I should really be shoving off, gentlemen. You will do no such thing, I replied sternly, not skipping a beat, you are in no fit state to leave here for at least another couple of hours. Doctor, I am perfectly seaworthy. I shall be the judge of that. Sit down, Larklan, I ordered, looking at the man warningly, telling him not to press his luck with me this morning. I recognized the tone, Larklan, you'd better humor him. Holmes said slyly, he's rather a bear before breakfast, as you can see. I turned my gaze back to Holmes, and I was meanly a little glad to see him fidget a trifle uneasily under my warning glare. But I was in no mood for mind games, and I rubbed a hand uneasily across my eyes as a stab of pain attacked my temples. Holmes's barred sarcasm usually did not bother me in the least, but it seemed a trifle overbearing this morning due to the pain in my head. Finally I drained my coffee cup and walked behind Holmes's chair to my desk. I refilled the cup with coffee and the medicine, turning my back away from Holmes so he would not know that I was taking a pain reliever. Somehow he noticed, however, and as I finished mixing it I felt a hand on my shoulder and looked into a pair of worried grey eyes. I sighed ruefully. Why in the world do you have to be so confounded observant, Holmes? He did not laugh at my attempt at humour but asked me if I was feeling quite well. Just a headache, Holmes, I am fine, I reassured him, and I was not a little pleased to see the amount of concern in his face. I could tell by his manner last night that this business with Larklam had shaken him, knowing how close to death he had come himself and what I had had to go through to bring him back. I downed the coffee in one gulp, hoping the pain reliever would take effect quickly, for I could tell by Holmes's manner that he had done a deal of thinking and we were sure to be back in action today, against my better judgment. Holmes's hand tightened on my shoulder and he was about to say something when Mrs. Hudson arrived with our breakfast, laid it quietly, and left, and I realized suddenly that I had not eaten in nearly twenty-four hours, so hectic had the last day's events been. Larklan had already headed to the table, and Holmes pushed me gently in the direction as well. We had not yet even seated ourselves before there was a rushing of little feet in the hall, and the lad Alfie came plowing into the sitting room amidst Mrs. Hudson's shrieks from downstairs. The boy came to a screeching halt in the room, and then launched himself at Holmes before I could stop him. M.R. Alms. You're all right the boy whooped, hugging my friend's thin form tightly. I saw Holmes's face turn white as the boy unwittingly got too near his injury, and I quickly moved to disentangle the lad, but he stopped me with a shake of the head, an odd softness coming over his face as he gently pushed the boy back and ruffled his ginger hair in an uncharacteristic gesture. Yes, my lad. I am perfectly fine. The doctor said that bloke had tried to kill you. Me and the boys went everywhere, and we couldn't find no sign of the filthy little. I stared in abject shock as the enraged boy let forth a string of expletives that even Larklin stared at. How had that child learned such language? I realized my mouth was gaping open as the sailor started laughing. Never heard a lad what could give lessons to a seaman like myself, 
The man chuckled as Holmes rather awkwardly tried to calm the wound-up little irregular. Oh I sure I'm sorry, Emma Holmes, doctor, we couldn't find no trace of the bloke, the boy said sadly, hanging his head and scuffing at the carpet with the toe of a ragged little shoe. It's all right, Alfie, you did your best, I said soothingly, going over to my desk and retrieving a half a crown from my wallet, and Mr. Holmes and I appreciate it very much. Would you like a scone? Oh I, tired after the lad said, eagerly pocketing the coin and then stuffing his other pockets full of our landlady's treats. Oh I sure I'm glad to see you all right, Emma Holmes, the boy said, turning back to us after grabbing the sweets. Thank you, lad. Give my regards to all the rest of the irregulars, Holmes said with a smile. Right, sir. Morning, gents. Little Alfie took off with Igor down the steps, loudly arguing with Mrs. Hudson over his energetic whooping, and a moment later we heard the front door slam. Holmes, the wound, are you? No, Watson, it's fine, I promise. Just a little rough there for a moment, my friend replied, seating himself at the breakfast table. I followed suit, rubbing wearily at my eyes, that confounded headache. I was going to be in an extremely bad temper if it did not subside soon. Holmes shot me a worried look as he passed the dishes over to me and Larklin. Then Holmes and Larklin began discussing the symptoms of the unusual fever they had both contracted, strange that they had both gotten it, but I supposed Larklin had caught it from Holmes. Odd that I had not, but then, I was used to dealing with germs and perhaps had a stronger resistance for them. I had been listening absently to the conversation, trying to eat something, but my head was pounding so badly I really was not all that hungry. I wished fervently for the next fifteen minutes to pass so that the medicine would take effect and the pain would subside. Holmes shot me a look that told me he had observed the fact that I had eaten next to nothing, which I ignored for the moment, finally pushing back my chair and walking over to the couch, putting away the medical instruments that I had been using the night before and that still remained out, I had been too tired to clean up last night. As I straightened up, Larklin suddenly appeared in front of me and abruptly took the bag out of my startled hands, and then Holmes took me by the arm and pushed me gently into my chair. You, my dear Watson, are not going to do anything today, he said sternly, you have done more work in the last twenty-four hours than any man should have had to do. I glared at both of them, for I sensed a conspiracy. Holmes returned my glare with an inexorable one of his own, and of course, as I always ended up doing, I conceded to his stronger will. Actually, I was rather pleased at his concern, though it really had no foundation, I was merely being testy because of the headache. HNPH. Not the most brilliant of retorts, Watson. I shall leave the sarcasm to the experts such as you, Holmes, I said, allowing some of my irritation to finally leave my tense body as I stretched out in front of the fire, leaning my head against the back of my chair and grinning at my companion. I saw a look of intense relief flood over his face as he snorted at what he called my porky sense of humor, and the tension in his face left slightly as he sat cautiously down in his own chair opposite me, motioning Larklin to the couch. I recognized the look on my friend's face, now that he was sure I was all right, he was about to inform us of his plans. We were now going to chart a course to follow in our quest to solve this odd mystery. I hoped very definitely that the rest of this case would not be as dangerous as it had been so far. How wrong I was. Chapter 12, Tell It to the Marines. Chapter 12, Tell It to the Marines. Tell It to the Marines, a scornful response to a tall and unbelieved story. Watson. Holmes's explanation had been brief and to the point, and did very little to clear up my confusion. 
He was being confoundedly elusive and my head would have ached anew had I not taken the painkiller. Larkin was just as puzzled and cast me a curious glance, I shrugged and moved out of the way as Holmes swept past, throwing on his jacket. M.R.S. Hudson he bellowed as he flung open the door. I saw Larkin flinch, and recalled that he was quite as weary as I. This sort of action would do no good to either him or Holmes, who was still recovering, whether he remembered a fact or not. Holmes, what in heaven's name? I told you, Watson, we are going to speak to the president of the English branch of the Lansing line. Holmes thrust a handful of papers at Mrs. Hudson as she came hesitatingly into the room. Send these off as soon as the telegraph office is open, thank you, Mrs. Hudson. Then he spun the other direction, taking Larkin's jacket from the chair and flinging it to him. He caught it, barely. Larkin, if you are fit enough I think it would be best if you accompany us, for you are the foremost witness we have. Get your coat, Watson. I sighed. How he could change from such a limp individual to a fury of energy so quickly. My thoughts were arrested as my own coat smacked me in the face and fell to the floor as I failed to catch it. I spun to glare at him Holmes. His face twisted in an unwilling smirk and he picked up his stick and hat from the table. Sorry, Watson but it is best that we get up before the morning rush. The light streaming through the window indicated to me that the morning rush was already well underway. I sighed, picked up my jacket from the floor, and turned to make certain of Larklin, who had risen from his place on the couch, a little paler than usual but steady enough on his feet. Holmes was already at the stairs and here he paused, inconvenienced by the stitches in his side. He considered for a moment, tried a position or two, then began gingerly down them in a sort of sideways shuffle. I heard Larkin laugh behind me as I started down and could not help but grin. Holmes cast both of us a glare but continued. He made it down the stairs without incident and then put his powerful voice to use by calling us a cab. He pulled open the door and waved us in with a flourish. Larkin hesitated for a moment, and I got the impression that he was not accustomed to riding in cab nor on attending such business. Come, come, Larkin. I recall you were not quite so shy in alighting into a cab the evening before last, Holmes said with a smile. Larklin laughed at this, shooting him a grin, and climbed in. What is this I asked, seating myself beside the seaman. Holmes closed the door behind us. Let us say, Watson, that a certain reluctant gentleman was relieved of his ride, thanks to our friend's delicate persuasion. Ah, I said, watching as Larklin's face turned a shade darker and he cleared his throat. We shall stop by the haddock to give you a chance to refresh yourself, Larklin, no doubt the lion will be more inclined to listen. Larklin nodded and plucked at his shirt, which was still marked by the sweat of his ordeal yesterday. I myself would appreciate it, Mr. Holmes. One grows used to such conditions at sea but that doesn't mean I enjoy them. I never considered that you did. It was not a difficult matter to make the stop, for the offices were not far from the dockyards and Larkland seemed much more relaxed once clothed in fresh clothing. I noticed that the clothing was of a better quality as well. He truly must be nervous about this errand, and it made me wonder how he had been received the first time he had gone. I recalled his bitter tone when he had recalled the account, and my temper flared slightly, for Larkland was a much finer man than the cut of the cloth he wore. The same thought had occurred to Holmes, for he made it a point to walk behind the seamen as we were ushered into the nicely furnished offices of the Lansing line. A broad-shouldered man sat hunched over a desk. His nose not an inch from the paper on which he was writing, it was obvious that he needed glasses but was too proud to wear them. His suit was clean-cut, probably from Savile Row, 
and his thinning hair was combed severally across his head. He had a hook nose and high cheekbones which gave him a distinct equine look. Mulish might be a good word to describe it. He glanced up as we entered and his thin face darkened at the sight of Larklan, whose usually amiable face had set into a wary scowl. The mulish man set down his pen with a condescending sigh, and clasped his hands in front of him. He looked at our sailor with the air of a parent addressing a particularly stupid child. M.R. Larklan. I really must insist that you cease to disturb my work with your wild tales. I have duties. I could almost see the steam dissipate from the midshipman's skin, but he showed no outward sign at the insult. Instead he folded his arms and looked at the official with a very cool air indeed. Wild tales, Mr. Muir? Where I come from, a friendly warning is heeded and taken seriously. And the last time I checked, all you seamen ever talk about is impossible stories of lost lands and mermaids, or in your case, reappearing ships. That is precisely why I am here, Larkland said quietly, ignoring the barb. Mr. Muir sighed. The ships of our rival lines are none of our affair Mr. Larklin. And acting so impetuously will not earn you gratitude or a higher position. I want no such assistance, not from the likes of you. Then I suggest you curb your tongue or you will never survive in the higher ranks of the Navy midshipmen. This remark made Larklin's face darken, I felt my own mouth open in retort, but Holmes's hand on my arm stopped me. If there is one thing I do not tolerate, it is being called a liar, Mr. Muir. Larklin said, I'm an honest man, far more honest than most could claim, yourself included. The seaman leaned in, bracing his hands against the desk. Mr. Muir glared at the rough, capable fingers. And it is only because I am honest that I have come to you at all, for quite frankly, sir, you disgust me. And I consider your money-grubbing weasel what can't see what's in front of his nose. I'm telling you that your ships, three of which I have worked on with my own hands, are sitting in the docks at this moment, bearing the mark of your rival lines. And your mark as well, yes I know, you have already confessed your acts of vandalism, and they do not impress me in the least. If those ships were indeed mine then I would have you flogged. You looked back to his papers, slipping back into his desk. Now leave these premises before I have you escorted out. Larkland swallowed, and it was evident he was only just controlling his rage. M.R. Muir, men, your own men, and many good friends of mine have gone missing. Ships go down all the time, Mr. Larklin. And just because one of your grog partners wasn't lucky enough to be on one of them is no concern of mine. Now leave or I shall make you. It is my intent. It is my intent that you go from here now. I do not wish to cause a scene but if you force my hand, M.R. Pruitt, a rather burly fellow, with an exceedingly low brow, rose from his seat outside the office and came into the room, a look of mock concern on his face. Yes, sir. Would you be kind enough to show Mr. Larkin the door a little more forcefully than you did last time? It seems your message has not yet gotten through to him. I felt a wave of indignation sweep through me at those words, and I realized just exactly the sort of treatment Larkin must have received upon his first visit. The idea of scumbags such as these throwing Larkin anywhere turned my stomach. The fact that he had saved the life of my greatest friend and was now one of my patients, and my rage mounted to a level it rarely reached. My fists clenched and as the brute reached out towards Larklin, who in his weakened condition could not possibly resist such an attack, I found myself stepping between them. Pruitt blinked, and his face darkened. Get out of the way, mate, I have no quarrel with you. You do if you intend to lay a finger on this man, I said. Larklin shifted behind me but said nothing. You're growled, 
This is ridiculous, who are you? Pruitt, get them out of here. I think not, Mr. Muir, came the voice of Sherlock Holmes, and I sighed in relief, for Pruitt was a very powerful looking man. Muir glared at my friend who smiled amiably back, his hat and stick in hand. Who are you? he repeated. My name is Sherlock Holmes, and this is my friend and colleague Dr. Watson. You received our card I believe, but you were rude enough not only to ignore them but also to ignore our presence when we entered. Holmes, Muir glared at my friend, but the look was not without respect. What business do you have here, sir? I have been engaged by Mr. Larkin to investigate the mystery surrounding, how did you put it, your reappearing ships? Muir sighed, the indulgent look back on his face again. Mr. Holmes, I do not know what stories this man has been telling you, but it is absolutely no concern of yours. I swore softly at the man's cheek and the word made Larkin raise a brow. But again Holmes intervened. It is very much my affair, Mr. Muir, not only because it had been brought to me by a worthy and trusted client but because it concerns the deaths of quite a few innocent men. Muir glared at Holmes, his patience gone very quickly. I have no desire to speak with you sir. I suggest you and your friends leave. It would be wise of you to listen, Mr. Muir, for it is for the sake of your company that we have come. And there is a chance that a great disaster can be averted and many lives saved if you cooperate. Double quote. Is that a threat, Mr. Holmes Muir said getting to his feet. Holmes let out a short barking laugh and managed to spoil any effect the action might have had by seating himself at the same moment. Muir's glare turned to more of a pout and he managed to look rather foolish despite the fact that he loomed over Holmes who smiled up at him rather cheekily, obviously in the dominant position despite his posture. No, Mr. Muir, it is not a threat but a warning, I am not as you seem determined to believe, your enemy. Not yet. Muir bristled, like a dog who has scented something he does not like. What do you want from me then? Holmes chuckled, rolling his head. Want? Mr. Muir, we want nothing from you but a few moments of your time. I have given you that already and have proven yourself ungentlemanly and exceedingly inhospitable from the unfortunate moment we have walked through your door. Muir sighed, looked at Larklin and I and our defensive positions, and waved Pruitt away. I looked to Holmes and he nodded. I believe you can sit down, Watson. No one here will touch Mr. Larklin, I promise you, he cast a stern glance at Muir, who said nothing. I seated myself beside Holmes and after a moment of further hesitation, Larklin sat on Holmes' other side a very uncomfortable look on his face. Thank you, Holmes said, turning back to Muir. There is a distinct lessening of tension. Say what you have come to say, Mr. Holmes, Muir said, and perhaps I can persuade you of the folly of what this man has told you. Mr. Larklin is an honest man, his observations were entirely correct. And it is only because of your pig-headedness that he was forced to come to me. And as being in your presence disgusts not only him, but me as well, then I shall be brief. Muir seemed rather taken aback and for once said nothing. In the last year you have lost over twenty ships in the same waters on their return journey from Indonesia. Muir nodded, the irritation clear on his face. Yes, yes. The first several were only cargo ships, but a few after that carried passengers. Mr. Holmes, I don't see what this possibly. Holmes raised his voice, the amusement gone entirely from his face. And you reported that all twenty of them went down with all hands cargo, and passengers. Without a sign, vanished completely. Yes. Larkin tensed on Holmes' other side and looked as though he would like to growl at the fellow. The detective laid a hand on his arm, his voice very cold. It is you who are the liar, Mr. Muir, 
for you have recovered eight of those ships in the last three months, and after refurbishing them you sold them to your rivals to cover the fact that they had been lost at all. Why are you the man spat, beginning to make his way around the desk? You sent expeditions after them, for their number is too great to merit their disappearance to mere chance. The first of those expeditions found the ship, the Beshima, I believe it was, and discovered that not only was the ship and the cargo intact but that the entire crew were present. Muir was shaking now, his teeth bared. Holmes glared at him with a gaze of cold steel that made even me shudder. His thin lips pressed together in a stern line, his black brows like thunderheads heralding a storm. The crew were dead, Mr. Muir, every one of them from the captain down to the youngest hand. They had been like that for some time, for they had already begun to degrade rapidly, but there was enough to tell that their bodies were unmarked by violence just as the ship was. You suspected poison, or fever, commanded the ship to be purged, and then resold it. Muir had gone white, and he stared at Holmes with a sort of horror. Holmes had risen from his chair and begun to pace slowly, like a professor in lecture. I exchanged a look with Larkin who looked just as surprised and in fact as ill as I did. At least I was not the only one. And that was not a first incident. You recovered eight more of the ships, and treated them all in the same manner, choosing to cover them for fear of scandal instead of investigating the matter as you should have. Making you, in my eyes, as equally guilty of murder as the fiends that committed these atrocities. Neil swallowed and took a moment to collect himself, fiddling with his tie. Holmes watched him, as calm and as cool as a cat. Even if this wild story were true, Mr. Holmes, it does not explain what you are doing here. I believe you know why I am here, Mr. Muir. You have agents in the pubs, I know quite a few of them. I very much doubt that they have missed the rumors. Muir's face scrunched and he controlled his rage only with effort. I do not deal in rumors, Mr. Holmes. I don't know what you are talking about. Holmes sighed, the rumors about your passenger ship, the Friesland, which is at this very moment ready to sail for India. And which will be set upon long before she reaches it. By the same group. Muir laughed but it was without mirth. Oh really, Mr. Holmes, you go too far, the greatest care has gone into the planning of this voyage, just what would you have needed to prevent this disaster? Holmes' expression did not change. You know the answer to that as well, sir. If you were wise you would cancel the voyage, for if you continue in this manner then you will bring about a scandal that you are so poorly covering, and there will be an outcry throughout the civilized world that has not been heard in decades. A silence fell as Muir glared at Holmes the truth of my friend's statements painfully obvious on his face. Then he swallowed and spoke in a strained voice. You are mad. Holmes glared at him. If you decide to cease your foolish actions, then you should know where to reach me, it is on the cards that you failed to observe. Larklin, Watson, I suggest we leave, the air here is exceedingly foul in here. My friend snapped this off at a rapid clip, and then without ceremony took up his hat and his stick and swept from the room leaving Larklin and I to follow in his wake. Mr. Muir stayed at his desk, staring at his white fists, clenched on the polished wood. We caught up to Holmes as he waved down a cab, and climbed in. Holmes, I called after him. Holmes, where did that come from? Deduction and observation, Watson, as it always has. My efforts that night at the docks were not entirely wasted. I learned a great deal. Larklin climbed in after us, a fever took the ships, how, who? That is the question, Holmes muttered falling silent, brooding, obviously frustrated. I sighed and gave the directions to the cabbie, casting an apologetic glance at the midshipman. Larkin returned the look with a worried one of his own, but there was nothing either of us could do but sit back and wait out the ride in a sober silence. 
At long last we reached Baker Street and Holmes came to life again, flinging open the door. Larkin gripped at his arm suddenly, and the detective turned to face him. The sailor gave him a stern look. You know who it is, Mr. Holmes, you have a theory. Now who is it? Holmes considered him, then me, and I gave him the same pointed look. The detective sighed. I can think of only one man with such a knowledge of exotic Indonesian fevers and the motive and necessary cunning to use them. His name is Culvertin Smith. Chapter 13, Charting a Course. Chapter 13, Charting a Course. Watson. Holmes jumped down out of the cab and paid the driver, as calmly as if he had not just made such a dreadful pronouncement. Holmes. He unlocked the door of the house, oblivious to my calls, and I sighed and helped Larklin out. The seaman looked a trifle shaky, and no wonder, such a fever as that could debilitate a man, no matter how strong he usually was. I took him up to the sitting room and settled him on the couch with a pillow and a drink. Holmes came out of his bedroom, pipe in hand, and with an extremely excited look on his face at the knowledge he had just told us. That is the answer, I am sure of it. Smith is loose, Watson, he has to be he exclaimed, striking a match, completely unaware of the wave of horror that was sweeping over me. I took a deep breath, willing my mind to disbelieve what Holmes had just stated as calmly as if he were discussing the weather outside. He is not alive, Holmes, he died in prison a year or so back I protested desperately. Holmes raised his eyebrows. How do you know? I saved the article, old habit I suppose, I said, my face flushing slightly, I still try to keep up with such things on my own after your death, Holmes. My friend's face started a slight blush of his own at my words. To cover our embarrassment I got up, striding over to my desk, and pulled out a scrapbook rather like Holmes's own, in which I had pasted articles and so on of criminal news from his hiatus years. I began to flip through it slowly, walking back to my friend. Here, I said, finally locating the clipping and shoving the book over to Holmes. He took it and read the terse paragraph, which merely stated that Smith had died alone in prison, hanging himself in his cell with a twisted blanket. The article was only a tiny paragraph with no details. Holmes shut the book thoughtfully and looked at me, his grey eyes narrowing. I still would wager he is alive, Watson, he said thoughtfully, to fake a death in order to escape from prison has been done before, many times. And especially, a man of Smith's intellect would have no difficulty whatsoever in engineering such a feat. I swallowed hard round the lump of fear in my throat, if that were true, Culvertin Smith was alive. He was alive somewhere out there in the world, possibly even here in London. And learning of Holmes's return from the grave, Smith would no doubt be coming after him in revenge. He had said as much that horrible day in 1990, when I had been forced to listen to that dreadful confession from Smith that he had killed Holmes with a deadly disease. Granted, Holmes was not really in any danger, but the thought of how close the call was still to this day frightened me. I had long ago forgiven my friend for his deception in the case though I had not quite forgotten it, and the only emotion I felt now about the case was a relief that Holmes had not really been infected. But now, if my friend were right, this madman was loose upon the world, and heaven only knew what he was planning to do with the dangerous knowledge he possessed. Adding his madness to the fact that he had a personal vendetta against Holmes, I was very deathly afraid of what would happen if Smith took it into his head to come after Holmes again. I took up a scrapbook hoping to hide my shaking hands and the emotion on my features by walking back over to my desk and putting it back in position, but Holmes had already seen the look on my face, and he gingerly arose from his seat and followed me over to stand by the window. Watson. It will be fine. 
please stop worrying so, he said reassuringly, looking at me with a calm I wished I could possess. Fine. This man is a deranged maniac with a grudge against you, Holmes. You heard him as well as I when Morton arrested him four years ago, he said he would revenge himself on you, and now that he has found out you are alive, he will devote his energies to that I said, wishing my voice would hold still. He tried once to get rid of me, Watson, and failed. He will not succeed on a second attempt either, Holmes returned firmly. You cannot know that. Yes, I can, old fellow, he replied calmly, because I am not foolish enough to tackle him alone this time, I have the best help possible now to watch my back. I am not worried, and neither should you be. I started, staring at him in surprise, and he smiled at me reassuringly and went back to stand by the fire, lighting his pipe. After a tense moment, I quietly went back to my chair and sat. Larklin had been watching this discussion from the couch, and now he spoke up wearily. Pardon my asking, gentlemen, but I have to admit I've never heard of the man, and I'm rather confused. I was silent, and Holmes glanced at me before telling Larklin what had transpired those years ago in the Smith case. I had not yet written up that particular case, for the pain and fear of the memory was still too poignant for me to be summed up in cold black print. The seaman's tired eyes widened as Holmes stated what had happened in the Smith case and then tied in the connection between the news article and the knife he had been stabbed with. The knife. Holmes. That knife, if Smith is responsible, that knife could have had some germ on it like he tried on you before I gasped, my hand clenching on the arm of my chair, the deadly thought turning me sick. Watson, calm down Holmes said sharply, but his eyes betrayed his concern despite his curt words, I am perfectly fine. Even if that were true, I have survived it and so has Larklin, so for heaven's sake, man, get a grip on yourself. I am sorry, I whispered, dropping my gaze. I really was not thinking clearly, I was so very tired. I rubbed wearily at my temples with a grimace of pain, feeling that throbbing headache of this morning coming back. I felt two strong hands drop onto my shoulders and grip them tightly, willing me to calm down. I took a deep breath, trying to relax myself and the hand stayed as the discussion continued. Are you saying, Mr. Holmes, that this Smith character is behind the ship's disappearing Larklin asked, raising himself gingerly on one elbow? It is a theory, at least, I heard my friend's voice above me, there is definitely a connection between whatever was on that knife and our unusual illnesses. Tropical diseases point to Smith, as does the fact that the ships all disappear somewhere near Indonesia. Why is that I asked, my voice steady now? Because, Watson, Smith was a well-known resident of Sumatra before he came to live in London. An outbreak of disease started on his plantation there and wiped out his working force, plunging him into debt. He came to his London residence to live and to research our tropical diseases and their cures. And you think that there was some germ on that knife that caused that odd fever Larklin asked? I agree, there had to have been something odd, I interjected, my nerves starting to calm down under the matter-of-fact discussion for such a sudden coming on of a fever and such a rapid escalation in temperature is definitely not the normal, even for a severe infection. Holmes's hands tightened once more on my shoulders before releasing, and then he walked over to his chemical table, extremely gingerly handling the knife he had placed there before we left. It is a fair deduction to say that the germ, the virus, or whatever the case may be, is only transmitted through the bloodstream, he mentioned, setting the instrument down once more, because you have not gotten it. Watson, even though you were physically in close contact with both Larklin and myself. I nodded in agreement. So rest easy, Watson, 
whatever it is, it is not the disease Smith tried to give me in our last encounter, for that one was contagious by touch, you remember? All too well, Holmes, I said dryly, remembering indeed Holmes's poor choice of words when he was trying to prevent me from coming near him in his sick room four years ago. Some odd expression I could not identify flitted briefly across his gaunt face before it was replaced by a pained expression, and he sat down heavily opposite me, wincing at the strain he was causing to his injury. I rose at once and got my medical bag, fumbling around in it for a roll of bandaging and the antiseptic. Not now, Watson. Yes, now, Holmes, I retorted, I'm in no mood to argue with you, I was supposed to do this last night and I fell asleep. Now take off your shirt. Holmes glared at me, but he finally relented when he saw my no-nonsense look and tone and removed his jacket and shirt, allowing me to check and rebandage the wound. It appeared to show no sign of further infection, for which I was devoutly grateful, and it took only a few minutes to wrap fresh bandaging around the injury. Holmes buttoned up his shirt once more as I put the supplies back in the bag, rummaging through it for another small pain reliever. What course are you charting for us now? Holmes I heard Larklin ask as I located the paper packet. We are going to have to get aboard the ship the Friesland before she sets sail tomorrow night, Holmes stated matter-of-factly. What I asked incredulously, pouring the powder into a glass and adding water. Holmes shot me a concerned look but said nothing about the fact that I was taking medicine. Yes, Mr. Holmes, the ship sails in less than two days, and she's sure to be booked solid, a steamer of that size and expense Larklin exclaimed. I have already put a plan into motion that I believe will land us all three on board with relatively little difficulty, Holmes said, rubbing his hands together gleefully, that is, if you are willing to sign on as a hand, Larklin. Larklin stared at Holmes for a long minute, while I gulped down the foul-tasting medicine I had just mixed. I have to say, Mr. Holmes, when I signed on with the two of you, I didn't expect to be at sea so soon, he said solemnly but then I saw his eyes twinkle with a brilliant blueness and he continued with a crinkling grin. But if ye think I can be of help, I shall be glad to stow my gear with you. You have already been an enormous help, Larklin, I spoke up as I set my glass down, rubbing at my temples, you saved Holmes's life on the docks, and I for one owe you an unrepayable debt for that. Holmes shot me an odd look as I spoke, but Larklin headed off anything he was about to say. Yes, well, you both returned the favor for this old salt last night, so we can consider the score even, now can't we? How exactly are you proposing to get me a berth on the Friesland in two days, Holmes? Well, I... Holmes was cut off by a familiar speedy tramping of small feet upon the stairs, and I smiled as the door burst open to reveal our little irregular, wielding a sheaf of yellow envelopes. Air's the answers to yeah wires, Emma Rollins the lad said, out of breath from his run. The boy bounced over to the detective, handed him the papers, and then skipped back to me. Got anything good to eat, doctor he asked in a conspiratorial whisper. I smiled, the lad's bright face putting a little ray of sunshine through the pain that was clouding my mind. I rather think Mr. Holmes has a tin of biscuits around here somewhere, Alfie, I returned, rummaging through the sideboard drawers, perhaps, ah yes, here you are. Core, tar doctor the boy exclaimed glancing at Holmes to ensure he was not being seen raiding the detective's stash of sweets. After the boy had sufficiently stuffed his pockets, I knelt back down to put the tin away, and I suddenly turned to look into a pair of little green eyes that were gazing at me suspiciously. What's wrong, Alfie? Are you all right, Doctor? You look fair sick to me, the boy said frankly, 
fixing those green orbs on me with a sharpness that surprised me in one so young. Some of my tension left me at the lad's words, and I smiled. I have a slight headache, Alfie, nothing to worry about, I said softly, ruffling the boy's ginger hair as I stood up. He scowled knowingly at me and ran a little hand back through the tangled mess with a grimace, and I laughed at his indignant face. How we were both startled when Holmes's vociferous exclamation grabbed our attention, I've done it. Done what, Holmes? Gordoner's passage on the Friesland, Watson my friend said, nearly bouncing in his excitement. I went back over to my chair, and Alfie somehow scrambled up onto my desk to look over Holmes's shoulder at the telegrams. Do you remember my mentioning Amos Camionia, of Grenoble, Watson? The fellow who made that grotesque bust of you that you insist upon keeping on your bedside table? It is not grotesque, Holmes cried indignantly. Tis to the irregular jumped to my defense. Fair flip me and wig out th last time we was air, give me thwim whams, that blasted thing did, with them bullet holes in forehead. I snickered, and I heard Larkin join me as we laughed at the look Holmes sent over his shoulder to the boy behind him. Anyhow, Watson, if you will be so kind as to listen, stop that, Alfie. You are getting crumbs all over my shoulder. This French artist Mjolnir I met about a year ago while I was studying with some scientists in France. I did him a huge favor when a number of his choicest pieces of art were stolen, and after I recovered the articles safely he told me if I ever needed a favor to not hesitate to call upon him. I stared at Holmes as he rattled off this list of facts concerning a part of his hiatus. He must have noticed the eager story-hunting look on my face as I was about to ask him for particulars regarding this art case, for he hurried on before I could ask any questions. The fellow knows a good deal of people, he has many connections in his own country and ours. He knew of two fellow artists that were planning to travel on the Friesland, and as a favor to M. Mjolnir and if we can refund the gentleman's money, then they are willing to give up their staterooms to us. Then we are on the steamer, Holmes, but what about Larklam? The crew has to already be set, I said, puzzled. My furrowed brow relaxed as I saw Alfie accidentally drop a piece of a biscuit into Holmes's hair and look frantically at me with a silent panicked appeal for help. I had a laugh behind a cough as Holmes went on, totally oblivious to us both, and I could hear Larkin trying not to snicker, as the lad peered down from his perch nervously at the offending edible. I also have this wire here, Holmes said, tossing it to me. I opened the paper and read it. Captain Basil. My name in the docking areas, Watson, Holmes informed me, having connections in the shipping offices and the docking offices has its perks, and I have taken advantage of my double identity as Captain Basil there more than once. You're to report to the Friesland early tomorrow morning, Larklan, if you're willing. The ship sets sail tomorrow night at ten. Alfie. What the devil are you doing? The lad had been carefully trying to remove the piece of biscuit out of Holmes's hair and only succeeded just now in pulling his black locks accidentally. As Holmes turned a scathing glare in the boy's direction, he flew off the desk and nearly jumped on me for protection, hiding his face in my waistcoat. I could not repress my laughter at Holmes's face, and Larkin was roaring with mirth on the couch. Alfie, I think perhaps you had better be getting along, I said, still chortling, standing and setting the boy on his feet before Mr. Holmes has a heart attack. I went over to my desk to grab some change for the lad as he said goodbye to Holmes, and while my back was turned I heard a low-voiced exchange that warmed my heart considerably. M.R. Holmes, you'd better look after the dottery and look good to me. I shall, Alfie, do not worry. Double quote. You better, M.R. Holmes, 
You ain't gonna find another bloke like I'm in an hundred years. I have come to realize that, lad, believe me, I heard Holmes say softly, and I smiled as I grabbed the change out of my wallet, noticing absently that my headache seemed to have subsided slightly. Strange how the honesty of one little child could brighten up an otherwise irritating day. Chapter 14, Distant Thunder. Distant Thunder. Watson. As the door shut behind our little friend Alfie, I passed a hand over my eyes and sat heavily down in my chair. Holmes had walked over to the desk and was once again studying that devilish knife, being careful to not get near the blade. I do wish I could know what I am looking for, he growled, I cannot perform experiments at random, hoping to isolate some germ. Where do you suppose Smith is now, Holmes I asked wearily. I have one of those odd feelings, Watson, that led me to believe he might even be in London. Perhaps, perhaps he might even be taking the Friesland back to India and so on to Sumatra. He, he might be on the ship. Especially if he has found out that I am alive, I would think him to be in London now. And he has ways of finding out what I am up to. It is very possible. The seaman looked at me worriedly, then at Holmes, and stood, cautiously stretching himself. Well, gentlemen. If I am to be aboard the Friesland this time tomorrow, I have a good many things to see to first. I shall bid you both good day. Let me call you a cab, Larklan, I said, rising from my seat. I was surprised when the man grasped my shoulders and pushed me back down into my chair with a firm grip. You have done quite enough for me, doctor, he said, his blue eyes losing their twinkle and taking on an earnest gaze, and I thank you. But I shall be perfectly fine now, have no fear. Promise me you will call a cab then, Larklan, you cannot walk all the way back to the dockyards, no matter how well you feel right now, I said, looking up at him warningly. I am not such a fool as to chance a relapse when you and Mr. Holmes are expecting me to show tomorrow, doctor, the man assured me, pulling on his cloth cap. Then until tomorrow, Mr. Larklan, I said, shaking his hand firmly. Until tomorrow. Good day, Mr. Holmes. Good day, Larklan. Holmes pulled himself out of his study and showed the man to the door, shaking his hand as he left. I leaned back in my chair and closed my eyes, that confounded headache was only just now starting to subside, but I could still feel the throbbing behind my eyes from stress and fatigue. I felt a hand on my arm and opened my eyes to look into a pair of worried grey ones a few inches from my face. How's your head? It is getting better, I said, smiling at his concern. He probably had been worried at the beginning that I might have contracted that horrid fever. No, I had had stress headaches before, many times because of Sherlock Holmes, that was part and parcel of the deal of living with the world's greatest consulting detective. You know I'm a little worried about that headache. Holmes, for heaven's sake, anyone who has to live with you is prone to headaches with fair regularity I teased, now that the pain had subsided slightly. Watson, are you implying I am responsible for it? You are the deducing machine, Holmes, figure that one out for yourself. I let my eyes twinkle at his indignation, and he snorted a laugh. But then his gaze darkened again. Are you sure you have no other symptoms? No fever, Holmes, I promise. I would know. And besides, I have had this lovely little headache for nearly six hours now, your and Larkin's symptoms showed up after only two. It is only a stress headache, nothing more. Now you are the one who needs to stop worrying, not I. I saw a look of relief cross his face, and he sat back on his heels to inspect my condition and deduce it for himself. What he saw must have taken away his worry, for he smiled and spoke again. Do you feel up for a walk? A walk? Holmes, your stitches. Come on, Watson, 
I want to get us both out of this sitting room for a while, Holmes said earnestly, we've spent far too much intense time in here the last two days for my taste. Will you come? Please? I was not about to offend him by declining his offer, and I never have been able to tell him no when he turned that particular pleading look in my direction, reminiscent of a tiny puppy dog begging for its daily treat. Don't throw my coat at me again, I warned, pulling myself out of my chair slowly. Holmes laughed, fetched the article, and patiently held it until I took it from him. The throbbing in my temples had begun to at last recede, and I actually was very glad to be walking about London with Holmes once more, forgetting about the case for a little while at least and just strolling round like we used to so often. We wandered up Oxford Street, Holmes pulled me into that curiosity shop to show me that microscope he wanted so badly, and I made a mental note to come back and get the thing so that I would not be forced to hear a lecture about it every time we pass the shop. Then we made our way to Hyde Park to see some of our old haunts. I fell into a nostalgic mood as we walked along, in silence for the most part, letting the warm breeze blow away the stress and pain of the last few days and clear my mind wonderfully. I let out a contented sigh as we reached the gates of the park, we had not been here since Holmes's return yet, so busy had we been. Feel better now? Yes, indeed, I replied. Just what the doctor ordered he asked teasingly. I chuckled, one could not stay in a bad mood for long in the company of Sherlock Holmes. The silence broke and my good humor restored, we began to talk about the most odd topics in the world, as we used to do. Holmes had the somewhat frustrating habit of bringing up the most randomly assorted pieces of information and jumping back and forth among them without giving my slower brain time to catch up, but I just walked and listened and let him ramble, for that was what we had always done. We sat on a bench for a while to give Holmes a chance to rest, I was very worried about those stitches pulling loose, though my friend insisted that they were fine. And as we sat, he entertained me with trying to coerce me into a deducing game with him about the people who passed us. What have you make of that fellow over there, the one in the brown coat and bowler? Holmes, I am not your brother, and as such I am not going to play brain games with you. Thank the dear Lord you are not my Croft, I could not live with you if you were, Holmes muttered. I laughed aloud at that, and my companion snickered as well. I cannot imagine how you two got along as children, Holmes. Or rather didn't get along, he said with a grin. Mycroft was never tolerant of someone who tore the blank pages out of the back of his books to make litmus paper for experiments. Oh, is that why the back pages of my dictionary are missing I asked, eyeing him for his reaction. I never touched your dictionary. I laughed again, the warm contented feeling spreading over me and finally banishing the vestiges of that black mood I had been in earlier. I was teasing, Holmes, I told him with a grin, and I saw a look of relief cross his face. What did Mycroft do to you when he found out? That, my dear chap, will forever remain a classified secret in my brother's archives, Holmes said uncomfortably, suffice it to say, he was rather less forgiving than you are, Watson. I laughed again at that as Holmes pulled me gently to my feet and we set off again through the park. Holmes? Yes, my dear fellow? About this Muirnir chapter? Ah, your story censors went up at that, did they? MMHM. He laughed easily and began to tell me of the case in which he had traced Mirnier's missing art halfway across France, finally ending in Paris. You have not been to Paris since 1987, have you Watson, when we were in that stolen Diara investigation? No, I have not. We did not hit Paris on our trek through the continent running from Moriarty, did we I asked, trying to remember hazy events of that dreadful week. No, no. 
We went through Dieppe and then Belgium. We shall have to go back to Paris sometime, Watson, just the two of us, it has changed rather much in the last seven years. I think you would enjoy it, my friend replied thoughtfully. Are you actually offering to take me on a holiday without a case to arrest your attention I asked in astonishment. Well, that's what I thought, I said with a laugh. We wandered on into the more fashionable district of town, just enjoying each other's company and conversation, until I realized I was exceedingly hungry. I had been in too much pain to eat much breakfast, and Holmes's exuberant plans of earlier had negated any possibility of having lunch. I determined that we would end this day in rather more a pleasant fashion than our last two had begun. Holmes? Hum? How does dinner at Simpsons strike you? Simpsons, Watson? I am afraid that after those esteemer tickets. I laughed and smiled. Never mind, Holmes, I am paying. Holmes frowned. I can't let you do that, old fellow. Yes, you can, I said, stepping out of the way of even more foot traffic. I sold my practice not more than two weeks past and I, as our colonial relatives so colorfully put it, am loaded. Holmes let out a short bark of laughter. Still, Watson, I cannot. Yes, you can, I repeated firmly, we are almost there, and I am hungry, your mad dash did not allow for any lunch. Unless you choose to join me, then you shall simply have to stand about waiting while I eat. Holmes let out a resigned sigh and smiled. Oh, very well, Watson. You can be infernally stubborn. I'm surprised it has taken you this long to deduce it, I said, eliciting a glare from him. We walked in comfortable silence for a few moments, needing no words to fill the empty air. Then I broke it, spotting my chance to resolve a little matter that had been bothering me for over a week. Quite a generous chap, Mr. Verner. Holmes was watching the crowd distractedly. Hum? You remember the gentleman who purchased my practice, he took it at the first price I suggested. Not a bit of haggling. Young and ambitious, but he did not strike me as being particularly wealthy. I observed my friend out of the corner of my eye. He had stiffened slightly, and was staring at the man in front of him with a good deal more concentration than was usual. I went on, do you know that the surname Werner was originally French? I meant to ask the fellow about it but he vanished, seems he did not need the practice after all, for now it belongs to a Mr. Blackwell, an aging country doctor with too much money. Hum, Holmes said again, still staring determinately ahead. That fellow's coat must be truly fascinating, Holmes, if you can stare at it for five minutes straight. The detective cleared his throat. Nonsense, Watson, I was thinking. Um, still, I wouldn't have been surprised, for you cannot stop yourself from deducing the most embarrassing facts about every poor soul that passes beneath your gaze. One becomes accustomed to it, Holmes said, looking at me and then away again. It was quite clear that he wished the subject to pass. I did not choose my powers of observation. No, no of course not, art in the blood and all that. Holmes opened his mouth but I beat him to the punch. Fernie, wasn't it? Pardon his voice was rather tentative. Fernie, your grandmother was the French artist's sister? You claimed to have inherited your talents from her. Yes, Watson, I am quite aware of my own relatives, his thin face was flushed slightly, he was truly not looking at me now. Odd, it seems to me you don't know them quite as well as you should, considering the fact that your distant cousin makes a habit of going about London buying up medical practices at the asking price. We had reached Simpsons by this time and I entered before Holmes could reply, grinning at his surprised face. He regained his composure quickly and hurried after me. Watson. I frowned and fixed him with a stern gaze, 
trying desperately not to laugh at his semi-panicked expression. Really, Holmes. Watson, let me explain. Your own cousin. Watson. Your own money as well, no doubt. To think that you objected to my paying for dinner. Watson he stopped and glared at me in frustration. Will you listen to me for a moment? Yes, but at the table, I am famished. Holmes growled but followed and soon we were seated at our customary table beside the windows, where Holmes could observe the flood of humanity as it filed past, like specimens for his examination, his cold gaze the tool that he used to dissect the mystery surrounding them. Only tonight he was not looking at them but glaring at me, his elbows on the table and his hands clasped before him. I struggled to sober my expression. Really, Holmes, Thurga? Did you just expect me to let it go at the drop of a hat? That I might not be the least bit curious as to how my practice was progressing under his hand? He's not even a medical student, is he? I imagine the degree was forged. Holmes held a glare for a moment and then sighed. You know, Watson, you were a good deal easier to fool in our earlier years at Baker Street. No, Thurno is a genuine practitioner, but he plans to go to South Africa on a relief mission, he did this as a favor to me. I never believed you would be tenacious enough to check his background. You used to be far more trusting. Yes, I know. Which is why I believed you when you first said the upper room at our flat would be far more quiet and so beneficial to my than fragile health. One gets exceedingly weary of those stairs after years of traipsing up and down them, old fellow, I replied, very much enjoying seeing my friend's face as he seemed to splutter for words. Holmes indeed looked extremely sheepish and had opened his mouth to say something, but was interrupted by the arrival of our waiter, and then the subsequent serving of our meals. By the time our table had settled again Holmes's irritation had mellowed somewhat and he looked at me directly for the first time since the subject was introduced. We locked gazes, and started to laugh, earning a severe and very disapproving look from an elderly gentleman seated across from us. We quieted on the instant like two guilty little schoolboys and Holmes cut into his woodcock, quivering with silent laughter. Forgive me, Watson. I fear that if you did not find a buyer. I waved it off. Never mind. I am sure that Mr. Blackwell paid your cousin a handsome price and that you were subsequently reimbursed. I must say, Holmes, that Fespianism runs in your family as well. At the time Werner took me in entirely. As you have done many times. I trailed off as a new and very sobering thought pushed itself to the forefront of my mind, and I placed my utensils on my plate, my appetite somewhat lost. Holmes had been eating quite tenaciously but now took notice of my silence and his brows drew together in concern. Watson, are you all right? I sighed. Are you not the least bit worried, Holmes? Holmes laid down his fork and turned his full attention to me, his brow furrowing with concern. What about, my dear fellow? I felt a touch of irritation but brushed it aside, now was not the time for such things. About Smith, Holmes. Holmes frowned. Watson, I have already told you, he did not succeed in killing me the last time, I was on my guard, and now I am even more so. I have you, and Mr. Larklin also it seems, to watch my back. He has killed whole ships of men, if your deductions are correct. Because that idiot Muir refused to take precautions. I sighed and rested my head in my hand. I almost preferred a headache to this dread. But my head was perfectly clear now, and I understood fully the implications of Smith's involvement. Watson. At his quiet voice I looked up to see my friend staring at me earnestly. I promise you nothing will happen to me. We have beaten him once. We shall do so again. His word was steady, and meant to be reassuring, but somehow I could not quite believe him. 
Tomorrow we would be on a ship that was going to be at some point attacked by one of the most dangerous madmen alive, a man who had caused me to quiver with the greatest of fears. I could almost see the storm clouds beginning to loom over us and the distant thunder of danger on the horizon. I met Holmes's steady gaze and could not repress the memory of him delirious and in pain upon his bed, the sound of Smith's voice as he leant over the man I thought to be helpless, while I hid in the same room, witnessed to every word of what could have been my friend's death sentence. I dropped my gaze, not wanting Holmes to see the emotion I knew must be evident in my features. The years had not dulled the pain and horror of that awful night. Act or no, it had been all too, too real to me. This time it could be, it almost had been already. I pray you are right, Holmes, I said at last, aloud my voice was steady, lifting my fork so as not to worry him further. For all our sakes. Chapter 15, Shake a Leg. Chapter 15, Shake a Leg. Shake a leg, nautical term meaning to rouse yourself from sleep and get out of bed. Holmes. The sound was quite loud enough to reach even my bedroom. And I found it impossible to continue my slumber through the ruckus. I jerked my head up from the pillow with a grumble, brushing my hair back and scrambling for the watch which lay on my bedside table. 4.21 I snapped to the still air in frustration. I had never placed much importance on the need of sleep, but even I had my limits. I threw back my covers and pulled on my dressing gown, then surged from the bedroom. M.R.S. Hudson. W.H.O. The devil is at the door? My voice rang unanswered down the dark stairwell. I took another deep lungful of air. M.R.S. Hudson, will you answer the door? There was no answer, the pounding continued, the infernal woman had to be asleep still. Not that I blamed her. There was a muffled thump in the room above mine and a faint voice. The sound had awoken Watson as well. Another bout of pounding rattled our door, so with a resigned grumble I stumbled gingerly down the stairs, holding my stitches. I picked up a large stick from the stand in the hall, for there are few friendly reasons for visiting at that cursed hour. It was not needful, for when I cracked open the door and peered out I caught sight of a by now familiar face. The fellow grinned in a manner far too pleasant, and his blue eyes twinkled. Larklin. What the devil are you doing here? Do you have any idea what time it is? The midshipman chuckled softly, at least his voice was softer than his fist. Good morning to you, Mr. Holmes, you look a bit tired. I glared at him out of bleary eyes. He was cursedly together for that hour, looking far more sharp than usual in his uniform, hair combed, face red with the cool night air. His eyes were clear and sharp. He grinned again at my lack of response and looked around him pointedly. Are you going to let me in? Only if you are going to explain what in heaven's name you are doing here. And at this cursed hour I stepped aside, allowing him to slip past me. I closed the door and turned to face him as he gazed about the hall. He sighed, fiddling with the hat he held in his hands. You keep the place fairly dark this time of day. Larklin, I growled in a barely controlled voice. It is for 21 a.m. Most people are not even awake at this time of day, much less up. That cheeky grin would not drop from his face and it was disgustingly obvious that he knew perfectly well what an inconvenience this was, and did not care one whit. There was a sound at the head of the steps and another familiar figure stumbled into view, only climbing partway down before stopping. Watson has always been a heavy sleeper, save on those occasions when he is tending to a patient. Many times I've had to wake him in pursuit of a case and it had proved to be a devilishly difficult business. At the moment he appeared to be only half-conscious, blinking at us out of half-closed eyes. Eight Merce, what is it? What's going on? I could not keep the irritation from my voice. 
it was my only outlet for my anger short of resorting to physical violence, which I was only moments from doing. Larklin has come to visit us I said with a sweeping gesture, throwing the stick back into the stand where it rattled loudly. Watson gave a groggy blink, pardon? Larklin is here I said, raising my voice to a pitch that made even the seaman flinch. There was no reactive expression from my Boswell. He rubbed his eyes with his hand, and yawned very widely. That's nice, he slurred, turning around to trudge back up the stairs. Larklin laughed and I snorted, then followed. I needed my pipe. The seaman's steps pounded energetically behind me, I could picture the insufferable smile on his face. I was strongly tempted to give him a little push down the stairs. We entered the sitting room to find it awash in light and heat. Watson had stoked the fire and now sat slumped in his armchair, his notebook open on his lap, a pen hanging limply in his hand. He had been moving on automatic and had slipped back into a semi-slumber, his head lolling against the side of the chair. I found my pipe and filled it with a fumbling hand, glaring at Larklin all the while, as he settled himself on the couch. He had at least ceased his smirking. Now, Larklin, I growled taking a deep breath of tobacco and feeling my nerves settle somewhat. What exactly possessed you to wake us in the middle of the night? Larklin raised his brows and sat back in the sofa. I've come to make sure you catch your ship, Holmes. My irritation rose. It is for twenty-one. Yes, Holmes, I know, Larklin nodded and smiled, enjoying himself immensely. If I recall correctly Larklin, you are the only one required to report to the ship at 7 a.m. Aye, that's why I am here so early. My train leaves in less than an hour, I just had time to come and see you gents. We will see you on the ship I felt my face redden in anger. But Larklin was not looking at me, his gaze was fixed on Watson and his expression was rather bemused. I turned just in time to see the notebook slip from my friend's nerveless fingers to the floor, he was snoring softly. I sighed and shook his shoulder. Watson. Further snoring. Watson. This time my query was answered by a sleepy grunt and an eye cracked open to peer up at me. Do wake up, old fellow. He sighed and straightened, groping on the floor for his notebook. Good morning, doctor. Larklin said pleasantly. Watson smiled sleepily and gave a little wave of his hand, he grasped the notebook and sat up again. Are we done then, can I go back to bed or are you two going to keep a fellow up all night? It was not in Watson's nature to complain either, further proof of how disoriented he was. Actually, doctor, I'm here to accompany you and Mr. Holmes to the train yard, Larklin said, apologetic for the first time. Watson blinked a few times and fixed our visitor with his first comprehensive glance of the morning. His voice was clear and incredulous when he spoke again. What? As much as we enjoy your company, we had planned to come at a later hour, Larklin, I said, the ship does not leave until ten o'clock tonight. No, Mr. Holmes, you mistook the time. The ship leaves at ten o'clock this morning? I learned this after leaving you gents last night and the telegraph office would not have been open in time for me to inform you of the matter before I had to leave. Watson was glaring now, in concentration or frustration I could not tell. He opened his mouth, closed it again and then turned his gaze on me. 10 a.m. I sighed. I am not a walking timetable. Watson. It is a simple mistake. I thought you didn't make simple mistakes, Holmes, he said more sharply than before and his scowl had deepened significantly. Well, if you gents really want to get more sleep you could take a later train, now that I've told you. There is one that comes a half hour after this one, should give you about fifteen minutes, Larklin said, watching Watson with a sudden weariness, 
though the corners of his mouth twitched. My friend's face had gone rather dark and he rose abruptly from his seat, tossing his notebook forcefully into it. Don't be ridiculous. Where are you going? I called after him as strode to the door. To get my bags, the ones I packed last night, he turned around and glared at me. I told you I had good reason to do it then. I swore softly. I had yet to pack, and the thought of throwing together my things while this tired galled me. Better get started, Holmes, Larkland said, glancing pointedly up at the clock. It's already a quarter to five. I stalked off to my bedroom, grumbling under my breath and imagining various scenarios in which Larkland was deprived of sleep for days on end, and Watson's methodically packed baggage ended up in a remote backwater town in the United States. Not an hour later we were ensconced in a compartment on the train in Houston Station, awaiting our departure. The acts of packing, shaving, and dressing had done much to awaken me, and I was fully alert when I at last stowed the cursed luggage above my head and sat heavily opposite my two companions. Larklin was fiddling with a nautical instrument, holding it up to his eye and adjusting it, showing few signs that the early hour of his recent illness had had too much effect on his general robustness. Watson had settled in the corner his arms folded, glaring at the world with rather red eyes, his face slack with lack of sleep. We could at least thank the early hour for our having the compartment to ourselves. I took several telegrams out of my jacket pocket and read them a second time. My action drew Larkin's attention and he laid the instrument in his lap. More answers, Holmes he asked, fixing him with his keen blue gaze. Yes, I muttered distractedly, young Alfie brought them round last night after you left. Just around the time Mrs. Hudson finished another batch of scones, suspiciously enough. The seaman chuckled at this and Watson sat up straighter in his seat. Holmes, you never told me what those were about. No I didn't, you were busy packing. Well, what have you learned? They have to be relevant to the case, there is no other reason why you would send inquiries. Larklin grunted his agreement and leaned forward slightly, I sighed, and handed over the telegrams which my Boswell eagerly perused. Watson's face became grim and he closed the paper quickly, handing it over to Larklin. There is no doubt then? He did escape? Yes, Watson. When you have all of the bribable guards on duty in one night, the death of a man in the same cell block only a day before, and take into account that the face of the corpse is almost unrecognizable, I have no further doubts that Culverton Smith is very much alive. Watson cursed under his breath and sat back, covering his face with his hand. Larklin cast him a concerned look and turned to meet my gaze. What sort of a man would infect entire ships? A madman, who feels as though he has been wronged by the world and has very little care for the lives of others. I do not know his plans, or the reasoning behind his actions, which is why we must discover them on this voyage. And we shall need your help, Larklin. The Friesland holds over five hundred passengers and a very large crew. Smith is clever enough to hide himself almost anywhere among them, you shall have to be our eyes and ears among the crew and the officers. There are too many places where passengers such as Watson and myself are not permitted to venture. Larkin nodded, I am for good reason. You landlubbers think you know how a ship works, we let you near the workings for an instant and the whole thing goes down in flames, he smiled, joking, and sat back again, what exactly is it you wish me to do, Mr. Holmes? I smiled. To use some of your quaint nautical slang, I wish you to keep a weather eye open. When you come across anything that may be of use, write it down and report it to me or give it to Watson and he will get it to me, I trust you to judge on the urgency of each piece of information. But do not allow yourself to be seen with either of us too often, for your own safety. 
Smith bears me a significant grudge, and I believe he will remember Watson's involvement as well. I glanced over at my Boswell with concern. It was against my judgment to allow him to come at all, but there was no way he would have let me go alone, not with my still healing side. Watson had not moved from his position of before, slumped against the wall, his head resting back on the seat, it took me only a moment to realize that he had fallen asleep again. Really, the man could sleep anywhere. And I had done so on numerous stakeouts and when I took him out upon a case that involved unusual hours. Larkin chuckled very softly, going back to his study of the nautical instrument, and I sighed, closing my own eyes, applying my mind to the problem of Smith and his motives. Watson. The docks of Portsmouth were far busier than those of London, which was only to be expected as Portsmouth was one of the largest shipping centres of Britain. Holmes and I followed Larkin as he weaved skillfully through the press of people, carts and the numerous stacks of packing crates. I could only cling to my luggage, keeping an eye on Holmes, he was showing some signs of soreness from his side and it was only too possible for an accident to occur in such a crowd. Indeed it went against my medical training to allow Holmes to undertake such a dangerous task at all, he was notorious for overexerting himself while on a case and I had little doubt that this time would be any different. But I knew also that Holmes was one of the only men alive who could deal with Smith, and that nothing, not even I, could prevent him from going in pursuit of the fellow. The best I could do was follow along behind and try to keep him out of trouble. This was proving a little more than difficult, I thought, as I was forced to dodge a cart filled with freshly caught fish and in the process hit a stack of crates. You all are right, Watson Holmes called back as I struggled to keep up. Coming I replied, getting a better grip on my bag and sprinting forward through the momentary lull in front of me. I had not long to sprint, for Larkland had stopped at last and stood, arms akimbo, gazing ahead. There she is, gentlemen, he said, his voice filled with the admiration that can be expressed only by a sailor. The Friesland. I stopped beside them, striving to catch my breath though it was somewhat lost by the sight in front of me. The Friesland was by no means the largest ship I had ever seen, but even without Larkland's experienced eye I could tell she was a beauty. Long and sleek, with a narrow hull. White and shining with a black keel and three large stove pipes that rose like towers in the clear blue sky bedecked with pennants and flags in anticipation of its departure. Larkland sighed, gazing at the ship the way a man looks at an attractive woman. Is she not a sleek little craft? Yes, indeed, I breathed, looking to Holmes beside me to catch his reaction. He was quite as cool as ever, and viewed the ship with his usual analytical gaze, no doubt he was thinking only of the villain to be caught inside it. Yes, he said with a rather sarcastic air. Quite worth the early hour. Larkland snorted and gave him a condescending look, then put his sit-back up higher on his shoulder. Well let's not be dawdling gents. See Monday. We followed him up to the deck, at last away from the crowds, we gave our names and tickets and alighted. The seaman led us down the shining wood expanse, to one of the doors in the series of structures, situated in down the center of the ship. He turned to Holmes and held out his hand, Holmes took it. Well, Holmes, doctor, this is where we part ways. This companion way here will lead you down to your cabins. Good luck to ye, I'll be in touch. Holmes smiled, to you as well Larklin. Be cautious. The midshipman laughed, I'd be a fool not to keep a wall at my back, involved in business like yours. He took my hand and shook it warmly, his blue eyes sobering slightly. Keep an eye on this gent, doctor. I'm afraid my duties will keep me fairly busy, I cannot be keeping to be pulling him out of the path of every knife-wielding villain here.
Holmes huffed and but I returned the smile. Thank you, Larklan, I hope we shall see you soon. He nodded and touched his hat. I'll be around. Then he walked off towards the back, or aft, of the ship, joining a group of men whom I assumed must be members of the crew. He'll be all right, Watson, Holmes said patting me on the shoulder. He's in his element now. Let us go and see our accommodations. I nodded, picking up my bags once more. Right, and then we're going to get a decent meal. Both of us. My friend sighed and reached out to open the door to the stairwell. I certainly hope Mjolnir's friend's tickets are worth what I paid for them, he muttered as we climbed. I am surprised you did not borrow the money from Werner. Really, Watson? You are never going to let me hear the end of that, are you? Brilliant deduction, my dear Holmes, I said, aiming a mischievous grin at my friend's disappearing back as he turned the corner. Chapter 16, Night's Enough. Night's Enough. Watson. Oh, confound it. This frustrated remark, delivered in a tone of extreme exasperation, was accompanied by a colourful string of descriptive words I assumed Captain Basil had picked up in his work at the London dockyards. Do you need help, Holmes I asked, glancing at him in the ornate mirror in my rather opulent stateroom, we were both trying to fix our starched white collars and ties before heading to the ship's lavish dining area for supper. Holmes was having a bit of trouble with his bow tie, scowling and swearing softly as he wrestled with the offensive article of clothing. He had knocked on my door halfway through my toilet and begged me to let him finish fixing his appearance in my stateroom, it seemed that the family in the room next to his had a squalling baby. Holmes was not thrilled about the situation in the least. Finally he managed to get the stiff tie fastened in a semi-straight fashion and struggled into his formal black jacket. You know how much I detest these things, Watson? I do seem to recall your being rather out of sorts in formal wear unless the activity involved classical music or Shakespeare, I replied, brushing my own spotless jacket and fastening the buttons, adjusting my cuffs afterwards. Ugh! I look like Count Dracula, he suddenly said, peering curiously into the mirror at himself, his nose a few inches from the glass. Good heavens, Holmes, and you refuse to read my stories because you think they are romantic drivel I cried indignantly. He snickered clapping me on the shoulder and grabbing his gloves from my bedside table. You have nothing on Stoker, old chap, he said with a grin, opening my stateroom door and gesturing for me to precede him. He shut it behind us and we made out way slowly to the deck, enjoying the salty sea breeze that was cooling the warm air. It is going to be a lovely night, I remarked, hoping for a little while at least to be able to forget that somewhere on board this ship Culverton Smith probably waited for us. HNPH. Oh, really? Holmes, it is lovely, you can't deny that. Look at that moon. It looks so different when there is no London smog about to obscure it, eh? Watson, you will always be a hopelessly incurable romantic, Holmes sighed, but he glanced at me fondly and I knew he was not really annoyed with me. And you will always be a hopeless skeptic. Tauche. The breezes had picked up, blowing its gentle way over the deck, and the soft glow of the steamer's lights shone with a comforting warmth over the long, sleek vessel. Trimmed everywhere with bright brass and golden wood, as Larklan had said, the Lansing must have paid a pretty price for this lovely ship. We stood at the rail for several minutes, looking out over the dark water and the moonlight in watery reflection dancing across the wake of the ship as she sailed ever further from England. Not seasick, are you, old chap? Not yet anyway, I replied ruefully, just pray that no storms come up while we're abroad. I was rather prone to being a wretched sailor if I were already not in full health or if the sea were very rough, 
but the weather promised to be gorgeous for several days and I was not overly worried about my inclination towards seasickness. For another minute we stood there, staring out over the water. A woman's light voice rang in a tinkling laugh from the women's lounge, and we could hear a small stringed quartet playing from somewhere on the large vessel. Other than that, the throbbing hum of the steam engines under our feet and a murmur of friendly voices were the only sounds to be heard in the stillness of the night. Holmes? Yes, my dear fellow. Do you really think that Smith is on this ship? I asked quietly, glancing at his aquiline face, very pale and serious in the moonlight. I do, Watson, he said at last, gazing moodily out over the dark waters of the Atlantic. I shivered, and not from the cool breeze that whipped about us as we stood there by the rail. I felt Holmes put his arm through mine and turn our steps toward the massive dining hall, his quiet strength giving me a small sense of calmness. We shall be very careful, Watson, he promised me, and I told Larkin to be weary as well. Smith may be on this ship, but there is no reason why something untoward should happen if we are careful and keep our wits about us. We headed down a companionway to the dining area below, Holmes moving very carefully because of the stitches in his side. I wish I could believe that, Holmes. Watson, please trust me, and stop worrying, my friend said, his eyes dark with concern, it will be fine, I assure you. Now chin up, old fellow, and let us see how much enjoyment we can gain from this voyage, we are not likely to get such a chance again. Enjoyment? With a murderous deranged scientist on the loose I hissed, not wanting the people we passed to hear us. Oh, gracious, Watson, that sounds like one of those confounded H.G. Wells stories. Please do try to have a little fun, old chap, Holmes replied, glancing at me mischievously, I am sure that you will find something to occupy your time. You know, I saw more than a few of those girls on the deck looking at you just now, full evening dress, Watson. Holmes. He laughed outright at my absolutely mortified face, but as I spluttered for an answer I realized he had accomplished what must have been his goal, to get me to smile and take my mind off Smith. I finally smoothed down my jacket and glowed coolly and calmly at him. You were just jealous, Holmes. It was his turn to be indignant, or at least pretend to be. Yes, you. What are you going to find to occupy your free time on board? Chest ornaments? Fellow handwriting analysts. Holmes glared at me as we entered the dining area, and I grinned back at him, seeing that he was not really in earnest with his irritation. We seated ourselves at a small table at the side of the room, Holmes always preferred to keep his back to the wall if possible so that he could watch people and make embarrassing deductions about them as they passed. A white-coated waiter with a French accent that I believed to be put on took our order and went along his way. How an Irishman can fake an accent like that is beyond me, Holmes muttered, fidgeting with his napkin ring as he scanned the crowd slowly and methodically, occasionally shooting a random deduction in my direction which I was only half paying attention to. See anyone that could be Smith I asked nervously, also playing with the ornate silver napkin ring. No, but I cannot see very many people closely from this angle. I shall have to get hold of the passenger list at some point, Watson, Holmes said, finally directing his attention back to me, and see if I can narrow the possibilities down a bit. How do you propose to do that, seeing as that information is highly classified I asked, taking a sip of my sherry. Really, Watson, need you ask? Oh, no, Holmes, you'll get us thrown into the brig our first week out I moaned in dismay, not at all relishing the thought of breaking and entering a purser's office. Holmes chuckled at my remonstrance. You used to argue with me on the strength that burglary is a crime in the eyes of the law, Watson. 
Now you are only worried about it being wrong if we are caught? Yes, well, I spluttered, trying to cover my breach of British citizenry, I. Never mind, my dear chap, he returned with a grin as our waiter came back, I shall in all probability do it at some point while you are making yourself a large number of female friends. You will not even miss me. Don't you dare go breaking into things on your own, Holmes, or I shall I had to break off as the waiter got within earshot, carrying our food, but I let my raised eyebrows and glaring eyes finish the thought for me. Holmes poked at his food, not really eating it, and I found it hard myself to concentrate on the little appetite I had, my gaze searching out every man sitting alone, wondering from this distance if he were Smith. Holmes finally shook off his melancholy and began to detail to me a little more about Murnia, the French artist who sculpted that dreadful likeness of my friend, entertaining me with his story of how many tries it took for the sculptor to get the image to cast the perfect shadow, and after a few minutes I had pushed Culverton Smith and his deadly diseases to the back of my mind. We finished out meal and our sherry and then exited the dining area. Shall we take a stroll round the deck, old chap, or try the lounge? I would rather have the open air, if that's all right. It was rather warm in there. Certainly, my companion declared, gingerly mounting the nearest companionway steps with me close at his heels. The promenade deck was ablaze with soft lights, casting sparkling beams of color and fluttering shadows on the many couples dancing under the brilliant white moon. The sounds of young laughter and converse followed us as we made our way past the partying passenger stored a group of comfortable-looking chairs on the far side of the dancing area. Holmes expertly weaved in and out of the crowd of people, narrowly avoiding getting champagne spilled upon him by more than one person, and I followed in his wake, finally reaching the other side. He took possession of a comfortable couch and offered me a cigarette as I sat beside him. Thank you. How are your stitches holding up? I asked as he offered me a match. Holmes held the match to his own cigarette and then snuffed the match into the nearby ashtray. All shipshape and seaworthy, Watson, he said with a smirk. I groaned at the bad pun but otherwise ignored it. Holmes, have you seen Larkland since we first came on board? No, I have not. But we cannot be in too close contact with him, Watson, if he is to act as a sort of spy for us among the crew. Midshipmen do not usually socialize much with passengers, especially not on such a large vessel as this. I nodded thoughtfully in agreement. What do you suppose Smith is planning to do to the ship? I am undecided yet, Watson. I have eight separate theories, all of which are decidedly unpleasant thoughts, my companion said, looking at me with a furrowed brow. I swallowed hard, not knowing and not wishing to know what was going on in that overactive imagination of his. Pardon me, gentlemen, but would it bother you if I took that other chair there? A voice politely interrupted our conversation. A tall, Dark young fellow in full evening dress like ourselves was gesturing toward the chair across from us. As it was the only one available, he really was being over-courteous and Holmes graciously told him to go right ahead. We chatted aimlessly for a few moments, and the chap told us he was a young lawyer from Essex who was taking his wife on an extended vacation, etc., etc. The chap rambled on and on, to Holmes's increasing irritation, until his wife suddenly appeared from the partying throng and then he rose with the usual pleasantries and sauntered off with the lady. Ugh! Really, Holmes, he was a very nice young fellow, I said teasingly, seeing Holmes's disgusted face. Be that as it may, he was decidedly dull. What is it about being aboard ship that makes people think that everyone on it is an instant friend? That is the usual attitude, Holmes, you just are simply unusual, I replied, my eyes glinting mischievously, most people actually enjoy making new friends, Believe it or not.
Holmes snorted. I did once. That was enough for me, Watson. I smiled at the rather dubious compliment, finishing my cigarette and tossing it into the ashtray. As you were saying, Holmes, about your theories. What about them? Holmes, don't be so infuriating. He laughed and stood, smoothing out the wrinkles in his jacket and walking over to the deck rail. And do not give me any of those you will see and hear enough before the voyage is over lines, Holmes. I was not in on your confidences before with Smith, can you not take me in this time round I asked, very much in earnest. I saw again that odd expression when I mentioned the Smith case flit across his face and he sighed, his light manner leaving him on the instant. Come out of hearing range of that infernal racket, Watson, he said, stepping away from the happy revelers further along the polished deck. After thirty or forty feet he stopped, looking out over the dark water for the second time that night, his lower arms resting on the brass rail. I joined him as he spoke. I think, Watson, that Smith intends to do something to the passengers of this ship, either collectively or selectively, just as he did the others. You remember that at first, it was only cargo ships attacked, and then passenger ships as well? I did not like the way this conversation was leading, but I nodded, my throat feeling very dry all of a sudden, and glanced over at his somber face. Well, this is the biggest and most expensive ship yet to take off out of Portsmouth for the Lansing Line. If he did something to it. It would cause widespread panic, I whispered. Exactly. I cannot fathom yet what his motive is in these atrocities, but I do know that he has to be stopped, before we reach India. He must be stopped. Holmes's chilling statements swept away the former warmth I had been feeling, and I shuddered at the veiled meaning in Holmes's words about the man's atrocities. I am going to go poking about in the men's smoking lounge, Watson, to see if I can pick up any faint tremors indicating the location of this villain, Holmes remarked at last, snapping himself out of his reverie. I think I shall go back to my stateroom and turn in, I returned, let me know when you get back, will you? I shall walk back with you, Watson, he said on the instant, guiding me in the direction of our rooms, I think it best that we not separate during this voyage if at all possible. Strength in numbers, you know, and Smith will be far less likely to attack one of us if we stick together. I shivered again as the wind, rapidly dropping in temperature, blew with force over the long shiny deck. Holmes, I am worried about Larklin. Do you suppose? Watson, you simply must stop your fretting, my companion said gently, Larklin will be fine. Smith does not even know of his existence, but that is another reason we must not have much contact with him. It will ensure his safety. We were nearly to my stateroom when my tired mind suddenly realized what Holmes had said earlier. Half a moment, I am not going back to that room, I said, and letting you go to the lounge by yourself. I shall be fine, Watson, and you look as though you could use the sleep, it was an early morning, he returned, patting my shoulder reassuringly. Be that as it may, you said yourself that we should not separate on the voyage, and you are right as always, I replied stubbornly, turning us in the direction of the lounge. Holmes grabbed my arm and pushed me back door the staterooms, and I resisted. Watson, for heaven's sake, you are acting as if I shall disappear if you let me out of your sight he sighed in exasperation. The last time I left you when I knew we were in danger, Moriarty caught up with you, I said, my voice shaking despite my efforts to control it, and I had to live with that guilt for three years. I vowed on the day you returned to never let that happen again, Holmes. Holmes stared into my eyes for just a moment with a sudden shock of guilt at what I had said, and then his gaze softened and he slipped his arm through mine with a sigh, tugging me gently toward our rooms. Come, my dear chap, we shall both turn in. 
there will be nights enough for socializing and investigating. Chapter 17, Taking the Wind Out of His Sails Chapter 17, Taking the Wind Out of His Sails Taking the wind out of his sails, sailing in a manner so as to steal or divert wind from another ship's sails. Watson. Watson are you up to a bit of burglaring today? At my friend's complacent words the piece of sausage I had been consuming lodged into my throat and I began to choke. Holmes slapped me sharply on the back and I swallowed it. W what I coughed, reaching for my napkin. The passengers list Watson, there is a copy kept in the purse's office. Come come man, I mentioned it only a day ago. Yes I remember quite well, I said wiping my mouth and fixing a glare on my friend, who stared innocently at the piece of kidney pie he was endeavouring to spear with his fork. He met my face passively. What? Holmes, I understand the urgency in finding Smith, no man alive, save yourself, can comprehend the importance of the thing better than I, but is it really necessary to break into the private records of the ship upon which we are travelling? If we are caught then there is no way Larklone can help us. He is a minor officer. And what you are contemplating is a serious offence. Watson, 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 you talk as if we are going to be caught. There is a good chance we shall be. We nearly were the last time. If that man had taken a stronger grip on my ankle, Lestrade got my actual description. Now now Watson. That was different. Unexpected circumstances and all that. How was I to know that the lady in question planned to get her revenge on Milverton the very night we were going to burgle his house? This was true, Holmes had planned as well as he could for every contingency, but the event had made me far more weary of breaking the law. Such unseen events could strike again, and a million things could go wrong. But there was a determination in my friend's gaze and attitude that dictated he could not be turned from his course. I sighed and set down my fork, giving up all attempts to enjoy the meal like a normal person. All right Holmes, just how are you planning to go about this? Holmes laughed and clapped his hands together. Good man. I knew I could count on you, he laid down his own fork, not that he had eaten much anyway, and scooted his chair closer, dropping his voice in a conspiratorial fashion. The most obvious time will be at dinner, by far the busiest for the purser and indeed the entire ship. Your part will be simple Watson. I sighed, bracing myself for the inevitable. Holmes paused in his explanation and gave me a reproachful look. I glared, gesturing with my hands as I spoke. Go on, I'm listening I'm listening. Holmes snorted but, put his hands together and continued. You, my dear Watson, will not play the part of burglar this time but accomplice. How so? There is a door at the back of the purse's office, and is kept locked, though it is well within my ability to open. I shall enter through that way and lift the list even as the purser remains, I need only a distraction. And you shall provide that. I rather thought it would be something of that sort, what shall it be this time? A lost cuff link? A violent collapse? Perhaps I shall be inexplicably dissatisfied with every meal that has come my way so far on this voyage? Holmes shook his head. Nothing so colorful Watson, you want only to deposit something in the fellow's safe. You will be most insistent upon the matter, and quite unreasonable. He shall, I dare say, find you more than a handful. I laughed. You have great faith in my acting abilities all of a sudden, what shall I be depositing? Holmes smiled, reached forward and pulled my writing notebook from my jacket pocket, a very old and worn one, which I had had for more than a year already. I laughed incredulously, but Holmes' expression did not fade. My laughter did. You cannot be serious. I assure you Watson I am perfectly serious. You are a known writer and you hold strong suspicions that one of your rivals is after your work.
you shall endeavor to convince the purser that your notebook, and your other works if you have brought them, are important enough to deposit. He will refuse of course, and that will begin the very argument I need. And when I am taken away for harassing the purser? You will not be my dear Watson, for I arranged with Larkin this very morning that he should come by at the correct moment and break up the little affair. He's high enough on the naval hierarchy to deal with an aggravated passenger. What does Larkin think of your breaking into a ship that he has sworn to protect? Holmes sat back in his chair. He was happy to assist, as usual Watson indeed I believe he has bent the law far more often than either of us have, strictly in a good cause of course. Right, I pulled my plate back toward me and doggedly picked up my fork. I would be needing the energy. How long will you need? Eight minutes. Our midshipman has assured me he will stroll by at precisely 7.15, you will approach the purser at 7.05, allow a moment or two for error. I took another bite of sausage. That remark inspires confidence. Holmes laughed again and reached into his coat, pulling out a familiar, small leather case, and showing it to me before stowing it out of sight again. His infernal lockpicks. Never fear Watson, the lock on this door is not a quarter as complicated as the one on Milverton's safe. This operation shall go as smooth as clockwork. I hope so, I said reaching for my cup, I have no desire to spend the remainder of this voyage in confinement. After the price of our tickets? Hardly Potter, the cavalry will come in time. I should hardly describe a seaman like Larkin as just the cavalry. He's more like the entire fleet. Holmes laughed and went back to spearing his eggs. His mind no doubt turning in anticipation of the events ahead. Holmes. Watson adjusted his cravat for seemingly the hundredth time, we stood at the head of the steps leading down to the landing, and among other things, the purser's office. Not nervous are you Watson? My friend shot me a look, both apprehensive and somewhat excited. Though he would never admit it, he enjoyed the thrill and the risk of this particular game as much as I did. No doubt this quality bubbled up from the same obscure location as his porky humor. Of course I am nervous, this scheme is absolutely mad, all your schemes are. You know sometimes I am glad I cannot read what goes on in your mind like you can me. If I ever got a glimpse of what it is that really goes on inside there I would most likely flee in terror and deny any further association with you. I chuckled slightly, in good spirits despite his negative words. Why else do you think I am so secretive old fellow? The world is not yet prepared, Ah, we have only a minute, are you ready? Watson gave his tie one final tug rolled his shoulders staunchly and took firm hold on the bundle-worn notebooks in his left hand. We had not been short a supply, my friend travelled with five or six of the things just as surely as he travelled with his revolver. And I had to admit that types of objects had proved useful in past incidents. As ready as I'll ever be. I clapped him on the shoulder and we started down the steps, against the general flow of traffic, for most were now heading to dinner. We reached the bottom and I pointed towards the small, halved or to our right, already surrounded by patrons. There is your target Watson, don't forget to make yourself sufficiently obnoxious. Good luck. Be careful of your stitches. I snorted and stood waiting as Watson thrust his way imprudently through the crowd, and a marvelous cacophony of outraged squawks and objections filled the landing, then I started for the back door. Watson. The purser, a small, thin man with a ferret-like face, who might have been related to less trade, looked up as I barged forward through his clients and raised my voice over the well-dressed man he was currently speaking to. He adjusted his glasses slightly and peered at me in some apprehension. Holmes had been right, the man was no Goliath, in stature or will. Perhaps this would be an easier task than I had first supposed. 
I beg your pardon sir, can I help you? He said this in an insulting, sarcastic term but I pretended to take it literally and leaned forward, fixing an indignant scowl on my face and raising my voice to a loud and boisterous pitch, according to Holmes the larger the crowd I attracted the better. Yes you can sir. I need to make an urgent deposit into the ship's safe. Very well sir, but there are a great many. The patron behind me tried to nudge in and I elbowed him roughly away. But you don't understand, this is a matter of the utmost importance. There is no time to lose. I realize that it is an urgent matter sir, but these other gentlemen were here before you. I don't think you do realize, my property is in danger. I can hear you perfectly well sir, there is no need to shout, the man said, leaning away slightly. I only lean further forward. Smithles, said the poor fellow to my right, perhaps you had better attend to him and then we can resume our business. The small crowd murmured in agreement, though there were a few grumbles of cutting the line. I swallowed, this was too passive a reaction, Holmes needed a nearly six more minutes. The purser sighed, and laid down the pen he had been jotting with. Very well sir, do you have the object with you? Of course I do. What sort of idiot do you take me for? The purser reddened and Devane stood out in his forehead but he went on passively, I prayed fervently that he did not have problems with his blood pressure. For my disturbance would no doubt make them worse. Then would you place it on the counter he said, and though his words were polite and formal they had a definite edge to them. I took a bracing breath, trying to keep the heat from my face. It is no small thing for a writer to have his works openly mocked. Holmes had done it quite often enough and I had no desire for them to be further abused by this snooty little, self-important man. I hoped Holmes appreciated this. I lifted the pile of notebooks and laid them on the counter with a solid thud, the purser blinked at them, then up at me. Holmes. I slipped, unnoticed by the crowd as Watson began his tirade, his basso voice raised to an admirable pitch, interspersed with the uneasiness of the crowd and the snooty comments of the purser. The door was conveniently tucked away in a corner, away from the notice of any man that might travel the narrow hall. This was no doubt meant as a method of protection and further security but in truth only aided the criminal determined to break in by way of the door. I really would have to write a monograph on the more popular methods of burglary. Such a work would aid Scotland Yard admirably, if they ever deigned to refer to it. I tucked myself in the little alcove that hid the door, and drew out my lockpicks, laying them before me. I examined the lock closely selected one that looked promising and the tension wrench and slid both into the small slot. My focus narrowed, to the small brass circle just below the knob, I shifted and moved the small metal tools minutely, feeling for the give or tension that would tell me what I needed to know. The pick was too large, I selected another and slid it from the leather case, inserting it, shifting it as I would before. This one was more promising, I could feel the empty space behind its probing tip, and the cylinder that lay beyond it but it was too wide, I put it back and selected another. I had six minutes, I hoped that Watson was holding up all right. Watson. I am sorry sir, but the safe is a limited space, it is used for the storage of valuables. These are valuable, they are my livelihood. Perhaps you could find a nice safe place in your room sir. You must have a case, or a steamer trunk. That is the first place he would look, I tell you the man will stop at nothing to get his hands on my work. There are more creative hiding places sir, under your bed, beneath your shirts, in the latrine. Several people laughed at that, and my face went red without the need of acting. I do not appreciate your insolence Smethels, I snapped. Well maybe he doesn't exactly appreciate yours either. Let the man get back to his business and you get back to your writing eh? That had to be an American, 
I swear they had to be one of the most blunt and tactless races on the face of the earth. I really had to remember to insist that in future Holmes pick a less personal topic for my part in his little charades. My watch gave Holmes at least three more minutes, my argument with the purser was failing, I had to prolong it somehow. I turned to the fellow who was still chortling at the cleverness of his comment. Yes, an American, his ridiculous cowboy moustache proved it. And what pray tell do you know of writing sir? The fellow looked at the lady friend at his elbow, chuckling, then he looked back at me, sneering. I know a great deal sir, I'm a reporter for the New York world. Oh heavens, a newspaper man. At least he did not have a western accent. The New York world is a rag, I declared, although in truth I had never read it in my life. And an insult to the language that we invented, you people are only borrowing it. The reporter's face went a shade darker and pulled out of his lady's grasp, several members of the crowd, which by this time had grown significantly larger shot out their own comments, the purser's voice rang and heeded over our heads. I swallowed, hoping I had not gone too far, I was in no mood for fistcuffs. Holmes. The lock gave way with a satisfying click, and I eased the door open peering about to the small office, the purser was around the corner, leaning heavily over the counter trying to placate the riotous crowd that Watson had gathered outside my window. Really I did not know why my buzzer complained so, he got all the fun parts of our little charades. I gathered up my lockpicks and repeated them, and slipped in through the door. It took only a moment to sneak across the room, behind the boxes and bundles of possessions, to the desk. For such a meticulously dressed little man the purser was a horrendous filer. His collection of papers made our reference books at Baker Street look organized. I rifled through them quickly, listening with amusement as Watson insulted a man just outside the window, had to be an American. They were such a belligerent race, and always handy for a distraction. Ah, at last my hand fell upon an untidy sheaf of papers that after a moment's examination proved to be the long-sought passenger list. I bundled them up, further scattering the papers on the desk to cover my theft. Hopefully the documents would not be missed until tomorrow, and even then there was a good chance that the purser would believe he had merely misplaced them in this mess. The purser was still engaged with the crowd. As I watched, the poor man folded his arms on the counter and let his head sink forward into them in his despair. I hurried back out, shut the door softly behind me and glanced at my watch. 7.14, Larklam should be along any moment. Watson. The reporter started for me his fists clenched. I stood my ground wishing that I could glance again at my watch. Where in heaven's name was Holmes? The crowd about us was pressing and several of its members hooting and jeering, hoping for a fight, most of the original crowd had slipped away, wanting no part of this mess. To be quite frank I did not either but being the source of it I was obliged to stay. The American's face was a shade of deep scarlet from my insults and his moustache bristled comically. Rather like caricatures of Wild Bill Hickett that I had seen on various billboards in London. I had little doubt that he intended me harm. And he might have succeeded, at least to agree, if at that moment, a loud voice boomed over the crowd, and an impressive figure in a black uniform pushed his way forward. All right ladies and gentlemen would someone be good enough to tell me what this business is all about so we can settle this civilly he said coming to stand between me and my would-be attacker, his blue eyes twinkling. The cavalry indeed. The American tried to shift around him but Larklin moved to block him his hands loose and ready at his sides. Seeing that he was not going to get to me the American turned his string of verbal abuses and complaints on the midshipman, who remained passive and unmoved. I highly doubted he was listening to a word of the man's tirade. A hand gripped my arm and a familiar voice whispered in my ear. 
Well done Watson, our work is done, come along. I snatched up the journals from the counter, the purser did not take the least notice, and moved to follow my friend as he led me to the back of the crowd and away from it back to the stairs. Then Holmes broke into an outright sprint towards our cabins and I followed, only too glad to hear the raucous noise of the crowd fall away behind me. Chapter 18, The Truest Anchor A trustworthy friend is the truest anchor for the ship of life. Anonymous. The truest anchor. Holmes. I slammed the door of Watson's stateroom and slumped against it, breathing heavily and literally doubled over with laughter at my friend's red face. One of these days, Holmes, you are going to cut those things too, too close he gasped, breathing more heavily than I after our unceremonious dash down the companionway. I straightened up with an effort, still chortling. Your stitches, Holmes, are they right he asked, mopping his forehead with his handkerchief and settling down on the bunk. Yes, yes, doctor. Not a twinge. See air, you know, does wonders for your health, I said absently, riffling through the lists in my hands. I heard a derisive snort from the bunk, evidently he did not think much of my medical prognoses. I ran over to my own stateroom, that infernal child was still screaming bloody murder, oh, this was going to be a long voyage, and returned in a moment with a blank pad of paper and several pencils, as well as my highest powered magnifying lens and a copy of Who's Who. I dumped the items in question on Watson's polished cherrywood table, sending papers scattering everywhere. Really, Holmes, couldn't you perform whatever it is you are doing in your stateroom, not mine Watson asked tiredly, his eyes half closed as he flopped down upon the bed. No. Why ever not? Because that confounded baby insists upon broadcasting to everyone within hearing range how unhappy he is I said, shuffling through the papers I had stolen from the ship's safe. She? I beg your pardon? The baby. It's a nine-month-old girl. Whatever. They are all the same, anyhow, Watson. My dear Holmes, there are just a few differences, he said, his eyes opening in amusement. Not when they are screaming. They all just sound like spoiled little monsters. Now? I began to copy the passenger list onto blank sheets of fool's cap. Watson got up and seated himself beside me after lighting the lamps, it was going on evening now. Holmes, are you going to copy that whole passenger list he asked incredulously, that could take all night? Double quote. I laughed at his look of dismay. No, my dear fellow, just copying only the names of the people who could be Smith. We can eliminate all the women and children on board, which will cut the list from roughly 500 to probably 200. Then from there we can eliminate all men traveling in families or those who are too young to be Smith, even in disguise. Even so. Yes, even so it is still a daunting task. But I can't go marking all over this original list, Watson. We have to get it back before someone misses it. I'll ring for some coffee, he muttered, hastily arising from the table and ringing the bell for our steward. Ten minutes and three cups of coffee later, he was faithfully and doggedly scribbling out names along with me of the people we would have to learn personally what they looked like and if they could be culvert in Smith. How old is Smith now, would you say? Holmes he asked me after a good several hours, stretching for a moment and flexing his cramped fingers. Oh, probably five or six years older than I, I returned, shuffling the paper I had been filling to the back of the pile and grabbing a new one. That leaves a wide range of men who could be he in disguise, my friend said with a resigned sigh, picking up his pencil again. True. We have quite a long while to investigate them, though, old chapter. That is rather a good thing, he muttered, starting to scribble again. I looked up two or three hours later when the ship bobbed slightly in the water. Watson turned a little pale. 
I do hope the sea isn't getting rough, he remarked in dismay, looking at me with a comical helplessness that made me want to laugh, poor chapter. I got up and opened the porthole beside his bed, letting in a cool breeze. Not a cloud in sight, Watson. Probably just a large wave, I said reassuringly. He moaned a little and went back to his writing. I looked out briefly over the still, dark water, the stars shining so brightly they were nearly as luminescent as the moon itself. And it was rather stuffy in the stateroom, come to think of it. Need a break, Watson? Yes. He wasted no time in taking me up on the offer, and I laughed at the alacrity with which he stuffed the confiscated lists into the closest drawer out of sight and grabbed his jacket eagerly. We lost no time in making our way up the companionway into the fresh cool air of the deck. Even past two as it was now, the ship's lights were still ablaze, and straggling parties were still to be seen in various stages of intoxication, lounging about the deck areas. The music of the evening had ceased, the musicians retiring for the night, but the sounds of laughter and social gatherings still were in abundance as we strolled along. Watson was looking up at the stars. Odd, isn't it, I said following his gaze, how we can't see any of this in London, eh? MMHM. Yellow fog pretty much obscures everything there, doesn't it? I like fog. I know. Unless it causes the crime rate to go down. Well, yes, naturally. Naturally. The breeze kicked up in earnest, whipping the smoke from the stacks above us to go flying away on the wind, disappearing almost as soon as it emerged from the black funnels. You? I believe I could do with evenings like this for a good many more nights. I heard Watson sigh wistfully. Well, you are going to have five more weeks of it, dear chap, unless you are planning to swim all the way back to England, I said teasingly. I can't swim, you know that, Holmes. Yes, of course. These railings are confoundedly low, now that you brought that to my attention, thanks very much, he said, glaring at me and peering cautiously over the iron rails. You think these are bad? The second and third class ones on the decks below us are even lower. Thank you very much for that piece of information, Holmes. Remind me to not go near those two decks, he replied dryly. I shall, I returned with mock earnestness. At any rate, this is rather a nice change from dreary old London, eh? London is not dreary. You said it was yourself, just the other day at breakfast. London has become an exceedingly dull city since the death of the late unlamented Professor Moriarty. I heard you, said he with a sly grin. Dull, yes, I agreed merely for the sake of continuing the argument, but not dreary. A rather inebriated man came staggering past us on the deck, and we watched with some amusement as he slammed rather forcefully into an iron support beam, dipped his hat with a slurred I beg your pardon, and continued his weaving way down the ship. Morning, gents, a familiar voice said from the shadows behind us. Midshipman Larklin, I replied, warning him by his title that there were passengers near and to be wary. Your expedition of this afternoon was a success, I trust. The man's blue eyes were twinkling like the stars in that sky above us as he glanced between the both of us. Oh, yes, definitely. Thar's good, doctor. I must say, I'm a bit surprised to see you both up at this hour, thought you didn't like early mornings this was accompanied by a knowing grin of remembrance. Morning Watson asked incredulously. Yes, doctor, it's middle watch now, Larklin said or in your lover's talk, 2.15. 2.15. Oh, for heaven's sake, Watson, we shall go to bed as soon as that list is finished, I said, elbowing him as he continued to glare at me testily. Then we had better get on it, Holmes, I am not going to have another day where I stagger around half awake because of this infernal case. Ooh, you'd better take him below, 
Holmes, Larkland said, grinning at me, if you know what's good for you. Yes, I rather think you're right, I agreed hastily, pushing Watson door the stairs, keep a weather eye open, Larkland, and good luck to you. Right, Holmes, and likewise to you. Good night, gents. We re-entered Watson's stateroom, that baby was still crying. Or at least crying once again. My friend tiredly retrieved the documents from the drawer where he had stashed them and spread them on the table. We are only to the letter R he asked dismally. Come on, Watson, it shan't be much longer, I said encouragingly, already busily scribbling away. He sighed and picked up his pencil, rubbing his head wearily. Another headache I asked, suddenly concerned. No, no, just tired, that's all. Let's get this done, Holmes, he returned, stout fellow, doggedly copying the names of men who could possibly be Smith. I started from Z and worked my way back up to meet him. The breeze blowing through the open port did much to alleviate the drowsiness of the room, and I was grateful for it, we had long since finished the coffee. I had reached the end of the letter T, when I saw Watson's head start to nod forward, he was too tired to be doing this, poor fellow. I was just reaching out to prevent him from slamming into the table when he suddenly jerked upright with a startled gasp. Easy, Watson, I said gently, you need to go to bed now, we are almost finished, and I can do the rest. No, he said stubbornly, picking up his pencil yet again. I just as stubbornly pulled it out of his unresisting hand. Go on, old chapter. It will only take me a few minutes. I'm not sleepy, Holmes, he protested, hi. He broke off rather suddenly, picking up a different pencil and hiding his face by bending over the paper. You out? Nothing. Let us finish this, he replied, scribbling out another name. I put my own writing instrument down and waited. After several minutes, Watson glanced up to see me, elbows on the table, weighing patiently for him to look at me. Well? Well what? Well why are you not telling me what is wrong? Nothing is wrong, Holmes, I'm, I'm just not sleepy, that's all, he said, his eyes telling me he wanted the matter dropped. I refused. Watson, it is almost three in the morning and we have had a long day and a longer night. You are nearly out on your feet, now go to bed and stop being so stubborn I cried in exasperation. I am not being stubborn. I just don't want to go to sleep he defended himself. Then, as I realized what he had just said and he realized that I had grasped its hidden meaning, his gaze dropped again, this time in embarrassment. You have been having nightmares, is that it I asked softly? Watson scribbled out two more names before nodding, still not looking up at me. Oh, my dear chap, I said, hating the fact that Smith had been visiting him in that horrible manner. I suppose I need hardly ask what about? If you need to, you are not very good at that precious deduction of yours, he replied gruffly, writing out three more names. You cannot stay up all night just because you're afraid to go to sleep, Watson, I told him. I'm not afraid, Holmes, well, not really, he amended at last, finally glancing up at me. Put the papers down, Watson, and get ready for bed. I shall be back in a moment, I said suddenly, getting up and leaving my friend's stateroom. I went to my own cabin, thank heavens above that baby had stopped squalling at long last retrieved my pipe and tobacco pouch, and returned to find Watson had at least done what I asked. He really did look exhausted, and I cursed myself for not realizing earlier what the problem was. I want to get your mind off Smith, Watson, I said, pulling up a chair beside his bunk, straddling it backwards. And how do you propose to do that he asked, a tired smile quirking his mouth trying one of those psychoanalyses like that Freud chap is so fond of promoting? No, 
but I can give you something to think about besides that madman. Did I ever tell you about the very first case I had after we moved in together at Baker Street? It was probably two weeks before the one you so floridly titled A Study in Scarlet, I said, lighting my pipe as I spoke and watching his reaction. No, no, you didn't, he said eagerly, and it was an indication of how excited he was to hear the tale that he made no mention of my insulting his romantic writing style. I folded my arms over the back of the chariot and rested my chin upon them, occasionally lifting them to make some gesture to add to the story, just a commonplace little jewel theft, but it had its merits and also gave a little insight as to the struggle I had had in those early days trying to prove my worth as a private investigator. Indeed, my struggle would have been even harder had my Bazool not taken it into his head to start publishing accounts of my cases. And whether I liked to admit the fact or no, his romantic stories were probably indeed the main source of my success and the making of my name. Watson listened with eagerness as I unfolded the story, I had none of his innate gift for wordplay, but I did my best, trying to banish Smith and this infernal case from his mind, and after fifteen minutes, his eyes began to droop with sleep, and I knew he was struggling to stay awake. I finished the tale, watching for his reaction, expecting to hear him ask drowsily if he could publish the thing or something of the sort but it appeared that he had indeed fallen asleep at last before I could finish. Good. I pulled the blanket up over him and silently closed the porthole. Then I turned down the gas except for one small lamp on the table, I would finish this task here in his stateroom, just to make sure no more demons from our past would disturb his sleep for a few hours at least. And as I finished the list of names, I glanced back at the still figure of my dearest friend, thankfully sleeping peacefully and I vowed anew to find the madman that even in our unconscious moments seemed to haunt us. He had to be stopped, for all our sakes. And he had to be stopped soon. Chapter 19, Undertow. Chapter 19, Undertow. Watson. Well, scratch that one off as a red herring. Mr. Jonathan Springer, age 67 why was he on the list, in how? He's far too old Holmes demanded irritably as we sat in the Friesland plush dining area at a small table, marking off names from our diminishing list of passengers. For one thing, it was after midnight at that point, who knows which names we might have put down I returned, scratching off the man's name, as well as seven others we had eliminated thus far today. It had been a week since our escapade in the purse's office, and in that amount of time we had cut our list down by some careful and thorough investigating from 210 names to about 55 now. And we had not as yet located Culvert in Smith. I'm glad the purser didn't notice that you slipped that list back into his mess of files, Holmes, I remarked, finishing my coffee. So am I, Watson, nice idea of yours, lodging a complaint about that Wild West chap to distract him. What is it with you and antagonizing Americans, anyhow? I glared at him. Well, I mean, Watson, now you should be glad to hear only me criticize your writing, he offered. I continued the glare. Or not, that would be fine as well. More coffee? I laughed. You drink more coffee than anyone I know, Holmes, and that is quite a lot. It isn't healthy. It is rather less harmful a drug than some, old chap, he returned pointedly, downing his fifth cup yet this afternoon, and besides, I'm infernally tired, that child squirreled all night long last night. I promise you, I did not close my eyes for a second. Why did you not switch rooms with me? Too much bother. Besides, I thought the parents would surely be able to make the little blighter stop, not so, not even after four hours Holmes exclaimed dismally. I laughed again at his disgruntled face and folded up my half of the list, 
shoving it into my inside jacket pocket and pulling out my pocket watch. Half past five, I replied in answer to Holmes's question, shall we tackle a few more names? My friend moaned and slouched in his chair. That is all we've been doing for the last seven days, Watson. Well, you are the one who had the bright idea to track down 210 people on this ship. I never said all my ideas were brilliant, only most of them. I laughed and scooted my chair back from the table. Come along, then, let us do something a little more enjoyable. I am tired of walking along the deck, Watson. And of meeting new people, I suppose I teased as we exited the stately dining area, nearly a hundred in one week, is that not a record for your bohemian soul? Holmes smirked. I am not as social a creature as you, Watson. No, really. You know, sarcasm doesn't become you. I shall leave it to the experts such as yourself then, I replied as I followed him up the companionway. I heard a derisive snort above me and grinned. We wandered about boredly for a little while on the promenade deck, and then we decided to explore the rest of the ship, Holmes wanted to get an idea as to its layout in case we had to chase Smith all over the vessel, a prospect that did not appeal to me in the least. We walked the second and third class decks and discovered the crew's quarters, finally making our way back to the middle of the ship and the lounge areas. I say, Holmes, do you play billiard? I asked suddenly, seeing the tables in several of the lounges, one lounge unoccupied at this hour of the afternoon, most passengers were napping in preparation for a late night. No. Not at all? No. Oh, come on, I said, grinning at his flat denial, you should learn. No. Yes, you should. Then we could play together. We play chess. We do not play, you play and I get beaten. I do not find that enjoyable. I suppose you are wanting to teach me he asked, looking at me out of the corner of his eye. Unless you know how already. He looked at my pleading gaze for a moment, and then his face softened, as I had known it would when I fixed him with that look. Oh, very well. But only until someone else comes in, I shall not embarrass myself in front of people, not even for you, Watson he warned. I embarrassed myself for you with that purser, I am sure you will live through the experience, I said dryly secretly overjoyed that he had agreed. I have played before, once, he mused, looking at the glossy cherry table with its soft green felt as I racked the bright new balls, maybe seven years ago. Some visiting dignitary at the Diogenes Club challenged Mycroft and me to play. There was a ridiculous bet involved, I never forgave Mycroft for that inane suggestion. I laughed. I can't see your brother bent over a pool table. I can't see him bent over anything except his desk in Whitehall. I am not sure if he can bend over, Holmes muttered, taking the cue I handed him and looking at it dubiously. You do know which hand to use, don't you? I am not a complete idiot, Watson. Well, oh, stop it. What happens first? I laughed and explained the basics of the game to him and broke, and after a very dubious look at the table and a glance round to see that there was no one watching him embarrass himself, he took a deep breath, aimed cautiously, and shot and missed both his target and the cue ball entirely. Don't even say it, Watson. I said nothing, Holmes I gasped, my face turning red from repressed laughter. He sighed wearily and stepped back from the table. Well, what did I do wrong he asked impatiently, glaring at me. I took pity on him at last, the only reason he was putting himself through this torture was to please me, and I appreciated the gesture more than he knew. You were holding the stick too tightly, Holmes, and you were watching the target ball not the cue ball. The white one? Yes, the white one, I said, carefully hiding my smile, you have to watch it, not the colored one. Try again, 
you can have another turn. Isn't that against the rules? Sherlock Holmes, play by the rules? Good point. He scowled in concentration, aimed again, and this time made a very passable shot, sending the six ball careening down the table to slam into a trio of my stripes with a satisfying thwack. I hit it. Yes, you did, I said, this time not able to restrain my grin at his enthusiastic face, like a gleeful child just scoring a high mark on an exam. Do I get to go again? No, you have to hit it into the pocket to go again, Holmes. Oh. Well, hurry up, Watson. I sent two balls in easily, rather proud of my difficult angled shots, and then, seeing that my friend was looking rather dismal once again, purposely missed the next shot. You know, you really would probably like this if you played more often, Holmes, the geometry involved should intrigue you at least, I remarked as he sighted again. Aim a little more to the left, old chapter. He nodded with intense concentration and then shot, sending the ball neatly into the corner pocket. I did it. Oh, well done. Thank you. He missed the next shot, as was to be expected from a beginner, and I took my turn, I would have to jump the cue ball over one of his solids to make the shot, and his excited chattering was making me lose my concentration. Holmes? What? I cannot concentrate when you are blathering like that, I said slowly, carefully gauging the distance I would need to cover. That is the general idea, I heard him reply mischievously, obviously enjoying himself more than he had anticipated he would. It is against the rules to distract an opponent purposely. I, Sherlock Holmes, play by the rules? Really, Watson? I had pulled my cue back just as he said this, and my resulting laughter sent my stick askew and the cue ball barreled into the side pocket, knocking the eight ball dangerously close to the left corner pocket. Confound you, Holmes. My turn now, right he asked gleefully. Yes, I growled, glaring at his excited face. He took the cue ball out of the pocket, placed it on the table, and took careful aim. Holmes, wait. I am perfectly capable of doing this, doctor. But you can't. Watson, please. Holmes. You can't. Thunk. He shot perfectly in a very nice, straight line and connected solidly with the ball, sending it neatly into the pocket. As you were saying, Watson, I can't what he asked, looking at me smugly with an I told you so glance. I sighed. You cannot hit the eight ball in until the end of the game, Holmes, it is not a regular solid, I said slowly, trying desperately not to laugh as he stared at me blankly. Dead silence. I can't? No. Oh. I laughed aloud at his rueful face, so comical in its dismay. What happens if I do he asked hesitantly. You forfeit the game, old man. Well, it's a good thing we are not playing by the rules then, eh he asked brightly, taking aim again at a different ball. After I closed my gaping mouth, I began to laugh again, and for the next hour, until we left for dinner, we were able to at last completely put Culverton Smith and his diabolical schemes out of our minds, temporarily at least. Larklin. Midshipman. Midshipman. I came awake as the high voice of the seaman rang in my ears. Opening my eyes, I was able to make out the pock-marked face of Rini, a young lad just only out to sea. He was pale making the marks on his face stand out like beacons on his cheeks. I blinked about me at the dark cabin, judging by the porthole, I had been asleep no more than three hours, having just come off my watch. I swung my legs out over the edge of my bunk and rose to my feet. What is it, lad? What's wrong? The lad leaned heavily against the wall, clutching his chest and gasping for breath. Sir, one of the coal shovelers, he's, he's. 
I took him by the shoulder and pushed him down to a sitting position on the bunk. Easy lad, slowly. Tell me slow. Get your breath. Rini sat with his elbows on his knees, his head in his hands, his fingers clutching the red, uneven hair on his scalp. For a few minutes he breathed deeply then met my steady gaze, his crazed eyes somewhat calmer. Mr. Matlock Sur, he was taken ill a day ago and all day he has not moved from his bunk, and just now. The lad swallowed, his eyes pleading with mine for some reassurance. Sir, he's gone off his head. What? He's rambling something terrible, he's hot, it's some sort of sickness, sir. A fierce fear gnawed its way into my stomach and I gripped him by the shoulders, alarming the poor boy further. He's sick. Why, yes, he. Something dreadful. It could not be, we had only been a little more than a week out to sea, it was too early. I took hold of my senses and let go of the lad. Rini, go and fetch one of the doctors, now, please. He nodded and leapt to his feet, hurrying out of the cabin and up the stairs to the deck. I pulled on my jacket and hurried down the hall in the opposite direction. I knew Matlock, he was not a lazy chap, if he was in bed then it was a grave matter indeed. It did not take me long to get to his cabin. It was dark, lit only by one lamp, and there was another seaman, one of his bunkmates I presumed, kneeling beside the bunk on which the sufferer lay. The foul smell of sweat and sickness reached my nostrils, I choked slightly but kept my bile down. The seaman looked up as I entered and gaped at me, his face grim, though not as white as Rini's. Midshipman, he said, his own voice thick, Matlock, he? Yes, I know. I said motioning him aside and taking his place beside the bunk. The seaman had kindly placed a wet rag on Matlock's brow but it had had little effect. The old man had kicked back his bedclothes and both he and the sheets were soaked with sweat. He was shaking and muttering under his breath, obviously out of his head, but lacking the strength to lash out sufficiently. I hesitated, then reached out to touch his arm, it was icy cold to the touch, there were goosebumps on the flesh and though the moisture of his body still beaded upon him he was breathing hoarsely. The man was as dry as a bone, it was as though they had already broken his fever, but he was still delirious. I wrapped my hand round the arm and felt that the muscles underneath were as hard as granite, the limb quivered slightly, like a steady engine. If I recalled Dr. Watson's words correctly then Matlock was not suffering the same fever that Holmes and I had. Which meant that Smith had yet another exotic disease to do his dirty work for him. I rounded on the seaman, feeling the cold, icy rage fill my breast and clear my mind. All sicknesses are to be reported to the infirmary immediately. Why wasn't I or another officer told? The fellow backed away from me, swallowing. Matlock told us E.E. was just tired. There was no reason, and then he won't let us, E.E. was a strong-willed man was Matlock, told us to shove off and mind our own business. You were told to report illness, I said more sharply, cutting him off. Cases like this can damage the well-being of the entire ship. Midshipman it wasn't my fault e.e. the fellow cringed, his voice rising to a whine. I glared at him and gripped his coat giving him a slight shake to stop his flapping mouth. You are a member of this crew and you are as responsible as I want the name of every man who knew of this and failed to report it. I hissed the words as him from between clenched teeth, my face only inches from his. A sound, a terrible sound arrested my attention and I turned to see Matlock twitching violently on his bunk, a whistling gurgle coming from his throat. I shouted and went to his side, trying to hold him still, but his muscles were still rigid. Matlock, Matlock. But he never heard me, his eyes stared blankly ahead and he took a long slow, rattling breath, and fell still and as hard as stone. 
The dread in my chest hardened to a cold calculation. I felt his neck and found no pulse. He was dead. I sighed a small prayer over the unfortunate seaman, pulling the bedsheets over his head and turning to face his mate again. The man had gone, fled no doubt from fear of the illness and my reprimand. I would find him later. There was something more important to attend to. Holmes and the doctor had to be told, for it did not take a great imagination to understand that this would only be the first case of sickness on board, and possibly only the first death. Chapter 20, A Black Flag. What even pirates, before they attack another ship, hoist a black flag? Jan Bella Kirali, Commander, Hungarian National Guard. Chapter 20, A Black Flag. Watson. Sherlock Holmes and I had spent a rather pleasant hour in the deserted billiard lounge by the time straggling men began to enter after the first dinner rush was over and start up games of their own. Holmes was growing decidedly nervous, I could tell, his grey eyes were darting about every time he tried to make a shot, wondering if anyone were watching his lack of skill. But still he gallantly refused to end the game, knowing how much it meant to me, and I appreciated the gesture and finally took pity on him as the room began to fill and grow noisy with voices of the crowd. Come along, old chap, you put up a valiant effort, I said sincerely as Holmes ran a finger round his collar nervously, preparing to shoot. I took the stick from him, and he relinquished it with alacrity and an audible sigh of relief. I have to say I prefer chess, Watson, this is definitely not my mate here, he sighed, mopping his brow with his handkerchief. Nonsense, you did very well for the first time, I declared, starting to put the cues back into the glossy wood rack on the wall. I was abruptly bumped out of the way by a figure I recognized. That blasted American newspaper man, they really were, although an energetic race, extremely rude at times in their enthusiasm. I scowled but said nothing, not wanting to start a row in the middle of all these people, besides, I had already antagonized the man earlier in the week at the Purser's. I had no wish to dredge up those still embarrassing memories. Oh, excuse me, the man muttered, turning round with an impatient frown, an oversized cue stick in his hand, didn't see you there, well, if it isn't the aspiring writer. This last word was spoken with a contempt that made me bristle, but I held my peace, putting our cues calmly back on the rack. To my dismay, however, Sherlock Holmes was not in as much control of his tongue as I who is your rather ill-mannered acquaintance. Watson he snapped with an eye that made me stare, I had rarely heard such venom in his voice before. And who the devil are you? My name is Sherlock Holmes, and obviously you are not acquainted with my biographer's chronicles or you would know that, my friend declared, his eyes flashing. My irritation had faded to amusement at the way Holmes was more angry with the man than I was. Sherlock Holmes, huh? Heard of you a few times, the man said, studying my friend, never cared much for romantic adventure stories, though, no good, the lot of them. Never cared for them. I see you never cared much for proper manners, either. Holmes, stop it, let's go, I hissed in his ear, tugging on his arm as his face flushed with indignation. Yes, why don't you the American said, taking possession of the table we had just vacated, I saw you playing and I gotta say you're without a doubt the worst player I've ever seen, Holmes. And you're the worst gentleman, sir I snapped, now I was unable to remain passive and I will ask you to mind your impudent tongue. Double quote. What? It's true, you both obviously are clueless when it comes to a real good game of pool, the upstart said insufferably, racking up the balls. I would not wager on that, if I were you, I replied heartily, glaring at the smug American. His ridiculous mustache bristled. Oh, you're challenging me, eh? I'm telling you to mind your tongue, but if you wish it, 
then yes, I shall challenge you I snapped, my patience completely at an end. You Englishman and your ridiculous sense of honor, the man snorted derisively. Then his mustache bristled again and his eyes flashed with a hidden malicious glee. All right, doctor, I'll take your challenge, he said with a leer, I certainly hope you are better at pool than you are at writing. I glared back at the man for a moment and then stalked back over to pick up the cue I had replaced. Sighting down it, I saw it was slightly warped and selected another. Watson, Holmes had followed me over and was speaking in a low voice, you don't know how to play American pool. I laughed. Holmes, I just taught you how to play American pool. What? Thurston and I grew weary at the club of playing traditional English billiards, and when an American came through last year as a guest of his, we both learned the American way of playing, just to break up the monotony. I find it more enjoyable than billiards, and I needed practice, that's why I started you off on it this afternoon. I wasn't playing billiards he asked in dismay. No, you were playing pool, I replied, grinning at his face, I needed the practice, and you just needed to work on connecting with the cue ball. But can you play well enough to beat a real American he asked incredulously, his worried glance passing from me to the smug-looking newspaper man. Probably not, I replied, a trifle uneasily, but I shall definitely try. He's insulted us both now. I'm inclined to agree with his sentiments regarding our confounded sense of honor, Holmes muttered nervously as the American glanced at me and then made a clean break, sending two striped balls solidly thunking into the corner pockets. I swallowed hard. The man was obviously no amateur. He knew what he was doing, and this was not going to be easy. Well, good luck, my dear fellow, Holmes said warmly, clapping me on the shoulder, I shall be backing you, you know that. Do not place any bets on this, Holmes, I warned him, watching with dismay as the Americans sank another ball with a fantastic angled shot. My friend grinned, squeezing my shoulder once more before walking over to a nearby bar stool and perching himself upon it to watch the game. By the way, sir, I do not believe we have been properly introduced, I said after he missed his next shot. Spencer, Dave Spencer, the man said curtly, applying chalk liberally to his cue. I studied the table carefully, took a deep breath to calm my tense nerves, and took careful aim, and sent two balls of my own into corresponding pockets. The American looked at me with something akin to respect, and Holmes was grinning like a hyena from a few feet away. I felt my nervous tension start to drain as I blocked out the background noise and concentrated on the rules of American pool. I sank another shot, an easy open straight shot, and found that I was going to have to do some fancy maneuvering to sink the only other ball I had a chance at. I did some calculating, sighted along the stick, willing my nerves to be perfectly cool, and then shot. The cue ball jumped Spencer's eleven ball and smacked solidly into my five, sending it into the side pocket and leaving me open for a good shot at my three. I sent it in easily and was left with no good shot at all from my remaining two balls. Even using the bridge, I was still unable to send another in, but I made sure to leave Spencer no shot at any of his balls when I did miss. Or so I thought. The Americans sent me a baleful but triumphant glare and then lined up his shot. There was no possible way he could manage that but he did, sending the cue ball to jump my seven and send his fourteen neatly into the corner pocket, bouncing off the green felt of the wall to come back and gently nudge his eleven door the side pocket. The ball teetered for a moment on the edge and then dropped into the pocket. This maneuver left him a clear shot at his twelve, which he sent in easily, leaving him with only his thirteen in the center of the table. I still had two balls on the table. 
I glanced up for a moment and saw Holmes standing with a group of men, all watching the game with interest, and the sight made me even more nervous than before. I swallowed hard as Spencer aimed a showy angle shot, planning to play off of my two. But I drew a deep breath as he misjudged the distance and sent the ball bounding toward the opposite end of the table, not hitting anything. This was my chance to run the table, probably the only chance I would get. I felt rather than saw Holmes's look of encouragement as I carefully and methodically aimed at my two, which was rather close to the side pocket, and sent the cue ball gently toward it. It tapped the ball into the pocket with a soft crack, tipping it into the pocket almost noiselessly. This left me only my seven ball up against the rail, but the eight ball was blocking the only pocket I had a good shot at. All this time, about fifteen minutes I judged, Spencer and I had not said a word to each other, concentrating on the game and nothing else. I drew a deep breath as I considered my options, and the American leaned over to speak to me in a tone of deep contempt. I suppose you play well for an Englishman, and writer, he said with palpable condescension, but you really are terrible compared to the people I am used to playing with. You might as well concede the game and save yourself the embarrassment. I saw Holmes flush a bright red in anger at the American's words, and the sight gave me the courage to glare at the man and make my choice. I set my cue down aiming it determinately. Far left corner pocket, I snapped, indicating which pocket I was going to attempt to send the eight ball to after hitting my own in. It was a fantastic shot, but I had made such shots before. Could I do it again under pressure? Spencer made some scoffing remark, reminding me if I missed the shot that I would lose the game, not that I had a good chance to win anyway, etc., etc., but I took a deep breath again and blocked out his annoying blather. I sighted, gauged the distance and necessary speed, and shot. My seven flew down the table, slamming the eight ball out of the way and toward the opposite end. My seven went shooting straight into the other corner pocket, and I then turned my attention to the still-traveling eight ball. It was bouncing all over with the tremendous force of my shot, as I had meant it to, and it finally slowed near the pocket I named and rolled toward it, gradually losing momentum, until it rested right on the edge, and fell neatly into the pocket with a resounding thwack. I had done it. If looks could kill, Spencer would have stood trial for my murder, and I thought Sherlock Holmes was going to shout aloud. I met Spencer's glare with a satisfied smirk, yes, I must confess to being rather proud of myself, and set my cue stick on the table, turning to a near ecstatic Holmes. Well done, Watson he cried, his eyes shining with pride as he pounded me on the back. You were saying about clueless Englishman, Mr. Spencer I asked blandly. The man let loose a string of curses that I was not familiar with, Americans, I never shall understand them, and threw his cue down on the table, stomping off in a huff. Holmes chortled with undisguised glee, and several of the men he had been standing with were shooting us admiring looks which made me rather self-conscious. Let's get out of here, Holmes, I muttered nervously, somewhat embarrassed. All right, my dear fellow. Oh, Barker? I believe that's ten pounds you owe me, my dear sir, Holmes said gesturing to a rueful-looking young man in a grey suit and ascot. The rather foppish youth pulled out a well-stuffed wallet and handed a ten-pound note to my friend with a grimace, and then the two of us made a hasty exit. Ten pounds. I told you not to bet on that game. I have implicit faith in you, my dear Watson, I knew you wouldn't let us down, he returned honestly. You have more faith in me than I have I said, still astounded by the whole turn of events. He laughed easily and linked his arm through mine as we made our way for a belated dinner. That was simply fantastic, Watson, I stand amazed, he said, seemingly more excited about the game than I was, 
that cocky upstart never knew what he was up against. Oh, really, Holmes? I mean it, Watson, you were magnificent. Holmes, can't we drop it, for goodness sake I asked as we were seated at a small table, now thoroughly embarrassed by my friend's unusually urban praise. I told you before, Watson, that I cannot agree with those who rank modesty among the virtues, he admonished, shaking his soup spoon at me for emphasis. Do not shake your spoon at me. There is no soup on it, Watson. I don't care, people are staring I hissed, glancing round us. Let them stare. I hope this latest escapade of yours gets all over the ship, you're soundly thrashing that scoundrel, Holmes replied emphatically, the nerve of the man, saying what he did about your stories. I spluttered, choking on my port, nearly dropping the glass and hastily mopping up the little mess I had created in my shock. I beg your pardon? What? Something wrong with the wine? No, you idiot. Did you just actually defend my writing? Holmes suddenly looked thoughtful, as if trying to remember. Well, I suppose I did, he admitted sheepishly, grinning at me as I cautiously took another drink. I shook my head in mock disbelief. Well, critiquing your stories is my exclusive privilege, he said offensively, sipping his own glass and eyeing me for my reaction. I chuckled. I do not believe it. This search for Smith has addled your brain, my dear chapter. Holmes snorted, returning my grin just as our food arrived, and we spent a thoroughly relaxing half hour over dinner. Watson, my friend asked as we made our way after dinner up to the deck. Hum? Do you think you could get into another game of pool, I could use some reimbursement for these infernal tickets? I elbowed him sharply, not amused, and he snickered mischievously. What are we going to do about Smith? Holmes I asked a few minutes later, as we walked round the deck. There is something, Watson, something elusive, that has been bothering me about this case, he returned, all his jollity of earlier varnishing, some idea out there, subtle and intangible, that I should be seeing but I am not. I nodded. I have a bad feeling myself that we are missing something. Exactly. I think I shall go back to the cabin and smoke for a while, he said thoughtfully, his brows drawn and face pensive we cannot afford to miss any details. I agreed with him. I shall stay up here for a while, I said, I will be sure to stay in a crowd and take no chances alone, he had looked worried when I first suggested this. Well, make sure you do, he admonished, I don't want to have to find another chronicler. I doubt you could find anyone else to put up with you, I returned with a smirk. He laughed. Right then. And Watson, don't come down to the cabin by yourself. I shall come back up and get you in say, three hours? That will give me time for several pipes. Sounds fine, Holmes, I agreed, rather glad of the precautions for our safety and the fact that I would not have to stay in that tiny stateroom while Holmes filled it with his poisonous atmosphere. I had actually made several friends thus far on the ship, and I welcomed the chance at a more extensive social life that a ship such as this offered. I would find plenty to do for three hours while Holmes did his impression of a human chimney. Holmes saw a group of passengers heading down our companionway and moved to walk with them so that he too would not be alone, and I moved closer to the brightly lit portion of the promenade deck where all the couples were dancing or standing by the rail, talking and looking out over the water. All seemed still and calm and quiet, almost as if Smith and his machinations were just some distant murmur of thunder far away in the night sky. As the balmy sea breeze whipped about me, I looked out at the sunset's gorgeous hues and felt a little peace for the first time in a while. Doctor a voice suddenly hissed, breaking into my reverie. I turned round wearily. A familiar figure, uniform in slight disarray, came forward from the shadows of a companionway. 
Larklin I said in a loud whisper, meeting him halfway and moving back into the shadows so we would not be seen, what is it? I thought you came off your watch a few hours ago and would be asleep by now. I was, doctor, he said, and I could barely see in the dim light a look of dread and horror upon his honest face as he spoke, I was awakened by a lad in the cruise quarters. What is wrong I asked, and I see dread feeling me, not wanting to hear the answer. Smith, doctor, Larklin stated, his normally strong voice slightly shaken, he's claimed his first victim, not an hour ago. The man is dead. Chapter 21 Stormy Petrel. Many thanks to Pompey who came up with Watson's diagnosis for this disease. Stormy Petrel, a seabird which heralds a coming storm. Chapter 21, Stormy Petrel. Watson. Dead. I heard my own voice break at the horror of the thing. Larkin nodded, his face grim. I'm afraid so, doctor, he took ill not two days ago. I was not alerted of the fact. The bloody idiot was trying to hide it and his mates helped him. I cursed under my breath as the seaman stared at me steadily. You all right he asked. Yes, I said distractedly yes, I am fine. Where is Mr. Holmes? In the cabin, going over the case. You'd think he solves more cases from his armchair than at the scene of the crime. You'd be surprised. Well, the seaman squared his shoulders. You're his second, that puts you in charge, doctor. I am at your command. I nodded slightly. This development was so sudden and so unexpected it had thrown me completely off balance. Have they removed the body yet? No, the ship's daughter's still looking at him. We may just catch him if we're lucky. Right. I shall get Holmes, you try to stall them. I turned to hurry after my friend and was halted by the sailor's cautionary grip on my arm. Alone, Doctor his blue eyes shone gravely out from his weathered face. Yes, alone, there isn't time. I'll take my revolver on the way back. But hurry, Larklin. He nodded with a bracing smile and laughed suddenly. I would hate to be around if the captain discovered you had your own firearm aboard doctor, not even I am allowed one. I'll meet you in the aft stairwell. I smiled and hurried down the dark staircase towards our staterooms, my senses on full alert. I had not told Larklin the real reason why I wanted to go after Holmes. I did not want to leave him alone for a moment longer than necessary, not now that Smith had actually struck. I made a very brief journey without incident and was soon at the door of Holmes's cabin. I knocked loudly and opened it without ceremony to be met with a fog of smoke. My friend jerked upright from his position on his bunk, startled by my abrupt entrance. The dangerous scowl on his face changed to one of concern. Watson. Did I not tell you I would come up to get you? I thought we were agreed, he stopped, seeing the expression on my face. What has happened? One of the crewmen. I gasped quite unable to finish the gruesome fact. Ill? I shook my head. He's dead, Holmes. Larklin has gone to retain the body. Holmes sprang up from his seat and threw tossed down his pipe. Where? The aft of the ship, cruise quarters. He was out the door and up the stairwell in a moment and I followed at his heels. We made our way swiftly to through the evening crowds on deck to the stairwell at the back of the ship which led to the cruise quarters and the boiler rooms. We only just entered the compact staircase when Larklin came quickly up them, his face breaking into relief at the sight of us. He's only just finished examining the body, he's gone to report to the captain. I can promise you ten minutes at least. Good man, Holmes said as we followed him down the stairs. Stick close, the seaman said. You're not supposed to be down here, but no one should bother about it while I'm with you. We did as we were told and he led us swiftly through the shadowy halls to a small cabin that contained a set of double bunks. 
In the middle of the floor on a stretcher lay a sheet-draped form. No guard I asked. Larklin nodded. You're looking at him, doctor, which is the only reason we have this chance. I suggest you hurry, or we'll be answering quite a few sticky questions. Holmes was already fully preoccupied, kneeling beside the body and tossing back the sheet. He hissed between his teeth at the stark, rigid face of the dead sailor. Watson, he said softly, beckoning to me. I knelt on the other side of the body and made a cursory examination, taking note of a rigid posture which had frozen his facial features into a horrible grimace. This is not normal rigor mortis, I said, the germ attacked his voluntary muscles, it's very much like lockjaw. What were some of his other symptoms, Larklin I asked, looking at the seaman who stood in the doorway, one ear cocked for the return of his superiors. He sighed and folded his arms, looking uneasily at the corpse. His mates said his first complaint was fatigue, he took to his bed and then never left it. By the time I got to him he was shaking and twitching, nearly as stiff as he is now. He was delirious, didn't even know I was there. Did he have a fever? No, just the opposite. He was covered in sweat but as cold as a fish. He had trouble breathing right before the end. Another disease entirely, I said grimly. It attacked his sympathetic nervous system directly to the brain. His corbidy temperature plummeted and then the convulsions began, rather like violent shivering at the start. Delirium was inevitable. Which means Smith probably has an army of germs at his disposal, Holmes muttered grimly, I feared as much. My friend was searching the body methodically, looking in pockets and at the fellow's hands. After a moment he gave the frustrated scarf and drew the sheet back over the nightmarish face. There is no data, nothing that would single him out to Smith. I fear he is just another laboratory rat. You mean he is choosing victims at random I gasped, sickened by the idea. Such an idea, such a disregard for life was inhuman. Pleasant fellow, this Smith, Larkin growled, his hand clenched on the doorframe, his teeth bared and his lips curled in disgust. We had no time to discuss the subject further, however, for at that moment the seaman straightened like a dog with his ears pricked. You gents had better hightail it, he said. I'll join you at the top of the stairwell if you'll wait for me a moment. You are already cutting into your period of sleep, are you not? Larkland Holmes said. Aye, but there is no rest for men with a ruffian like this smith about, he retorted, motioning us hastily out of the room. Holmes gripped the sailor's shoulder for a moment in a silent gesture of thanks and admiration and then hurried down the corridor. Come on, Watson. We reached the top of the stairs quickly, fleeing the grim lower levels of the ship. Once there, I leaned heavily against the iron rail and took deep breaths of the cool, sea air. The body, the likes of which I had not seen often, and the concept of Smith striking down innocent men for his own purposes made my blood run cold. That terrible white face had called to mind the countenance of Bartholomew Sholto in the sign of four, illuminated by the moonlight, frozen in a terrible grin of death, victim of the paralyzing poison that was on the exotic thorns we had discovered. Altogether too many gruesome memories were being dredged up in this case. Only a moment later there were footsteps in the stairwell and Larkin joined us, still rather stony-faced. Can we talk in one of your cabins gentlemen? I don't much fancy returning to the lower decks quite so soon. And I would very much appreciate being brought up to speed with whatever it is you've been investigating this past week. Holmes nodded, the doctor's cabin should suit admirably, I'm afraid mine is still a bit smoky. Is that all right with you Watson? Quite, I said, leading the way. I have no desire to sit in the poisonous atmosphere. The other reason for the vacancy of Holmes's rooms was making herself known with her usual alacrity and volume. 
even with an entire cabin between us her cries were easily discernible. At the squalling sound Larkin grimaced slightly and shot the opposite wall a look. How do you gents stand that? Do you ever get any sleep? With difficulty, and no, Holmes said, following behind us and shutting the door, which only succeeded in dimming the sound slightly. I settled on the bunk and Larkin took one of the chairs, leaving the detective room to pace between the entry and the porthole, his arms folded and his head sunk on his breast. We watched him for a few moments in silence, and then I cleared my throat. What does it mean, Holmes? What is his purpose for doing it? Larkin glared down at his feet, which he'd crossed before him. He doesn't need a reason, does he? He's just a madman, no rhyme or reason to it. Picks men off at random like flies on a wall, just like she did the ships. Holmes paused in his pacing, coming to a stop in front of the small round window. No. He raised his head and his eyes were sharp and deadly serious, as I had only seen them in times of crisis. No, I'm afraid it is not that simple. You are correct in thinking that he cares as little for the lives of others as flies on a wall but he has a definite end in mind. He may be a madman but he is still devilishly clever. What is his plan then I asked. It can't be money, for he could have sold the ships and the cargo, I do not see how this endeavor could bring him wealth. Revenge Larkland suggested. Neither, Holmes announced, one hand fingering his chin, his long index finger against his lips. And both. Do you recall, Watson? his reaction at the end of our first encounter with him. I shuddered at the memory of the struggling and cursing man, the threats he had spat at Holmes while the constables had dragged him away. Holmes had remained on his bed throughout, greatly weakened by the whole ordeal, and I had been hard-pressed not to stand protectively in front of him so great had the wrath of a specialist been. Only too well, Holmes. Holmes did not seem the least bit galled by the memory but had once again resumed his pacing, though more slowly, thoughtfully. During the time he spent in Sumatra those diseases became his pet hobby, and later his greatest ambition. You yourself described to me the order he showed toward them when you went to his office to fetch him for me. He's doing this for his passion I asked, further disgusted at Smith's character. Is that why he infected the ship's lark and added, his face clearly displaying his dismay at the still unresolved issue. Holmes nodded slowly. In part, I fear you are right. The routes of all those ships passed in close proximity to Sumatra, past Indonesia, and it would be little matter to infect them with a contagious disease. But that is not the sole reason. You mentioned something about a scandal back in the Lansing offices, I said quickly. Was he trying to ruin the line? For some past grievance? Holmes shot me a smile as he passed, very good, Watson. Yes, he wanted the ships to be discovered. But not because he wanted to ruin the line, they were just another poor one. The detective paused again coming to a halt just before us. Smith dedicated his life, before and after his imprisonment, to the study of his diseases, he wanted money and revenge of course but not those were not the sole motives. I am convinced that what he craved most, even before his attempt on my life, was recognition. Recognition? Yes, for his work. You see he was not satisfied merely to dabble in such practices, he wanted to be recognized as the leading specialist in such matters. He played the ships to get fame Larkland said. Precisely, Holmes pointed a finger at the seaman leaning against the wall of the cabin. He first tried cargo ships, but they went relatively unnoticed. So he moved on to passenger ships, and the lion proved too adept at hiding them. This ship, is his final shot. A vessel large and prestigious enough that it cannot possibly unnoticed. So he begins to infect men on the ship, and begins to attract attention, 
I said as the fog of surmise rolled clear from my mind. Of course Holmes was right, this could be the only explanation. A few deaths, several cases of illness, and all of Europe will be made aware. They will be desperate for a deliverer and at the moment of crisis he will appear, and with his antidotes and special knowledge of said diseases. It will, of course, all be regulated. Not even Smith would be foolish enough to spread a contagion loose on the ship with himself aboard. He is in strict control of the whole operation. I sighed and put my head in my hand. Insane, he is completely insane. He would have to be, to think of such a scheme, Holmes said impatiently pacing again. This will be only the first of many deaths I am sure, and he will move up through the crew to the passengers just as he did with the cargo ships to the passengers. He turned to Larklin. You are certain there have been no other signs of illness other than this one case? Larklin shook his head. None so far. But the way you speak of him it will not be long, what have you done so far to locate him? Have you made any progress with the passenger list? Little enough, I will bring you up to par. Watson, will you be good enough to fetch my pipe for me? Perhaps between the three of us we can come up with a plan to net this fish before he swallows another hapless victim. I left Holmes describing our investigation to the seaman and hurried next door to his room to fetch the discarded pipe and his tobacco pouch. The smoke from his brief period of meditation had not dissipated, but I was able to find the objects in question among the fog and scooped up the small pile of post that lay beneath it. Upon my return I handed these to Holmes and he proceeded to light his pipe with a murmur of thanks. I retained the pile of post and sifted through it absently, noticing that it was mixed with the pile of pound notes that Holmes had won betting on me earlier, they were lying on top of a white, blank envelope. I sighed and waved this at my companion. More of your winnings, Holmes I asked. My friend smiled innocently over his pipe and turned to answer Larkland's inquiry about the matter embarrassing me further as he elaborated on the game to the seaman. I opened the envelope absently to see what further damages my friend had caused his fellow spectators. I cursed slightly as my hand came in contact with the sharp edge of something inside and I drew out to see that it had caused a small gash on my index finger, drawing blood. Holmes heard my exclamation and startled me by gripping both my wrist and the envelope. His fingers were as hard and steel and I looked at him. What I saw disconcerted me. His face was quite white and there were lines of tension along his jaw that had not been there a moment ago. He scrutinized my hand for a moment and then took the envelope and turned it upside down. Something thin and metallic fell with a clink to the floor and the piece of paper fluttered down after it. Larkin bent to examine them and froze at Holmes's words. Don't touch. He shot Holmes a look just as startled as mine had been and paused, his hand outstretched. He pulled it back as one would from a brand. It's a razor blade he said. Like the tip of a penknife, one that will be used for cutting paper. Holmes swallowed, and his grip on my wrist had not slackened. And the note, what does it say? Larklin read it silently then turned his face up towards us. I felt my heart plummet not only at his expression but the words that followed. M.R. Holmes, do not think that your activities, or your presence has gone unobserved. You have beaten me once, there will not be a second time. You are very near your end, I shall not sit and wait to watch you die as I did once before. Before the night is through you will die in the knowledge that I have killed you. Smith. 